Well, greetings and welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's True History Hersty of Nisera on and our Galactic Origins on Saturdays. So thank you for joining us here. We want to take a few moments to go into that heart space. And uh, usually Cheryl's here, but she's still with her family, which a good thing. <laughs> and uh, so let's just take a few moments to go into our heart space. You have to breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, gently, slowly. And listen for that calling drum. So go into that heart space. Gather that around with your guides and guardians, your spirit teams, your healing teams. And there's a virtual council fire in the center. So let's all come close around that council fire. Make a circle. Do it in that virtual way that we know how to do so well. I want to call in the directions um, in in the Cherokee way with the the tones that I learned from um, the Kiwa way uh, from Joseph Brial, beautiful painted arrow. And so the tone that we start with will be ah with purification in in the east. So let's let's start this drum. I want you all to face the east where the sun rises <laughs> as we tone awe. And tone with me. I, I need you to help fill in the breath. And we invite 
divine masculinity, that solar energy, and power of protection to be with us as we begin this journey. What else? Now look to the north. This is the Cherokee part. This is the direction the Cherokees fall in the direction. In the tone for the north is O, and it's for innocence. It's the children, the innocence of the children are celebrated here. So let's do that come. Keepers of the North, come join us here. We give gratitude for all the ceremonies and teachings that sustain us. Gratitude for all you white haired ones, the white bird ones, the snowy owl, the hare, polar bear. These ones who live in that place of the cold, hard truth, teaching us to embrace and be grateful for this truth. Thank you, Buffalo people, for your medicine and abundance. And tall standing nations for your teaching of longevity and endurance and how to stand in our power without breaking. We are grateful to you, winds of change. Thank you for joining us here, empowering us to resist complacency. Now let's all turn and face west. And we will tone E, which is the vowel I actually. <laughs> it is pronouncing it E, and it's for awareness. Keepers of the West, come look this way. Give thanks to you, Bear, for your medicine of going with the hills, for that discernment and healing. And thank you, Big Cat, Jaguar, Panther, Cougar, Big Cat, for showing us how to live in two worlds, the invisible world and the tangible world, the physical world. Thank you. And Divine Feminine, we welcome you. 
good attitude for your gift of life and death and rebirth. With that feminine wisdom and nurture. And thank you, Twilight, the place of that setting sun in the world. The twilight, that sacred place, time in between, that crack between the worlds. Be with us on our journey. Give us the strength to look deeply within our hearts, welcoming our hearts and fears. To set us in order to be transformed. Thank you, Otter, for your faithfulness, for your women's medicine. Thank you for joining us here today. What up? Now we'll all turn to the south. And we will tone eh for a relationship. Eh. Keepers of the South, come um, look this way. We give gratitude for the medicine plant. It's strong in body and mind. A grateful for coyote, rabbit, creatures. Thank you for reminding us to laugh at ourselves and not take our egos so seriously. And for the balance of the irreverence with the sacredness. Thank you, porcupine, for your gifts of innocence. Trust, faith in ourselves and in every being of the planetary family. So grateful for you. Grateful for you, stone people. Carry the library of creation. Record keepers. We give thanks for our physical fitness and each body's expression of the divine. What does? Next direction is above the above direction, so just look up. There's no toning. All you spirit keepers of the Sky Nation, come look this way. We give gratitude to you, starry medicine bowl, for the campfires of our ancestors lighting the dark sky. And thank you, Sister Sun and Brother Moon, you cloud beings, rain beings, for our lives keeping his company on our earth walk. We give thanks to dream time and that ability to travel on our spirit bodies to experience our true nature and we don't forget who we are. Many gratitudes to swans, dolphins, lizards, dragonflies, you beautiful guardians and messengers of dream time. Thank you for joining us here today. So the next direction is the below direction. Put your hand on the uh, 
on the earth. So on the floor, on the earth, right? It's all connected. Put your hand there. All you spirit keepers of the earth, come. Look this way. Watch Mama, Gaia, Mother Earth. Thank you for our lives. All the children of the earth blanket, creepy crawlers, winged ones, thin ones, the four-legged ones, and all you pollinators and regenerators who keep us alive. Many gratitudes for all the diversity of life, for the interconnectedness of life, to that web of life, the equality of each member of the planetary family. We thank you, Mother Earth, for teaching us how to take care of you, to honor our life forms, and to walk gently upon you with love and respect. The next direction is within the direction, the center, and the tone for the center is ooh, and it's like the vowel U, and it's pronounced ooh, and it's, it means carry, so let's tone ooh. Welcome to that inner sacred space, all you spirit keepers within. Come, look this way, medicine ancestors, personal ancestors. Thank you for the wise choices you made in your lifetime. You sustain and nurture us, pass down the wisdom and knowledge, so that we can better live our lives as sacred human beings. We give thanks to the next seven generations, reminding us to make wise choices with intention and respect, to pass down the wisdom gained and the beauty and balance on the earth that experience. Wado. helping me with all those tones. <laughs> and uh, I want to just, just say that um, we are a listener-supported radio program, so I'm going to change my hat and do a little bit of housekeeping for a moment. So I invite you to just stay where that drumbeat took you and hang out and um, listen to how we can make a donation <laughs> to our, for all of our expenses here. As we gather each week this way, we incur expenses with BBS Radio of $300 each week, and this is how we all pitch in and make that happen. Um, you want to go to bbsradio.com, 
and click on Radio Station 2. You're looking for the menu for Radio Station 2. And specifically, for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, look at the 6 o'clock hour on Thursday and Friday. And this is Pacific time. And, um, yeah, at this, on Thursday, it's the night of the roundtable with the panel. As you click on that icon there, it'll take you directly to our account where you can make a direct uh, a donation in any amount. And then the same is true for our Friday program at the 6 o'clock hour, the hard news on Friday night with Tara and Rama. And as you click on that icon, that takes you to our account. And the same for this show, at the 1.30 hour, the true history, history of Nisera and our galactic origins. As you click on that icon, that takes you to our account. So thank you for taking that action. A little bit from everyone makes it light for all of us. So lots of gratitude for your participation this way. We're so grateful. And they were also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And this week, they're needing, they've got three bills, and they need $300 to cover those bills. And, um, and it might be 306 or something. But <laughs> if it's any more, it's only a little. Uh, it's 300 for those. And then there's also um, living expenses that they, they need money for. About $200 should cover it for the food and gas and um, various things that they need. So here's how we make a donation to Tara and Rama. As you go to the... Um, the site where you want to go. You want to go to, I'm sorry, I got it. You got to go to the, the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net, and there on the home page, you can click on that menu grid, and the menu will drop down here at the bottom. Is a, is a link that says donate. Click on that link, and that takes you directly to Rama's PayPal account where you can make a donation in any amount. So go into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and make that donation there. As you have your own PayPal account, you can use Rama's PayPal email, and that will um, access you to the friends option. So that email for Rama at PayPal, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999, at hotmail.com. And then as you're sending something to Tara and Rama, please um, let them know by uh, sending a note to Rama's personal email, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at Comcast.net. And then as you need it, the mailing address is as follows. It is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip is 87567, and I'll say it again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information you need, and I'll give you the two websites um, that are we're all participating in as, as we wish to support Rainbow Roundtable and support ourselves. Uh, these are the options. The free mark, shop free mark is, is a great place for supplements and 
environmental uh, products as well. So that address is HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemark.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. And we use that address if we want to join. That, that gets us to the correct site. Excuse <coughs> me. And um, I'll give you the New Gen Coin site, and we're participating with this as we wish to. And um, it seems to be pretty much fun. So check it out. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.newgencoin. And that New Gen is spelled N-U-G-E-N. And then coin.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M is Tara and Rama's site there, and Marshall's site, who brought us this wonderful program, as well as DreamArt. We want to support him as well. As you would like to join through that, his site is, it's the same address, forward slash, after dot com, forward slash, M-A-R-N-O-R, is his username. So you use that username, and you would be in <clears throat> signing up there. Either way, it's perfect. Thank you. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to pass this talking stick. So first I want to say 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, long life, no evil. And this talking stick is ready to go. It's full of light, and it's full of all the rays of the rainbow, and all the divine rays are there, the, oh, the, the, <clears throat> the violet flame and the electric blue and the opalescence and the pink and all those good rays. And then it's got lots of fairies and feathers and leftover fireworks. So with the Excalibur is coming along and all the little people and and in stillings, including those unicorns and dragons. So greeting Tara and Rama, here comes the talking stick. It's a hot one. Greetings. It's a hot one. It's so hot <laughs> in the kitchen and everywhere else. Really? Oh, my goodness. I heard it was 104 in Las Vegas, Nevada today, and it's probably hotter than that by now. That was early this morning. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's time to get with the program, I guess that's what you can say. Um, so, you got a text or anything, Mama, today? I got a text message from Rosa from Palestine. And she was talking about the IDF and the situation going on over there and the fact that Shireen was killed by the Israeli Defense Forces and the United States is whitewashing her murder. And yeah, it was a murder. Under the rug. And as all saying is, all oh, was a mistake, was an accident. Yeah. And Not. This is, you know, going to the ICC and the ICJ. And it's not going to go away. And Mr. Benny Gantz and all the other creepy characters over there 
that rubbed elbows with Elon Musk and Jeffrey Epstein. He's not dead, by the way. It's such a fiasco. No, he got swept away into a nice little poshy setup underneath Tel Aviv where he can continue to rape young girls. And Rosa said that uh, there are stories that Iran is enriching uranium and, you know, like... To be sold by parents. Oh, <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Go ahead. And it's, you know, um, the Western media is kind of putting out a red alert about Iran. And it is all about this great state of Satan called Israel, which is a part of the United States. And, you know, it's always been Palestine. They started off in the late 1800s taking Palestinians off of their land and putting them in camps. And that's been going on ever since. And then just uh, doing it more and more and more. and, And then taking pot shots at Palestinians for decades now with impunity, nobody being held accountable and putting the young ones in jail cells and throwing away the key. (coughs) Uh, It's pretty barbaric. Rosa said that as we approach this full moon in July, Guru Purnima Day, there could be something brewing which has to do with the great conclave of folks meeting maybe in Mount Shasta, maybe in Shambhala the Greater, over the Gobi Desert. I was just told that's a rumor out there. I asked, did you with the state of affairs right now where... Um, There is no reason on earth to have weapons of war in cities. We, you know, I don't even know where to go with this and place the violent fire. Just Rosa is saying, you know, the galactics are here. All the messages are saying, call the ships in. As we do that, it's a unified field, and there's no trepidation or issues about what if, but just pure love, they show up, and we transform this, just like Gene Houston was talking about last night, and Lisa Gar, and love is the answer. And the other lady that was talking too, I forgot her name, but we'll get it. Yeah. And she is just saying, I have great expectations of what's coming up with this Guru Purnima day, that something is going to shake asunder. And, you know, blaze a violet fire. That's what she's saying. Stay in the high heart. Don't get caught in the fray. Because they 
they want to play hardball, it's over. We were talking about something that you were going to write about, maybe about the shooting incident and the... I asked Rosa about all the places where they have burnt the food. Oh, yeah. And she told me that this has to do with the 13 families burning their bridges behind themselves as they try to escape, and yet at the same time they're taking each other out, which, you know... Don't get in the way. And she is just saying all of this is at the same time as the galactic show up, we can restore these um, burnt lands. There are technologies to restore the planet. And what they're playing with is their final solution. Oops, that doesn't sound good, Ramon. No, it's not. <laughs> it is about Armageddon and their consciousness because they are racist, pure and simple. And that doesn't go along with the eyes of the universe because it's the rainbow flag and there ain't nothing else to say. Well, the rainbow <laughs> flag is the identity flag for all the gay people. I'm saying it's the rainbow all the rainbow nations, the Native Americans speak of the rainbow nations showing up now. There's a prophecy of the rainbow children showing up now. Oh, they've been starting to show up way back in the mid-90s. Well, it's right at this time now. So they showed up at 96, uh, 2006, 2016. Uh, 2022, they're actually 27 years old already. Uh, could be, and there are ones coming in right now that are totally awake and blaze of violet fire. I passed the talking stick. They know. They know. They know so well. And of course, um, this generation that we call the prophets generation and the early birds that came in earlier than that. Um, I guess we've had our plate full. Is that a way to put it, Rama? Yeah. I'm missing that paper right at the moment, but there's a paper that goes through all the food storage places and a list of them being burnt to the ground. Yeah, maybe print it out again, but not right this second. Uh, what I wanted to say, and then there's they're burning the farms and throwing the farmers out of work in. It's spreading. You know, for sure, we got that report from Randy, Captain Randy, that in Netherlands and in Italy, they've doing, been doing it in, <coughs> out in the open. I still remember France putting the farmers 
off because they can't earn a living anymore. In other words, they're not able to... They're not able to make a living on doing that. And it's just, this is, it's, and again, a massive drought in the whole continent of Africa. And the only reason that's happening is because of what we've been doing. You know, it's called, who cares? (laughs) Climate change, who cares? In other words, what we're doing is causing the third world countries to go through much more desperate things. And I would say that we should finish a couple of questions Penny wanted us to cover uh, from a list of questions regarding the SARA. And one of the things is she wants us to Identify, and Rama, you help with this. I want you to identify areas where the galactics are already accepted on the planet. India is one place where they are accepted. Bhutan is another. Tibet is another. China is another. Whoa, 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 whoa. They're not accepted in Tibet because China pretty much runs but Tibet. China knows about the Galactics and they have had interactions with them whether they talk about it or not. Well, that's true, but they're still killing them in Tibet. Um, yeah, there's, yeah, they're killing the people of Tibet. And, and there's lots of people that are just looking like people in our Galactics. C'est possible. There are lots of things happening. We're all Galactics. Yeah, we are. Sometimes people are very sleepy about what that means. Not time to be sleeping anymore. Okay, ID the areas where the galactics are already working. The galactics are working on the oceans as well as the flora and the fauna. In In the oceans. In the oceans. The Altamarians, they started really in earnest in 2006, cleaning up the mess we keep on dumping in there. And there are craft all throughout the skies over our planet sucking up the chemtrails and at the same time as they spread, you know, as much as they do, the ships are there sucking it up, and they are making themselves known. And We still see them doing it in the sky. Yeah, every single day. Okay, that's a very generic answer, but um, that's, I guess, what we have to say. Um, what's the next area? Yeah, repairing areas like the oceans and the atmosphere, yeah. Um, Identify what we know is in store to help us. And then she puts some things down here. The vines across the desert. Oh, yeah, there's that's from the capstone. There are these... uh, They're seed pods. Seed pods. uh, That hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet because they're 
all kinds of things have to happen in the twinkling of an eye simultaneously. It's like a chain of events where you push one domino, all the dominoes go down, and it is a global event. That's the only way I know how to describe it. Well, the way that they've been telling us to say it is that nothing happens until everything happens all at once. Yeah. Or nothing at all. And that has to do with removing the old order power structure and those people. And if it's all at once or nothing at all, we're going to see all of them. Oh, five of the hundred thousand of them. Oh, I know this. Uh, there are ship prisons on off the coast of, and they're all cloaked, and they've been off the coast for at least a decade or more. And um, uh, the deep state has some good guys in there. <laughs> and um, when they catch one of these five hundred thousand, they go through a proper procedure and then they put them in the prisons with a cloaking device and that's happening on a global scale at least for 10 years and I don't know if there's an update on that I have not heard well I remember that you were told that uh, very soon very 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 soon and that Ashtar and Sananda like Earl Grey hot. Yes, anytime. <laughs> well, if they show up, then everybody shows up at the same time. That's why I said you push one domino, it all comes down. And nobody's giving me a time. So what's the domino? It's Saint Germain has to signal the King of Swords to signal the Provost Marshal General to order martial law. Yep. And that's, uh, we kind of explained this yesterday, but I'm going to say it again. We were talking about there is no G-Sara. No, there is not. At all. That is a fake story that is being used by so many people across this planet. There's some rabbi talking about this now. And I, I don't even want to go there. It is not real. This is directly linked is up. Is the rabbi the, in the United States or over there in Israel? I have no idea because I don't really listen to it because it, it is promulgating the story that is being put out by Faction 2 that is not correct. Yeah, and but it we'll is be. convoluted. It yeah, but we are required to tell the story in the details so that people can be alerted and tell the details. It's not coming from the opposite of the Christ. No, 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 no. We got We got to have people know the details so that when they're reading something from all different kind of sites, they can detect that this isn't the truth. And so the details are that... If they use the word G-Sara, you know for sure that's not truce. If they use the words, um, what, uh, um, uh, a National Economic Stabilization and Recovery Act, 
you know, that's not true because that was Bush Sr.'s idea of a joke. He pulled the true Nassara bill in 1999 off the table from March 9th and uh, put that fake one up there. And, you know, we had to learn these things along the way, Rama and ourselves, too, because, you know, lightworkers, jumping around, singing songs and dancing and pretending like everything is fluffy gets you in trouble. <laughs> oh, okay. So, okay, wait, we've got to finish this. Okay, so the vines across the desert are the seed pods and... As they happen all at once, you only got to plant them in the desert, in the sand, and they will start growing vines a hundred miles long, and it might take 48 hours for them to grow a hundred miles it is, long. Uh, it is as magical as the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, and these vines produce seed pods that release xenon gas. No, the seed pods are in there on you plant the seed pods. Yeah. And then they create vines with more seeds. Yeah. On them. Yeah. And it goes every 48 hours, you've got all the seed pods that you originally planted, a hundred mile long, uh, vines with more on them. And then they continue across the desert so that you've, uh, the, the Sahara Desert is, I don't know how many, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of desert in every direction, but it covers the whole desert and literally within a short period of time. Mother kind of was saying within a month that whole thing will turn into a tropical garden. As, and, um, that's fast. Mother has said, like, um, as... Which will produce food. Now, it's this is looking very close because they're saying the entire continent is not able to produce food anymore because the drought is... In other words, the drought is so severe they can't get enough water to water the plants so that they don't die. So that to me, that means it's a lot closer than we knew. Yeah. Okay, and then the next thing is dome housing. Yeah, I mean, it only takes, uh, you know, what's his name from Florida? He had that, he had that, he, he's not on the planet anymore, but he, I think he passed over at 94 or 95 in his, White the Venus was, Project. The Venus Project. and Jacques Fresco. Jacques Fresco. I don't remember his wife, but she built a... Marilyn or something. Marilyn. I don't remember her she, name. She built a spherical home in Florida. But how how long does that take to, to, to put them up? Just Oh, I'm not sure exactly. Maybe a few days? Yeah. It could be. I mean, you were building houses. How long? I was building domes, but that was like kind of um, construction work, and it, it took like you know a week or more. Oh, that's that's nothing. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, that 
going to happen really fast. And then music of the spheres and other galactic energies. Harmony of the spheres. The galactics will be bringing that on a global scale and everybody's going to hear them all across the whole planet. Yeah, those frequencies put you in a state of awareness where it's not mind control. It is about opening up to receiving the frequencies that resonate in the high heart where the serotonin, the pleasure centers of the brain are activated like the soma. And it's not about getting high or ecstasy in that sense of sex, but it is about being in the presence of the man. When you're in the presence, like, let's say, John the Baptist, or Admiral Sananda Kumara, or Sai Baba, and I've been in his presence, you feel that. It is tangible, you can taste it, touch it. Anyway, there's a lot of people that can hear those harmony of the sphere sounds. That's right. And it's growing exponentially. There's never been a awakening that's been happening as fast as this one ever. And uh, watching trials on Dracos elsewhere. Lifting of the despair and the cloak of COVID. Um... That one is up to mother. I, and you keep getting told no dates on that one. I defer to mother. I mean, we're not going to be able to give anybody that in terms of a date. But as we continue to increase our participation in fifth dimensional consciousness and help others to do the same, this is it's just... It's all happening now. It is. The ultimate person that decides to give the signal is Saint Germain. Yes. And Blaze of Vital Fire. So wait a minute. Countries receiving money first will be uh, the United States, Canada, the UK, and Australia. Right? Yeah, what, and New Zealand? <laughs> I think the first four are those four. Okay, I don't really... And the reason is because the empire anchored in those four countries the evil that got perpetrated. And yeah. so the money's going to get distributed in those countries to the people that didn't participate in that. And we will have more responsibility than all the rest of the people of the world because we have more affluence than anybody else in the rest of the world. And we have the whereby and the means and the knowledge to and the money then. And it's not supposed to be just for ourselves. It's for, for to help these people primarily uh, to get themselves above water at least until they can... Uh, do more for themselves and it'll take about a year after the first four countries I'll be the I think that will happen really like right away but 
it'll take a year for all the countries in the world to get their $10 million. And in the meantime, uh, it's very important to know that if we ever speak something that we signed a non-disclosure not to speak, and it doesn't matter if it's 10 years down the road or five years down the road, it will all be gone. It will completely be gone and you'll have not a dime. And it's really important to remember that. Okay. Oh, wait. Is there anything more? Okay. Well, hurry up. Okay, please, sir. Okay, see. Um, um, and, and, and that's because the perpetrators of the empire have committed the evil and we have what we need. And that's why uh, these four countries, which are the four countries of the empire that did this evil from the top. And so where do ordinary people go to get help with paperwork, trust indentures, etc.? Um, I'm just saying I was talking to Micah couple nights ago and he knows it like the back of his hand and um, uh, Leonara sent Rama three trust indentures and we just made a choice to get the second two and look at them and also Leonara said the one from the from Belize is a really safe in um, uh, uh Venue. It's a very safe place to, the Belize trusts are very safe. And, uh, Penny has those and she has them on her website. And I would say that, um, I'm, I'm not sure about this. And Penny, if you're there, you might want to call in. And just give, if you want to, give people where they can sign up. You know, like send you their email. So that when you send stuff out, they can get it. Uh, I'm sorry I have an ignoramus here. Uh, and Ramos, uh, he's not available for the moment. So, uh, if it, as you're hearing me, Penny, maybe you'll call in and I'll see that. And then you can give that information. As all the money goes to zero, do savings go to zero? As well as checking accounts, savings accounts and checking accounts. As this happens, how do people live? There will be actually no break between that stuff going to zero and the money of the new system available. There will be no no waiting time in there. And they have that one figured out, and I don't know the details. I'm just got to say what I know. Nobody will be left hanging upside down with nothing to eat, no money. That's not going to happen, period. Galactics are 100 million years in advance at least of our time-space continuum and they know how to do that. And our pea brains has got to just let it go. Yeah. 
Okay, how do bank managers get informed? Everybody will get their package and it will be delivered to everybody's door. And they know how to do it in the proper order, meaning the Faction 3 White Knights will be driving fully armed Brinks trucks and they will be fully in armed, the two Faction 3 White Knights, and they will know where you live and they will trot up to your front door and ring the doorbell and they will uh, have you sign. And again, that's uh, you have to write above your signature uh, non-assumpsit, A-S-S-U-M-P-S-I-T, without prejudice, reserving all natural, God-given birth rights, waiving none ever. You have to sign all of that in handwriting or you can go ahead ahead of time and purchase a stamp and you can stamp it above your signature. You're going to have to stamp it above your signatures on a whole bunch of things. In other words, you'll be instructed when you get that package There'll be instructions for everything you need to know to set it up in your trust indentures. And you got um, uh, Leonardo said now it's going to only be 50 suggested ones that you can pick from. Uh, it used to be 200. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, they got it down to 50 now. And again, I'll repeat that. You write or you can get a stamp made that says non- hyphen, assumpsit, A-S-S-U-M-P, U-M as in Mary, P as in Paul, S as in Sam, I-T as in Tom, non-assumpsit, comma, without prejudice, comma, reserving all natural, God-given, God-given birthrights, comma, waiving none, comma, ever, period. And again, you got two options. You can sign it in your handwriting above your signatures, and that will be done many, many times. Or you can choose to purchase a stamp saying all of those things on there. And then underneath that stamp or your signing of all that, uh, you sign your name. And then you put a comma after that. And then you write and slash or assigns. A-S-S-I-G-N-S. Comma. And then you put the date. And you got to do that multiple and multiple and multiple times. Okay, so, and you can do that anytime when you're ready, you choose, you can do it. Okay, so that's pretty clear. And um, 
the bank managers get informed by you once you've got your package and you don't get your package until you do that non-assumption thing and put your signature and you put the comma and then you put the and or signs and the comma and the date at the door. And then they'll give you your package and then you open it up and then they'll tell you which bank and which manager you're going to call up and go talk to. And then that bank manager will have a private account, uh, appointment with you and he will have you doing this non-assumption thing with your signature and the date and are in the and or signs in the date on multiple and multiple and multiple of more things uh, that have to do with the trusts and getting this ready for you to get access to it with the protection of the trust indentures. And there's a process in there. Like I said, you know, you're going to be doing things. And they said it would be, everything will still go on as usual for a month. You know, wherever you're working or the money you're making, it will look just like nothing happened. This will all be going on. And after a month is over, then they're going to re-index Every product and services uh, that are available on the planet, they're going to re-index it to the new system, the Nassara Law system. And that will be meaning that once we have our trusts and we take all the money and put it in the... It's probably going to be a series of trusts and the bank manager along with the trust indenture that you choose to set up. A trust indenture means a series of trusts. You have to have one that's a sovereign domestic trust venue. And Delaware is where you can go to the offshore venue and they'll all these different 50 different trust indentures that will all have instructions and you can choose the one you want and it doesn't matter where you live, they're going to have the instructions for what you want. And and then you will be able to know how, with the help of that bank manager, how to set up the link between your sovereign domestic trust and your sovereign offshore trusts. And I say it again, you're going to have to have at least three offshore trusts and a sovereign domestic trust. And the three offshore ones will be, I'm just going to use the letter F for foreign, and then number one, that's the first foreign trust. And that will be where you can take your money and take it offshore from the domestic venue. It doesn't stay there. It's just going to get there to land in the offshore venue. And then your F2 trust, which will be a pass-through trust. In other words, once you're in the offshore venue, then you can take that money and pass it through F2 trust. Pass it through. It doesn't sit there at all. It just gets passed through there. And the purpose of that is that 
it will make it invisible as to where the F3 trust is, which will be beyond that pass-through trust, and nobody gets to know that. And then, as you want to use your money from there, and you want to use it in the onshore venue, then you got an F, um, F, let's see, F1, F2, hmm, um, F1 might be the pass-through trust to F2. And then there you can use money that you want to use to do things offshore. Even if I've got myself all cuckoo here, I'm I'm just going to say you're all, everybody's going to know everything. And if somebody needs help, they will assign help. And it will all be done lawfully. There are a lot of people that are, uh, mentally challenged that are going to be received money as in various ways and and it'll all be handled and uh with full knowledge and assistance and and then the f3 trust is the one that you can take from the f2 trust and pass it through on bring it back on the shore and then you can spend the money from there onshore. And there can be all kinds of extra trusts for specific purposes. Like you have a whole project where you want to build a whole community and you want to use your money to build a whole community in a place in another country or you here where there's no way that it won't get built unless you provide the funds for it to be built. And then you also have to design a way for helping people that live in that community to take on responsibilities to, you know, have work and to build, co-create with the whole community together and what you want. And I would just say you want to build it in a, uh, I want, I'm just going to say it'll be available, but spherical homes are the best. We aren't quite, you know, the, uh, you can, you can put a bubble, a physical, etheric physical bubble over the home that you have that's fine, it's just got lots of squares, but you live with the consciousness of that spherical bubble. So that there's no corners where things get stuck. Or get, forgotten or something and that's how that works and then as uh, you want to add and you've got enough land you want to add a a place where people can come and do community seminars build a spherical place and that's the deal Buckminster fully said something you know he he taught people how to build domes and he built the thing where they were triangles, triangular struck. Each of the dome smaller places on the whole dome were built in triangular spaces 
and it, it it had a way to create curvature so you could have you could have a spherical dome and of course it stops at the earth but you use that etheric physical consciousness that there's exactly the other half of the hemisphere that's below the earth and that is true about the great pyramid of Giza by the way there is the exact replica in the etheric physical of the pyramid below so it creates a diamond as so below plus you have the etheric physical spherical thing for the whole diamond above and below the earth. And the reason that he had these hemispheres built uh, with triangular pieces is because Bucky Fuller said, remember, triangles hold their shape. And that has to do with the Pythagorean theorem. The Pythagorean theorem is something you learn in geometry class, usually in second year high school, or sooner if there's more advanced awareness classes for people that are ready. And that's happening a lot more now. These, uh, these children since 96 that have been coming in. I mean, I've been reading more and more kids that got their PhDs and they're only 12. So, again, triangles hold their shape and, and you know, they're just masters coming in here and they got lickety split. And they're applying all these ABCs, lesson plans, to fifth dimensional living consciousness. And this is going to go fast. Faster than anything we've ever done. With this bunch of slave labor, capitalists wielding uh, rug rats, dirt balls. And those are polite terms. Nonetheless, this is done with peace and love. And send more peace and more love to the uglier ones. That's the way it works. And then freedom's holy flame is established. And spherical living is the deal. Okay, and spherical consciousness. Are existing debt credit cards null and void? What about new ones? Again, it's kind of a simulcast, but they're talking about a month where everything stays the same so that your old debit cards and credit cards will be the same and you can do everything the same for a month. In the meantime, you're going to get all kinds of new stuff. And, and then you'll, it'll take time to set it all up. And that's between you and your personal banker and the instructions in your package. And we'll go 
take our time, they'll slowly do a few things and do them well, and they'll all be fine. Okay, about learning education process. How do those with no electronic devices get the messages? (laughs) All of that will be also provided. And Cash talked about this. He said it would take about six months for everybody on earth to have the device hooked up to the new system. He said about six months. So we're talking about a year for the whole world to have all their packages and get it worked out. And Cash is talking about six months for all of that to be worked out. Once Ashtar or whomever has addressed us, when and how does the re-education process start? It's already been started. It started with harmonic convergence in 1987. And those of us that comprehend these fifth dimensional ways of living, we are going to be given the responsibility to be the teachers, teachers, teachers. And again, the galactics are elevating the energies faster than we can conceive. And it will go faster and faster and faster. And it will, you know, weed out negativity like nobody's business. So let's just work on where we are and know that it's all handled. How will we be presented with the material any idea of form. The same way I just said. Everybody will be taking their, making their appointments with their packages and going to uh, a banker all over the place. And that's the only way that's going to happen. When do the counselors show up? I'm not quite sure which counselors you're talking about. But uh, all of those trusted mentors will have counselors for you to learn how to set it up further. And you will be able to set that stuff with help. If that's what you're referring to. We are the ones we've been waiting for in terms of teaching people how to do this with further assistance from our And you understand there's millions of galactics on the ground. It's been, and it's been going on and there's people that have been building communities all over this planet in the millions and millions that we have no clue about. They're just being quiet and they're quietly helping all over the place and staying out of the hair of these critters who are too busy anyway thinking about me, 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 more money, more money, more money. What do the current homeless, the drug addicts, the people in jails, those in war-torn areas, the absolute poverty-stricken? Again, the common denominator of everybody having enough time, money, energy, love, and air to breathe, that is going to be done within a month. And that will heal the whole darn thing. And the galactics have it on their hands. 
and the ones that don't need to be here anymore will be taken to someplace else and they will get their homework, as Randy Rhodes talks about, and they will be going elsewhere to do their homework. They will not be coming back here. And love and the application thereof heals everyone. Everyone. Even the ones that have to do their homework elsewhere. What about the current? Oh, I said that. Okay. How are they received benefits? Money, food, attention, housing, education, and guidance. They're all going to be receiving, except for, as we were told, about 500,000. They'll be receiving too, but not here. They'll be transported elsewhere because they have a long list of different things to do. And again, um, all that same thing I just said will be uh, attended to in the same way for everybody. doesn't matter how war-torn, how poor, how in jail. Um, that's a good one. The King of Swords told us that, you know, 99.9% of all the people released from jail and will have healing centers for them to go and get reintegrated into society in a good way. And the really hardened ones, they'll probably be ones that will be going elsewhere. We are not going to have these kind of jails at all. There are examples on other countries all over the world where they don't treat people like they treat us. Uh, Michael Moore did a film where he he described all the different places in Europe where those places are rehabilitating the people. They're not doing what we're doing. We are the biggest dirt balls. The way we treat ourselves is crazy. How do we who and 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 then. Again, it'll only take a few days to set up a whole community of structures and spherical structures. You know, and, 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 and there will be a team of people that will go to a certain site. And, uh, I was going to say, um, Lawrence O'Donnell is an example of that during Christmas time. Uh, a, a team of people are are sent over to Africa and then the kids and, and and their parents they're all engaged in learning how to help it there's a whole group of kids that have been building desks for their schools they learn how from the team that goes over there and where did the money come from so far it's been coming from people making donations at Christmas time and Lawrence O'Donnell you know, manages that and, and all these places are, are having modern schools with desks, you know, coming out of the dark ages where these kids, you know, they don't have anything. They don't even have a structure. They just sit under a tree and somebody teaches them something, maybe. And they try to write. They get a notebook, but they try to write on the ground. This is, has nothing to do with them, has to do with the empire and their attitude. 
how do we, we're going to get an attitude adjustment. Let's say that's going to be real quick. How do we who are here to teach, lead, help in every way we can get organized to do this? I think that was self-explanatory what I said so far. There are millions and the galactics are on the ground to help. There are millions of ideas to help people. What about the process of collaboration? I just said that too. Galactics are going to be right in our face and we are going to be sitting in class is now in session. Galactic classrooms everywhere. And patience is a virtue with ourselves. Very much so. So I hope, Penny, you didn't call in. Hmm. Okay. Well, Rama will put something out. Uh, and Rama, you can come in here now so we can start. We got to do it now because it's late. It's really late. We got to start. What's on there that we're going to start with? What color is your soul? Okay. Or maybe should I finish? Should I finish? Gene Houston. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we'll finish with Gene Houston. And again, I was just saying, Rama, um, you want to give out your website where people can email you. Are you, you know, to ask questions about, and you always put on your website. On my email? I mean, as people can go to our website, it's, rainbowroundtable.net and on there the information of uh, Rama your email address coran999 at comcast.net coran999 at comcast.net and coran9999 at hotmail.com. Cora9999 at hotmail.com is another one. Yeah. And then, um, as people want to get these, uh, trust indentures, they can ask you to send it to them. Is that the deal? Yeah, I'll send them those that, that, yeah. That info about the Belize. The Belize one and the one, the other one's Cook's in the Cook, Cook Islands. Yeah. Singular Cook. Cook Islands. And then the islands. Okay, so that's good. Alright, so I will play the rest of, and everybody can get Penny's address too if they ask for it. Yeah. Uh, to you. Okay. All right, off we go into the wild yonder here. Let's finish with our sister, Meagle, there. Oh, where art thou? 
Um. Hmm. Momentito, everybody. I'm looking for it. Huh. Um. Oh, there it is. Oh, okay, I found it. Here we go. Huh. Hold on, everybody. I'm working on
creation of your body-mind system. I assume that you have a certain amount of exercise. I assume that you eat reasonably well. But I also make the greater assumption that you feel challenged, that you feel called to waking up. And as we all move in this great, great, great collective journey of waking up, we are weaving a new and unstoppable pattern of transformation. And I deeply, deeply believe that. Be not afraid, dear friends. You were made for these times. Ah, yes. Yes. I, I'm just inviting anyone who's feeling that call, that spiritual activism in them, anyone who's feeling that, that's what these conversations should be inspiring in you. Is that 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 level of activism and 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 to be a part of that spark inside of you is what connects humanity. It's what ignites flames. It, it's what makes movements. It's what creates movements. And and again, I mean, you're more than welcome to reach out to me as well through sharing the podcast. You can reach out to me on Facebook at, at Lisa Garhost. If this inspires you, if this moves you, just and yes, a shout out, and then we can see everybody doing that, which is so. Wonderful social proof around this time doesn't allow you to feel alone. It allows you to feel that you're connected to the spark that's coming out of not just you sitting in your your living room or listening to this alone. You are connecting to humanity by listening to this is active listening. This is activism <laughs> listening. So, um, Marcy, I'm going to ask you what is what is rising in you right now as we are speaking here and we collectively are the tides that are rising all boats. What is rising in you that contributes to this, um, this tide, this awakening, this, uh, you are, you're the one who started this conversation. <laughs> Actually, what really is arising is that, um, I, I, I that I feel so inspired when Jean speaks about this being the time and this being the, 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 the turnaround and the renaissance. And inside me I go, I know that. I just instinctively know that. And I think that those of us who are here, anyone who's drawn to this conversation is probably having the same kind of resonance. That, oh, yes. This is the time. And I think it's different for each one of us, whatever it is we're each drawn to. Um, you know, I, I, there's a, an exquisite proverb that you've heard me share a million times, Lisa, but that I really, I, I think it's appropriate for these times. It's a Chinese proverb, and it goes like this. It says, when there's light in the soul, there will be beauty in the person. When there's beauty in the person, there will be harmony in the house. When there's harmony in the house, there will be order in the nation. And when there is order in the nation, there will be peace in this world. And this is the time for each of us to have that inner, that peace, love, light in our own souls. And through that, to create a planet that really is what's being needed now, a planet of peace. Uh, yes. Thank you for that. It is, it is so beautiful and so true. I I do feel that we can have these conversations amidst the, the suffering that is happening right now, not to ignore it, but to understand that if we are moved, we must move into a certain amount of action in order to help. These people in Ukraine are going to need our help 
as this moves along. They are displaced. They are needing even the vibratory biofield of our affection, of our love, of our tentacles reaching out and saying, you know, what organization can we be a part of that's doing the best work? And we will touch them with our intentions, and we will. And we'll find a way. And just, you know, we just need a little bit more time, and we'll find a way to be able to touch back. When you say, Gene, return of the avatars, you're not just talking about those that have been preaching from the mountaintop forever. You're talking about every one of us, right? Absolutely. We are already the avatars of the living cosmos in China. We contain so much. In my studies of so many thousands of people around the world, I have been so struck by the depth, dimensionality, and beauty of what most everyone contains, believe it or not. Once you get beneath the surface crust of consciousness and old dying cultures, you know, we are born a new one every day with a great, great rising tide of goodness, clarity, and a willingness to go the length together to make a better self and a better world. These are the times, and we are the people. And you told us such a beautiful story in our um, mastermind the other day about when you were a little girl, and it was post-war, and you had done little things like strung together wrappers of of, um, of chewing gum, and you made these necklaces. Gin. Your, gin. What was it? It was tin. It was tin around the wrappers. Yeah. And there was a sense of optimism then that you embodied. And, and even though there were those that were coming back from the war that were, you know, it was a very, very difficult time. But for you, you somehow found the possibility in all of it. Would you mind sharing that story with us again? Well, the story was very simple. It was that I think you asked, um, what was it like in World War II? What was it like for children? Well, we gathered together. We sang songs. We chewed gum, gum like that so to make great big wads of, of the gin foil. We, we planted victory gardens, but you're telling, you know how sometimes things that happens in one painting, what is like, it, re, it repeats itself many years later in the other. About, I forgot, 10, 12, 15 years ago, the same story happened. I was in Africa and I was being shot at by child soldiers, little kids with these guns. And they were not very good shots, and I had I dove in behind trees and into a trench, and finally they gave up, except for one, I guess he was about 10-year-old soldier, and he kept shooting at me, and I kept dodging. And then I had an idea, and I remembered my life as a child in the 1940s, chewing up with gum, and it happened that I had a packet of gum in my pocket, and I pulled it out. He just stopped shooting at me. I think he ran out of bullets, and I'm saying. So I pulled out the, the gum, and I walked out, and I climbed out of the trench, and I walked over to him, and I showed him the gum. And I pretended I was chewing it, as soon as it was, and I gave it to him. He was so shocked. He began chewing. The two of us just there chewing together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spoke. Parts of his language, in this case it was actually French, it was French, Africa. And um, 
I asked him about his life. You were chilling away. He told me about his life. I said, is this what you want to keep on doing? Shooting at people like me? No. What do you want? He said, I want to go to school. He said, okay. I can probably help you with that. Can you go with me and we'll try to start it happening? Sure. And we continue to talk about his life and my life to the degree that it was understandable to him. And I arranged for him to go to school and get out of the child military to become assistance at least 14, 15 years ago. And he's now quite a young man. And he's doing beautiful things for children in his parts of Africa. So there's my gun story. I, you know, that story is a story of possibility. It's a story of faith in humanity. Yes. It's a story of, of hope. And more than hope, it's about the human capacity to compassionately care enough to get themselves out of the way and truly reach out to help one human being. All of us can do that. All of us have done that. All of us can do that. And and it's that one human being that gets the help of you that goes on to help who knows how many other people. And it doesn't, you don't need to. It is a, a stick of gum. <laughs> All you can help. Or it's equivalent there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is beautiful. I mean, absolutely beautiful. And I mean, we have all heard from, you know, that the, I do story coaching, and one of my favorite women is a woman who had a Mrs. Wilson. And Mrs. Wilson helped her when she was totally completely displaced as a child, had difficulties learning and getting to know the other kids. And Mrs. Wilson took her under her wing. And fast forward 20 years, she winds up being a teacher. And she's in the teaching profession getting discouraged by the lack of ability to make an impact on her children that she teaches five and six grade, fifth and six. And she was discouraged by the administration and the limitations and she tried to get up when she was on the board and she was really discouraged and I spoke with her and we talked about Mrs. Wilson and how Mrs. Wilson touched her so deeply and shifted and changed completely who she was and she now channels her for Mrs. Wilson and she created this whole keys of learning for her students and now they all have this whole game around the keys for learning that's now been adopted by the, by the archdiocese and it's, it's that one person that we found that inspired us as a child anywhere in our lifetime. There was one person. If you can remember that one person and reignite that person and channel your inner mentor, your inner friend, your inner someone that can help you get through this sense of hopelessness or this sense of pain and find out ways that you can actually be of service and help. Mm-hmm. But it helps to see the capacity of the human being first. Mm-hmm. And that is what both of you do, is you awaken that capacity in, in human beings. And um, we have just a few minutes here, and I 
actually only ten, ten minutes. And so I, I so appreciate what you both contributed. I'd like to add an experience to our audience here to allow anyone listening, anyone participating to share what it feels like to, to be an expanded human. Gina, I'm going to start with you and, and then Marcy, I'm going to ask of you as well. Just a, a, a way that we can help this experience bring it home. Have it be real of expansion into this shift, into this shift that you're talking about. To cleanse all of you out there, I want you to think of two people that you know that you would like to contact with the shift. And from your heart, send a connection of love to these two people or affirmation. Yes, you are there. I love you. And now, that happens very rapidly in this algorithm of love. <laughs> and I'll ask the two, each one of the two, just to send this great lovingness and connection to two others, people that you know. And I ask them to send to two others. And then to two others and two others and two others and two others. And before you know it, even the algorithm of connection and love it's probably pretty true that just about every person on this earth is connected. And now would you send to a particular animal that you know and ask this animal to send their heartfulness to two others. Animals, two others, two others, two others, two others, two others. And now with the algorithm of love, every sentient creature this earth is now connected. And now ask our planet, our beloved planet Earth, to send this love and deep connection and unity to two other planets in this universe. And they to two others. And they to two others, two others, two others, two others. And it goes so rapidly that every planet in the noble universe is connected. And now I'm going to ask the planets to send to two suns, S-U-N, suns. And these two suns to two other suns, two suns, two suns, two suns, two suns. And with the algorithm of every planet in our universe is connected. And now would you ask your heart, the one great living, loving reality, whether you call it God or being or the cosmos, and from your heart, through all these other connections, with the great oneness of God and cosmos, the great unity and beloved of all being. And now from the beloved of all being, the great God, the great oneness, the great spirit, back through all these connections that you've made to your heart. And from your heart, through all the connections, to the great oneness, the great godliness, the great oneness, the great love, back and forth, so that everything, everyone, all aspects of reality are interconnected and are part of the great ones. As it was in the beginning, now and ever shall be, 
and eternity, the great one is the great love without end. That is so beautiful. Talk about experiencing the shift. <laughs> and I love Serafina in the background. You and your puppy is down there. <laughs> Snoring away, having a wonderful snoot. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Gene. Thank you so much. And yes, Marcy, we just, I'm sorry, we just have a few more minutes left. Can you just give us your parting words of, of expand, experiencing this shift? Yeah, so I would just say if everyone right now would just put their hand on their heart, feel the feeling, memorize this feeling in your body that we got from that experience with Gene, and feel your gratitude for this conversation. I feel so much gratitude for this conversation, and let this just land in our bodies. Let's savor it. That's the way we create new brain chemistries, through savoring the experience that we've just had. So I would just say, I feel full of gratitude. I feel gratitude for you, Jean, for your amazing awakening wisdom. I feel gratitude for you, Lisa, for your brilliance and for bringing this to everybody. And I feel gratitude to everybody who's listening because I know we feel that we are all in this together. And um, may this make sure that you see much and much gratitude to Yes, my heart is full as well, and I am so grateful for you, both of you women, who have so much to contribute, and it, it's just unending in your souls. So thank you for that fire and for sharing that with us, with with the world. Thank you so much, and until next time, I will invite everyone to please stay aware. Thank you. Okay, Rama, share what we're going to play next real quick. Um, this is uh, Terrence McKenna, DMT Pharmawaska, Heroic Dosing, Utopianism, and the Ethnogen New Age with Abby Martin and I believe her husband, Robbie Martin. Okay, I'll repeat it real quick. Terrence McKenna, it's episode three. At DMT Pharmahouska, Heroic Dosing, Utopianism, and the Ethiogen New Age. I never thought I became my dog, but one time I took a high dose of shrooms and my dog was next to me and I saw her myself and everything else as separate manifestations of the same thing I started with my dog and broadened out alright let's do it Rama this is 2 hours and 32 minutes we'll get as far as we can Okay, here we go This is Abby Martin. This is a disclaimer to say that psychedelic drugs do not universally work the same for everybody. They can cause psychosis at high enough doses, and they can be life-changing in ways that are not always intended or desired. Psychedelics should be used responsibly and with extreme caution. 
think you're going to spend a, a very long involved with these things at a deep level without scaring your socks off uh, eventually. Well, one of the great things about these psychedelic teachers is that they are so gentle with beginners. And then the flip side of that coin is they're so unforgiving with veterans. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I mean, I have hard trips often. And the way I explain it to myself is, you know, I pretty much accept Rupert Sheldrake's notion of the morphogenetic field and uh, uh, feel like the psychedelics amplify the morphogenetic field of the totality and you know why shouldn't I have difficult trips the totality is in such a weird state of turmoil I mean, you couldn't pay me to take five grams of mushrooms in the present circumstances <laughs> simply because I can feel the riptides in the historical dimension just churning everything into white water I mean I stay out of the water so Robbie, we're going to start off this episode by picking up where we left off talking about the underground rave scene, how the scene harnessed so much of the psychedelic explosion in the 90s. It is really hard to wrap your mind around these merry little elves in real life who had these uh, satchels full of DMT crystals and uh-huh. pure grade, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. compounds like derivatives of LSD and MDMA and that that is exactly what was happening Robbie and you were right up in there and I have many stories of you know how fucking crazy this time was just as a bystander watching you enter this world um, and really use it as the foundation of a lot of you know a jumping off point for a lot of my artistic exploration a lot of my curiosity oh. with psychedelics I thank you for God only knows how fucking generic I would be if I didn't what? have your incredible influence of music, art, and culture, oh, despite where I was living. Oh, that's, <laughs> a, that's so flattering. That's nice. It's nice completely things. true. Well, it's completely true, Robbie. I mean, I think one of the, the interesting things for me approaching all this is that I was on the internet, you know, very hardcore into the internet. I wasn't a hacker. I wasn't like into that kind of stuff. I wasn't a programmer, but I was just into finding out stuff online, like obscure shit, music, bands, you know, electronic musicians. So I felt like I sort of had a, I was ahead of the curve for most other people my age in that regard. And I do think, I don't think people realize who are like really into psychedelic drugs that they would, there were some obvious tells they were giving off. Like you, you know, I started randomly running into people. I'd be like, that dude grows mushrooms or, I thought I was like a badass researching, you know, psychedelic cacti on the internet, knowing where to get like San Pedro cactus, which is the legal, you know, still legal uh, mescaline containing cactus uh, other than peyote, which is illegal in the United States now. Uh, I remember driving around with my friend. And I think this was sometime around like 2000 or 1999. And I drove by a guy's house. This 
suburbs that had a San Pedro forest in his backyard that was like 20 feet tall, like hundreds of towering San Pedro. So I was like, hmm. I was like, I'm just going to randomly knock on this guy's door and say, I really like admire your cactus. Like, can you tell me a little bit about them? Sort of play dumb. And as soon as he, I mentioned the cactus, he actually thought I was a fed. And he got like super paranoid and started like sort of believing. I was like, no, no, no. I just read a lot about this stuff. I recognize the cactus. Could tell you probably are not just into the, you know, the looks of it that you might know what it is. And he's like, he's like, you're the only person who's ever driven by my house in the 30 years I've lived here who's ever said anything about what those cactus are. Holy shit. And then he's like, come into my yard. So he brings in his backyard and in the middle of this towering forest of San Pedro cactuses, he has Poppies. Not poppies. Something that was more exciting to me at the time because I had never seen peyote. Yeah, I only yeah, seen yeah. pictures of it. Oh, So he has shit. what looked like about five or six trunks of San Pedro, like kind of tied together with a rope and all spliced at about five feet off the ground or four feet off the ground. And on top of this, maybe, you know, a large dinner plate type size he had the biggest, like, bulb of peyote I've ever seen, like, even in pictures. Like, it looked like an immaculate museum-quality piece of, like, a peyote cactus. It was, like, the size of, like, a giant contest-winning pumpkin. It was crazy. I just didn't even know. So the first time I'd ever seen peyote, which was already shocking, from a total stranger bringing me to his backyard, it's just, like, enormous size. Like, I didn't even know it existed like this. Being able to know a little bit about you know, more than the average person about psychedelics and plant, psychedelic plants. It was almost like there's like this secret world in the yeah. Bay Area that, that I started feeling like I could start seeing. And that oh. was sort of like vindicated me because I'm like, damn, this guy really, he's one of these dudes who's secret, living this double life of like really into fucking mescaline. Like how many other people like that are there who are by themselves in the middle of the suburbs with like a mescaline factory? And it didn't even seem like he was dealing it. It just seemed like it was his hobby. Like it was a passion of his. So it was just very fascinating. Well, and it shows you how open the community was in an underground way, where it was like you could build connections and trust with people just by simply knowing something like yeah. that. That for the 30 years that that guy lived there, no one had ever said anything about this. And that because you did, he was like, come in, let me like show off. Yeah. Finally. You know, in a way, it was, like, very exciting, probably, and a proud moment for him. Like, oh, finally, someone fucking understands. But at the same time, I feel like I wonder if it's different now. Like, I wonder if people actually do drive around, try to scour for San Pedro and, like, cut it and, you know, seal it and shit because it's just so different now. Um, It was just such a special place in history that you were able to, like, experience this because I just feel like it's completely different now. Yeah, and it's and it was really shocking to me how quickly I discovered after getting interested in psychedelics and getting more gravitated towards more obscure psychedelics and you know DMT was legendary already to me when I was reading stories about it. I hadn't even done acid or mushrooms at this point yet. I was like just getting as much knowledge as I could about the scene, who the you know influencers were, who was the ones with the most interesting ideas and I just randomly read one day, and I, I don't remember where it was, a psychedelic article somewhere saying that, like, Alexander Shulgin and his farm in Pleasant Hill, California, there was a street in Pleasant Hill called Shulgin Drive, like, on what the map. The hell? I didn't realize that for 
parts of my life that I had driven back and forth by this street that literally Alexander Shulgin lived on and he still lived on. Like it was just, it felt really special. I'm like, wow, I'm really actually like in the center of all this right now. I just didn't realize it. At the time, like Shulgin seemed relatively obscure. Like even though you read about him as this big influential guy online, I didn't really know where to go see him talk or anything. Before I forget, was this around the time that I'm assuming you didn't buy peyote from the guy that you talked to. Yeah. But I do remember <laughs> you, uh, I do remember going to your house once and seeing you trying to get through several blender sized, uh, doses of the peyote cactus just fucking blended up. Yeah. And you were trying to choke your way through drinking several of these. And I couldn't um, even drink one I don't think cup. that you actually made it. <laughs> oh no, it was, it was awful. I mean, imagine like bitter. <laughs> the most bitter vegetable, like pepper flavor, that's not good. Like, cause pepper, sometimes bitter peppers have like a good flavor. But imagine like one that's not good, that doesn't have a good flavor, that's just a bitter, spicy pepper, not even just bitter, but like just gross. And then mu- mixed with just pure mucus. Oh, because this is what a cactus no. does when you idiotically try to blend the entire thing in a blender. So to answer your question, I was trying to extract mescaline. From a San Pedro cactus, a legally, you know, obtainable cactus you can get. And you, you used to be able to get them at Home Depot. Very commonly seen. There's a lot of columnar cactus that looks similar. Like you'd almost mix up something that's not San Pedro for San Pedro. But the way to tell something in San Pedro is it usually has a certain amount of ridges and the, the thorns are very short. Sometimes you, it doesn't even poke you when you rub up against it. It's like, it's kind of a non-dangerous feeling cactus compared to some other ones. Mm-hmm. Basically, I learned later that you're supposed to extract the core, which is like a whole toilet paper roll size of like nothing, like just gunk. You extract that. You also remove the outer layer of the skin of the cactus because that's almost like a weird protective membrane. It's like plastic almost. You get rid of that. Then you dethorn it. And then you basically just want to try to carve out the most green part of the inner skin. And that's where all the mescaline is. So that what you're left with is basically like one tenth of the amount of cactus. <laughs> so yeah, trying to blend. Don't don't do that at home if you're trying to consume mescaline from San Pedro as a blended entire cactus. The other method that was equally as gross, but you drink a lot less, was boiling it down in a very slow low low boil. So you do the blending method like you're talking about, and then you leave it over like a you know pot with water for like an hour until it's just like a total sludge and then you just keep boiling that down, boiling it down until you have just like a couple shot glasses of like San Pedro wheatgrass shots and they're like undrinkable. I mean, unless you're like one of those people who can just drink anything, like I was like instant gag reflex. (laughs) I was still able to get some down when I effectively did it and I just remember being very nauseous during the trip. Like the nausea that hit me when I gagged it just never left. Like from the moment I felt that mm-hmm. initial gag to like watching like, like people's faces start turning purple and stuff. It was pretty mild as far as I've heard other mescaline trips go, but it was like, I was nauseous the entire time. So I probably just yeah. never do it again. Even if I had the opportunity to like pure mescaline, you know, if somebody handed it to me. I mean, I only, I've only done mescaline once and it was just snorting a couple lines of it. And it was like really <laughs> intense. Um, I cannot, Imagine doing what you did. I, I have 
pretty strong gag reflex too. It's really hard for me to even drink hard alcohol. Like I can't. And yeah, I mean that that's just nuts that you tried you tried two different ways that sound fucking horrible to try this shit. Jesus Christ, man. Um but let's get into Terrence McKenna because he's a really important figure in this story. As you mentioned in the last episode, Terrence McKenna was kind of like the intellectual leader of this rave culture movement. He says, I'm a child of the 60s, born in 46, went to Berkeley as a freshman in 65, did the India circuit, did the LSD circuit, went to South America. And then he talks about all the books he wrote. He co-wrote a book with his brother after going to South America to search for mind-altering substances where they just took a shitload of ayahuasca and mushrooms. And this was in 76 that he wrote a book with his brother about tryptamines. Um, and it was under a pseudonym because this was when everything was criminalized. And so it's just crazy to think that you would write a book talking about how to harvest, grow mushrooms, and then just publish it. Yeah. An illegal, like encouraging to cultivate an illegal drug that could put you in prison for the rest of your life. And you're writing and fucking publishing a book about this under a pseudonym. It's pretty goddamn crazy, you know? And I mean, it's really funny too, when you look at like, you know, he's another child of the sixties and, and was another child of this era in the Bay area where he went to Berkeley. Check this out. He graduated with degrees in ecology and shamanism. Like how fucking hilarious was this time that you can go to Berkeley and study shamanism? <laughs> wow. And then he goes back and then he goes back and get his master's in the chemistry of ayahuasca. Like, like sign me up, dude. Why the fuck did I go to school for political science? Like could have been studying shamanism and fucking the chemistry of ayahuasca. Like it's just hilarious fields to be studying at an Ivy League university like this. So anyway, back to his bio. Um, he just talks about how he's kind of this gadfly philosopher, how he w really tried to be a part of the culture while he studied the culture and while he wrote about the culture. And so he does say, like, I've had a pretty unique career as this commentator because I was right in the thick of it. You know, I'm there. I'm part of the rave recordings. I'm part of all of this experience. I mean, I'm sure there was some some ego involved, but it was really like it really lacked any sort of pretentious quality. You know, the fact that he was just right there, he was accessible, he was willing to work with all these electronic artists and be visible, be this person who was willing to talk to anyone. Um, I'm sure if he was around today, he would probably be like super accessible, like doing interviews all the time. I mean, he was just that kind of guy. And he had a lot to fucking Very say. Very down to earth. <laughs> if you listen to him and didn't know anything about him being like a psychedelic culture figure, or this kind of new age philosopher, you would almost just think he sounds like a very friendly kindergarten teacher. He has this affect to him where he just sounds very warm, friendly. He almost like brings a smile to your face, like his way of speaking. Like it's his, so I could see, you know, not just from being involved in the psychedelic scene and being such an influential figure, just his personality and his charisma kind of gained him this cult-like following. And, you know, it is kind of cringy to watch sometimes, like, videos of his talks where you could see people in the audience. And just, it, it does feel kind of culty. You know, I don't know anything about him taking advantage of having that cult status. Like, he never tried to pull any, like, Keith Raniere stuff, as far as I know. But, like, he definitely was, like, in this very unique place in culture where 
he was very revered and very ahead of the curve. I mean, in his first book, I didn't even realize that his first book about DMT or that we talked about DMT came out in 1975. He tells the story about how him and Dennis went down to the Amazon after their mom died from cancer in 1970 in search of a plant preparation containing DMT, which was kind of like an ayahuasca thing that they had heard about. Mm-hmm. And instead of stumbling upon this, they had accidentally come across a field of psilocybin mushrooms, just totally by happenstance. Mm-hmm. And this became the focus of their, I guess, their studies from that point on. So to think someone was, you know, in 1970 going down to the Amazon to try to find DMT, that's pretty fucking ahead of his time. I mean, William Burroughs wrote about doing that. There's not very many people who were that dedicated to these plant hallucinogens who would do this. Exactly. But it's funny, too, because it's like as brave and as cutting edge and like very ahead of his time as he was, it just took him into some super loony territory when it comes to like reading about his own experiences like him and his brother apparently tried to bond a psychedelic compound called harming, which is one of the components in ayahuasca that activates DMT. It is a psychedelic on its own as well. They tried to bond it with their own neural DNA using a specific set of vocal techniques. They hypothesized this is from Wikipedia. They hypothesized this would give them access to the collective memory of the human species and would manifest the alchemist philosopher stone which they viewed as a hyperdimensional union of spirit and matter. So, I don't know. I mean, that's that's all I wanted to say for now about it. Yeah, I mean, it makes more sense when you realize that he was really going to that far-out territory when you understand what he thought all of this was. Um, that he actually thought that DMT and psilocybin were messages from an alien civilization. Yeah. Like quite literally, it was it was being encoded through the spores of the mushrooms given to us by another like universe, like another plane of reality that he called the quote unquote overmind. He was open to the notion that psychedelics could be transdimensional travel. I mean, this shit is very appealing. Very very appealing. No, well, of course, and anyone who's taken DMT knows that this. Like, I could totally see this. I mean, it is fucking nuts. That he, I mean, he, he said himself, he was like, DMT sends you to a parallel dimension where you encounter higher dimensional entities that he called ancestors or spirits of the earth. Um, and, and it really does feel like an ecology of souls. I mean, even a lower dose where you just become the kaleidoscope, there is this dissolution with your ego that you do feel like you're just in a completely other fucking reality it's completely incomparable at least for me to mushrooms or acid exactly i mean but for him he does think that psilocybin was a similar thing but that dmt just blew the gateway and wide open. to think someone like him i mean we have to imagine for a second you and me probably wouldn't consider taking more than an eighth or maybe a little bit more than that of mushrooms terence mckenna i'm sure he's taking some heroic doses of mushrooms. So I think at a certain level of, if you're taking a shit ton of mushrooms and just out of your mind on acid, I I do think it can get to a DMT level of feeling like that breaking Mm -hmm. through to a parallel dimension where you actually feel like you're encountering like entities. I haven't had those experiences except for like drugs like DMT or salvia, 
but it is really fascinating. It's like, I think even people who haven't done DMT, who have still had very strong trips in general on other drugs, there is something unique about DMT that it, it does seem to access that space for a lot of people who take it for their very first time. They instantly go to a place and the way Terrence McKenna describes it is very resonant from my own experience where he almost describes it as like, there's these entities that are waiting for you on the other side for your arrival in excitement. And when you come through, there's a cheer. That was what my first DMT experience felt like. I was being sent into this other dimension, like to some crowd of, I don't know, aliens. I don't know how, how you would describe them, but entities that were extremely excited to see me. I mean, yeah, you could go out of your mind on mushrooms and have all these kinds of experiences, but it, it does feel like you're being blasted into another dimension, like in contact, you know, like with Jody Foster. It literally, it literally does. Let's, let's play that clip from him right now about DMT. The problem with DMT is its incredible power that only the most intrepid can form any coherent impression whatsoever of what's going on if it's a strong trip. I mean, there are sub-threshold trips where you just graze the tummy of the beast, and then people come down with various models of archetypal closure with the cosmic carnival. That's the archetype of DMT, is the cosmic circus. And, and, but once you, if you would actually get a strong hit of it, which is in no way dangerous, but simply a true boundary dissolving hit, it's into some place, it's almost like, well, I once said, you know, the, there's danger of death by astonishment. <laughs> and, and I think that's true. That's the major danger is death by astonishment. Because you just get in there and you say, my God, what does this say about the archetypes? There is no archetype for this, not in the painting of the Bushman, not in the ecstasies of Hildegard von Bingen, not in the ravings of Mandayan ecstatics. The human spiritual experience never got this deep, never tore open this doorway. And yet what? It's a long toke away for an ordinary human being. How could something that titanic and beautiful and cosmic and alien be kept secret when what we do is we seek in all corners in all times and places for the bizarre the outre, the unthinkable we're always turning over rocks secret teachings you know ancient cities buried ruins lost tribes you name it well then here is this thing which is like the absolute quintessence of what all those things are are aiming for you know more stunning than the rise of Atlantis from the Atlantic seaboard is a toke of the more appalling than the, arise, the arrival of alien star fleets in the skies of our planet. And yet, it's here. It's here. And I don't often invoke it. I mean, for me to talk about it is to invoke it because it's weird to talk about it because it reminds me that we don't know what we're doing at all. That we sit in rooms discussing all this stuff and, and you know, a war rages, ignorant armies clash by night, that whole thing. But, you know, this 
extraordinarily powerful thing, the depth of which, the measure of which is so hard to take, lies very near. On the other side, as, as you break through, there's a cheer. There's a, 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 a whole bunch of entities waiting on the other side. And they, you know that Pink Floyd song, The Gnomes Have Learned a New Way to Say Hooray? Well, it's that place. It's those gnomes. And you burst into this space. And, um, and they're saying, how wonderful that you're here. You come so rarely. We're so delighted to see you. And the, one of the things about the MT that's really puzzling is, in a sense, it doesn't affect your mind. And there are, there are many of them, and they come pounding toward you, and they will stop in front of you and vibrate, but then they do a very disconcerting thing, which is they jump into your body. They jump into your body, and then they jump back out again. And the whole thing is going on in this very high-speed mode, where you're being presented with thousands of details per second and you can't get a hold on, you say, you know, my God, what's happening? And these things are saying, don't abandon yourself to amazement, which is exactly what you want to do. You just want to go nuts with how crazy this is. They say, don't do that. Don't do that. Pay attention. Pay attention to what we're doing. Well, what are they doing? Well, what they're doing is they're making objects with their voices. They're singing structures into existence. These things are, and what they will do is they'll come toward you, and then, and you have to understand, they don't have arms, so we're kind of downloading this into a lower dimension to even describe it. But what they do is they offer things to you. Say, look at this. Look at this, and as your attention goes toward these objects, you realize that what you're being shown is impossible. It's impossible. It's not simply intricate, beautiful, and hard to manufacture. It's impossible to make these things. The nearest analogy would be to the Fabergé eggs or something like that. But these things are like the toys that are scattered around the nursery inside a UFO or something. Yeah, so Robbie, it, it's so apt calling this a cosmic circus. Yes. You know, it's so huge, so alien. Like he says, how has this been kept secret? And he goes into the machine elves a lot in, in different ways, and it, it gets really funny because he, like anthropomorphizes these creatures and like talks about how um silly they are and how like if you're smart if you're an intelligent person then you can like do riddles with them the way they relate to intelligence is they set you riddles elves are about language if you're stupid they make you sleep for a hundred years at the center of their hills and don't let you go back. If you can riddle their riddle and riddle in return, then they think you're a fine fellow and they let you crawl back to the pub or whatever it is. So there is this 
there, the word that I use to describe the, my feeling about the DMT space is it's zany. It's like, it's like a coyote cartoon or a Marx Brothers film. It's a land of explosions and falling anvils. And yet it's all for fun. But you have the feeling that these guys play so rough that their idea of fun might also include the possibility of handing you four sticks of dynamite on a short fuse just because it would be so amusing to do that. So it's uh, it's got a funny emotional vibe to it. It's lots of fun, but you really want to be on your toes. If you can solve the riddle, they'll like let you in. And he was like, but if you can't stand it, you won't remember it. I mean, that's the thing with these kinds of drugs. It's like, it's such a otherworldly experience where time essentially freezes or feels infinite. Like either way, however you want to describe it, that it's like the memory is so specific to that moment that you really only are able to bring back little shards of it. Realistically speaking, like I like, I like to pretend that I can remember vividly my DMT mm-hmm. trip from beginning to end, but I have just these snapshots and I don't know how much of my own memory is actually faded or how much of that is actually what I experienced. I have to be in that state. There really is no way to convey it to someone with words. I mean, right. Human communication is so limiting that there's no way to explain this experience to someone unless they have it for themselves. And that, that's just the way it is. It's like you can try. I mean, he did the best job. I think at trying to articulate what this is, but like I can't. So why even try? We both tried to before, you know, and I've described it very differently when I've tried different times, um, even on this, the, our own podcast, uh, years apart. Terrence McKenna, you know, he's saying, how has this been kept secret? It's so powerful. He knew the DMT was somehow very unique, even compared to all these other powerful psychedelic drugs. But what he did, in essence, was he let out the secret. I mean, he wrote more vividly, more excitedly, more just about, he made DMT the centerpiece. And that, I think, really catapulted DMT to the level of how I heard of it, for example. How probably Joe Rogan heard of it, how people like Duncan Trussell heard of it. And ayahuasca, which is a oral traditional brew that contains DMT and other psychoactive plants. Some of those plants are in there to activate the DMT, which is very kind of fascinating of itself that this brew or concoction has existed for thousands of years and people learned how to activate a drug that is not normally active in the stomach. If you just drink a DMT containing plant, chances are you won't feel anything. But if you combine it with what's considered an MAOI inhibitor psychoactive, you will, the DMT will activate. So ayahuasca is actually a concoction of a drug that activates the DMT and the DMT itself. And in these traditional brews, it is a lot of the time harmaline in the form of like a type of vine that's usually found in like the Amazonian jungle. And even sometimes they actually add deliriums, like we were talking about in the last episode, fever-inducing hallucinogens like belladonna-style plants to the brew. So like if you get if you find like a real ayahuasca shaman who's like following a really old recipe, you're not even really supposed to ask what's in it. It's like a secret thing that's been passed down. 
these like ayahuasca tours and things now, it's probably a very clean, very specific version of ayahuasca using a very specific plant. And DMT was also used um, in the form of like snuff, where there are natives um, and different uh, tribes in the Amazon jungle that would actually get high off of certain kinds of root bark by blowing it into each other's nose through like a giant straw. And they would call this like a snuff yopo, which actually contains DMTs. So snorting some kind of rough extract of DMT has already been around, you know, forever. So again, this is something that was not discovered by white Western civilization. It goes back for, we don't know how long. I mean, it could go back all the mm-hmm. way to very ancient history. No, it's super interesting. And, um, it is so amazing now the ayahuasca tourism industry and kind of the colonizing aspect of, or the imposition, I guess, of like Westerners in these indigenous areas to like do this kind of stuff and just how bizarre it is. Like, it's very strange. We're going to get into that in the next episode. But, um, you know, McKenna is such a quirky and fascinating character. Like, I mean, just his voice, as you just heard. I mean, it's he's very easy to listen to. You know, he's one of those guys that has this kind of stream of consciousness way of talking that I could totally see how he could be. He could have become a cult leader very easily. And I'm sure he did have a cult following, but he didn't really abuse that. Um, you know, he kind of was a loner. He was a hermit, lived a lot of his life just out in the wilderness, Um you know, didn't have like followers at a commune that he like. Uh, he lived on a on a volcano um, on, on the big island yeah, in Hawaii, right? Um, the last few years of his life, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it, it's interesting. His voice is also like this kind of soothing, almost like buzzing, robotic kind of voice, kind of like I would imagine the machine elves having <laughs> if they could speak. Like literally, like when you reach that peak, the trip and interact with these machine elves it like seems like Terrence McKenna's voice would just like naturally be emanating yeah like his voice sounds psychedelic that's it's yeah no seriously I don't know if he cultivated that on purpose or what he's channeling but (laughs) no there is something mesmerizing (laughs) about his voice so I would say it's respectable that he didn't you know actually have a real cult you know commune around him because I think he probably could have easily pulled one off just with his voice alone oh my god of course thing that we do anticipates this deeper fall inward into the dream. The dream is what awaits us at the end of history. The dream, and you can call it hyperspace or cyberspace or the trans-death realm, but what it really is, is it's a going into the dream. And what is the dream? Well, the dream is a place where the laws are set by the imagination. The imagination is God in the dream. And if there is a way for us to mirror our highest aspirations, in other words, to inculcate the God image in ourselves, then it's by becoming the masters of our dream and then creating through drugs, technology, magic, who cares, the details come later, creating a way to share that so that we each then are a god 
with an open office doorway to all the other gods who wander through looking at the, the, the cosmogonies that we produce as art. That's why his spoken word and lectures and stuff and also just, you know, he, he showed up at a lot of these raves and did like spoken word real time. But that's why you hear a lot of his talks and speech in these experimental albums during that time. In fact, when I first saw Terrence McKenna and heard his voice, I realized that I had heard his voice many times before at raves, at different dance parties in different experimental songs so it makes sense play a clip from um probably his most well-known uh piece of his music release that he did with a a group called space time continuum um they're an english group but they they relocated to the bay area and they used to do like a lot of chill room uh type shows kind of like in the genre of the music of like the orb from the time period and in 93 Space Time Continuum and Terrence McKenna released an album called Alien Dreamtime. The opening song is Time Wave Zero. The end state of human history, a return to the archaic mode, a rediscovery of the orgiastic freedom of the African grasslands of 20,000 years ago, a techno escape forward into a future that looks more like the past than the future. Because materialism, consumerism, product fetishism, all of these things will be eliminated and technology will become nanotechnology and disappear from our physical presence. If, if we have the dream, if we allow the wave of novelty to propel us toward the creativity that is inimical to the human condition, this is what we're talking about here. Psychedelics as a catalyst to the human imagination. Psychedelics as a catalyst for language. Because what cannot be said cannot be created by the community. So what we need then is the forced evolution of language. And the way to do that is to go back to the agents that created language in the very first place. And that means the psychedelic plants, the Gaian logos, and the mysterious beckoning extra... It does talk about the time wave zero theory and you know, the archaic revival. Um, I don't know if it talks about the stoned ape theory, but why don't you go into some of those theories that he had that have sort of... I mean, especially the stoned ape theory, if that's inspired a lot of people still. I mean, it inspires me. Um, and Food of the Gods was a very transformative book for me. Me as well. McKenna, before I get into the stoned ape theory, because it's a very important one, um, he did popularize the notion of taking a hero's dose, which is five grams of dried psilocybin mushrooms taken alone on an empty stomach in silent darkness with your eyes closed. And, and according to him, that's the only way someone could experience this kind of visionary experience that he recommends believing that the power of the mushroom can like slay whatever this message is that, that resonates from your inner self that can tap into this collective consciousness. But at the same time, the reason that I really appreciate him one of the many reasons that i really appreciate him is because he also individualizes the experience and he talks about how 
our minds are very important. Like the, it, like we need to personalize the trip. Like we are the ones experiencing this and, and it's a very authentic, original thing. And so he, he does have this incredible lecture about just like the imagination and how we need to appreciate both the individuality of it as well as like the collective. And it's just a cool, cool way to, to approach it because I feel like a lot of psychedelic discussion and like, um, things that arise from it is like, Oh, it's not about you. You know, you tap into something that's bigger than you, which, which we do. But at the same time, it kind of takes away from the fact that you are having this profound, potentially life altering experience. And what does that mean for you and carrying that forward? So anyway, it's just a really interesting way that he synthesizes all of this. I think I mentioned before that, you know, he thinks that psilocybin mushrooms are like of an alien species of an, of a higher intelligence. And this may sound totally nuts to someone, but actually when you look at how life originated on this planet, it did, it, there is a theory that is very credible and, and corroborated by many scientists that, um, that it did come from space, right? That the, that the impetus, that genesis of life was traveled by like something crashing into the earth and bringing it here. And, um, and he talks about that. He, he says in, in an interview with scientific American, someone confronts him about this and they're like, do you really think that mushrooms are like an alien species? And he's like, look, he's like mushroom spores can survive the cold of outer space. <laughs> in fact, mushroom cultivators here on earth store the spores in liquid Jesus nitrogen. Christ. So he's like, look, he's like, look, if someone's going to design a bioinformational package, a spore is how you would That's go. Amazing. Millions of them pushed around by light pressure and gravitational Sounds dynamics very would percolate through the galaxy. I Dude, mean, serious? That's the thing. You you take away from some of this shit and you're like, all right, like I'm in. So I mean, I he was one of, one of the best guests on Coast to Coast AM because like he could jump from all these different subjects and really blow like Art Bell's mind in a way that like Art Bell, I feel like, he was probably like really impressed by Terrence McKenna because he, because Terrence McKenna does have this like, he's taking these drugs, he's going to these, he is describing yeah. what he's seen. What I'm thinking would fulfill this entire scenario without requiring God Almighty to put in an appearance is, uh, time travel. I think that, uh, we are moving toward you know, if you look at biology over huge scales of time, hundreds of millions of years, uh, it is a kind of conquest of dimensionality. All right, uh, let's let's consider that. Uh, somebody recently said, and I have been considering since I heard it, uh, a very simple question: If time travel is possible, then where are the time travelers? Well, when I asked that question to my sources, they said. You, you can only travel as far back into the past as the moment of the invention of the first time machine, because before that, there were no time machines. Huh. Huh. Uh, that, I, but let me think about that. Does that make sense? You can only travel back to the moment of the invention of the time machine, because prior to that, there was no capability. It's like trying to drive where there are no roads. Yeah. It also means when you invent the first time machine, instantly time machines will appear by the tens of thousands, having come back through time to see the first flight into time. 
that's, that's incredible. I never. That's a whole new line of thought for me about about that question. Um, and it might make sense. It might make sense. Uh, and, and your analogy is trying to that you cannot drive in essence. Uh, uh, where there are no roads. Where there are no roads. Well, of course, you, you nearly do that when you go home uh, from, from the broadcast here. But <laughs> and you haven't even been up to see me. You're fucking <laughs> He's not making these things up. It's just that some of the ideas he would take away and conclusions he would draw, you know, were, you know, at times very magical leaps, but they were they were at least entertaining, you know, and not like mean-spirited well, and... And crazy like Alex Jones or someone like that. No, no, this is this is the best spirited theory of the stoned ape, and it yeah, sure, it's based on a lot of mental leaps. But let's just let's just imagine it for a second. Um, he writes the book Food of the Gods in 1992. In summary, it's basically that our species, Homo sapiens, jump started like the expansion of our consciousness that essentially created all aspects of human culture because we started eating psilocybin. <laughs> So according to McKenna, early humans migrated across Africa in search of new food and naturally follow herds of cattle, right? Because that's where the food was coming from. They, the, the cows were following where the food sources were. Of course, cattle's dung grows psychedelic mm-hmm. mushrooms and early hunters and gatherers naturally would find and eat these mushrooms. Now, what's interesting about it is that Going back to Silicon Valley, the tens of thousands of people who are microdosing for that exact same reason that McKenna theorized that the compound gave our early ancestors evolutionary advantage. So um, from Wikipedia, based on annotations from Food of the Gods references, because my book is in boxes because we're trying to move, um, it says McKenna's hypothesis was that low doses of psilocybin improve visual acuity resulting in better hunters and an increased food supply. So that was the base level of like the evolutionary advantage. Is that just the same reason that people microdose all the time? It in, it improves productivity, hyper acute awareness of your surroundings, visual stimulation. At higher doses, the mushroom acts to sexually arouse, leading to higher levels of attention, erection, <laughs> rendering it even more evolutionary beneficial as it would result in more offspring. That I know it gets so really wonky. Though. Let me just re- let me just finalize his theory. Then at even higher doses, McKenna argued the psilocybin would trigger the activity in the language forming region of the brain. So this is where he says it really manifested music and visions and was the evolutionary catalyst for essentially everything we know today. Now, apparently he was basing a lot of this research on effects of microdosing and larger dosing from a guy named Roland Fisher from the late 60s to early 70s. And his theory today, even though it's debunked and ridiculed by a lot of people, is also corroborated by a lot of people and supported by people like mycologists and other, you know, I don't know if evolutionary biologists agree with it, but like a lot of people who would be surprised by actually do entertain this theory because here's the thing. There was a sudden doubling of the human brain around 200,000 years ago, and there's no solid explanation for this huge increase in our in our brain it's the mushrooms baby and so you know that hasn't been explained and like props to fucking Terrace McKenna for like just filling in the gaps and presenting this really incredible and 
kind of believable theory. It's like, it's super interesting and no one else has really put these pieces together. Um, the debunking does kind of bring up a, a couple good points, which is just the fact that other animals exhibit consciousness through, you know, mirror tests and stuff like that. And so the fact that none of these consciousnesses have expanded because of psychotropic drugs, like, why are humans more special than other animals? And then, of course, just the idea that it's based on what if this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like if this is possible, then this is, then this is, then this is. And so there's no real, like, concrete – it's not backed up by, like, actual evidence. <laughs> there's a faulty fundamental to it for me just coming – be you know, starting out on this being more of, like, a utopianist when it comes to – the way I saw psychedelics like being good for humanity and they're inherently good and positive. I mean, I think that's sort of the viewpoint Terrence McKenna probably had too. And he had all the way through his life and it shapes pretty much everything that he says, including this, where it's like automatically that a primate would become like more visually aware, more like better hunter, like more horny, better like erection. It just seems like, He's almost like talking to himself after he takes mushrooms. He's like, I fucking feel great. I can fuck all night. I see shit hella good in the dark. Like, I'm not, I'm just saying, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, that's his experience. Everybody has different experiences on mushrooms. So, yeah, ultimately it does have that air of like, and microdosing too. Of course, yeah. I mean, he actually, I remember he um, recommended against microdosing um, at a certain point. Well, in fact, um, according to his brother, Dennis, um, Terrence actually stopped taking mushrooms after a dark trip in the 80s. Oh, interesting. And actually rarely and reluctantly did any psychedelic after that stronger than weed, even though he did apparently, according to people who knew him, he did still take small doses of acid, but he never took another hero's dose. Oh, my God. Wow. So actually, I don't feel that bad for not taking another hero's dose. Like. Because when I read exactly. about these people, I'm like, they just must have been taking hero's doses their whole goddamn lives. Like, the last time I tried to take a hero's dose of anything, I was like, that is fucking, I'm too old for this shit. Like, that was crazy, dude. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I mean, there is something about your ego that definitely holds on more and more to your identity as you get older. And, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves that, like, really, really does not want to let go. Of and also just the concept of death. It's like... When you have oh, like a near death or a virtual, you know, ego death experience on a psychedelic, I feel like the older you get, you know, you have this maybe imagination that you'd be more comfortable with the idea, but it's like you're no, mm-hmm. you're closer. You're literally closer mm-hmm. than you were like when you're in your early twenties when maybe it seemed easier to integrate the idea of this is what death is like. The invincibility chip that you have when you're yeah. early twenties, it's like I don't fucking care, dude. And now death is all I think about, especially with my son, it's like, it's so weird. The second you have a kid, it's like, it's like a march toward death and a race against time. It's the most bizarre thing ever. And I think that all the time too, when I read about people like Terrence McKenna, I think, how the fuck are you doing this shit? You know, Ram Dass, like all these people, it's like, you're fucking 40, 50 years old, like doing hero doses, drinking from vials of acid. Like how? I can maybe see doing just DMT again, you know, at some point when I'm yeah. older. I mean, for sure. Well, I mean, that that's definitely true in regards to a lot of these people. I think that they don't, you know, it's it's hard to talk about why you won't do it, you know. And so McKenna, of course, didn't 
didn't talk about that. He yeah. didn't talk about how he had a bad trip in the 80s and didn't do a Heroes Dose again, you know? Which is so maybe I think a lot of people were really... I know that that's what I was going to say. A lot of people were upset when they found this out because they said, how could you be promoting this publicly when at the same time you yourself had stopped and you weren't really talking about what that's happened? That's very um, interesting. Um, I, this is the first time I'm hearing that. So like, yeah, that's kind of has a dark side to it. I don't, I don't really know what to think. About. Mm-hmm. Well, here's another, another kind of wonky, not dark, but just, it really showed you because of the lack of pretense, because Terrence McKenna was this kind of quirky character who was willing to go really far, unapologetically. He went a little too far sometimes, you know, and he he really became passionate, especially toward the end of his life, about something called the novelty theory, where he essentially claimed to have discovered a new mathematical formulation to explain the nature of time essentially based on fractal patterns in the I Ching. Now, apparently, um, through this calculation, he predicted a transformative event, essentially a massive shift in consciousness that would happen around the year 2012, which he proudly said lined up exactly with the Mayan calendar, mm-hmm. you know, that infamous the Mayan calendar ending abruptly at 2012 or whatever and signifying the of end of the world. And instead of explaining more about the novelty theory because it's so bizarre. But like one of the possible catalysts that McKenna said would be AI that would like cause this like total severing of like reality as we know it. But it was very abstract. Like people would try to pin him down and they'd be like, so what do you think is going to happen? Like, do you think the end of the world? He was just like, no, he was like, you would not understand. It's just a prediction of an unpredictable event an enormously reality rearranging thing. And he like he would like poke fun at himself. Mm-hmm. You know, like he he wouldn't even take himself seriously as he was saying this, even though he totally fucking believed this and preached and it all the time. He still like would just be like and mathematical formulas dude, and, and pages dude. and pages of data that he claimed was like backing up what he said. Exactly. And he and he goes off on these crazy yarns, but at the same time he still like couldn't actually tell you what would happen because he just, he wanted to organize history and time and like make it make sense and show that it like obeys laws. That's what he said. So he said that, you know, when he was trying to be pinned down by the scientific American interviewer, he was just like, he was like, I've just created one mathematical model of the flow and ebb of novelty in history. And he was just like, it's not a mathematically defined entity. He's just kind of fantasizing. Whenever some, someone would try to pin him down, he would just kind of, like, say yeah. things like that. Like, very abstractly, what the fuck are you talking about here? Well, I'm still caught up on the and, I Ching fractal patterns thing. I thought I, the whole point of I Ching was that it was, like, random. That's <laughs> the thing is I've tried to look into this, and I've, tr- and I've heard him talk about it, and it's still so, 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 so confusing. That's um, pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense in the sense that, like, he thought everything is either – static or like novel so it's either everything's trying to reinforce the status quo or or trying to fight like change and so it's like the universe and the history of time is these two forces counteracting with each other and he thought that with the advent of everything that was happening the technological explosion of like computers and stuff i get he had just somehow mathematically constructed this theory that it was going to like outpace the habit, like the novelty was going to outpace it to the sense that like it was just going to fucking like destroy our plane of existence I mean, or something. I, I, I remember distinctly hearing him answer the question when people ask him what is going to happen. 
he would say it could be anything from aliens making contact with human civilization, an interdimensional god force communicating with us through our own minds collectively. Nice. He came up with just like every crazy like sci-fi novel yeah. plot that would be like game-changing for human society that he could throw in, in there. Right. It's almost just like he's not moving the goalposts, but he's just like showing you more fun shit to think about. <laughs> to like, yeah, I mean, so, but yeah, like I remember being definitely more of a believer of his when I was reading his stuff in terms of thinking he was much more scientific based about his stuff. But I mean, yeah, like I still appreciate his contribution. Um, he definitely died way too young. Dennis McKenna kind of carried out his legacy, I think, and, and got really involved in the, uh, the psychedelic community. And at his memorial, actually, Terrence McKenna's memorial is where a bunch of these people that we're going to talk about next uh, met each other for the first time. Oh, my God. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, sadly, Terrence McKenna died at 50 fucking three years young, dude. Died of brain cancer, 53 years young. And he actually was so paranoid, like I would be, that smoking weed daily like awesome. caused the brain cancer. And apparently it had nothing to do with it at all. And at least he was able to go to his grave not, you know, not, not thinking that he brought this on himself and that it was just the random cosmic energy of the universe that decided his fate. But we empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. It's a wonderful thing to learn to be able to stand up and yell bullshit. It, I, I did it when I first, when I was about 18 years old, and it was the meme of the hour, and uh, it held, it, it blew their minds. It did blow their minds. It was uncivil. <laughs> it was uncivil. It lacked polity. It was rude and crude and correct. Correct. Because so much is being slung. And nobody is talking about the primacy of experience and the dignity of the individual. The dignity of the individual. We went a long way with this in America before we betrayed it. And it wasn't only betrayed by the clowns in Washington. It's also betrayed by anybody who clusters themselves around the feet of some self-proclaimed nabob. Because the fact of the matter is... Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows. Nobody has the faintest idea. The best guesses are lies. You may be sure of it. And so to pretend that one human being will lead another out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth is ludicrous. Absolutely grotesque. A product of this empowering of the human image that has gone on through several thousand years of dominator culture. If you want a teacher, try a waterfall or a mushroom or a mountain wilderness or a storm-pounded seashore. This is where the action is. It's not back in the hive. It's not in the anthill. It's not knocking your head against the floor in front of somebody who claims that because of their lineage and whose feet they washed and whose feet they washed, that you should give credence to them. Knowledge is provisional. 
and uh, we we are yet to approach even the first moment of civilized understanding. This is why I like him too, because he he puts us like humans, like he really thought that we were like very special. Because a lot of people are just you know they look at the span of civilization and then the history and everything. I mean, the, the existence of our earth and they're just like, we are just a blip of time. Like we are fucking nothing. We're meaningless. We're just fucking ants, you know? And he just, he just disagreed with that. He was like, actually we are at the center stage of this cosmic drama. And like, we are not an accident. I just love him. One of the best <laughs> things he ever said about how he would describe humans to people who wanted to compare them to things like ants or oversimplify us is just like these, you know, compare us to any other animal in the animal kingdom that acts like some kind of collective unit like we do that builds cities and stuff. Imagine like how coral uh, like lives and how it mm-hmm. operates and builds structures or like a mixture between like intelligent apes and coral reef. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. I thought that that like, that just the weird his the way his mind worked to be able to link those two ideas together in a way that like if you've done enough psychedelics that like makes perfect sense it's like holy shit like that is mm-hmm. pretty crazy that's way better than like describing it's like ants so yeah I mean some of the most colorful memorable ways of describing trips of anybody who's written about these things I think we've been a little too glowing here um, talking about McKenna because you know there are a lot of contradictions that came out. Um, after he died, unfortunately, you know, not only with the time wave zero theory that he put out there, but also revelations that were written about by his own brother in a way that actually pissed a lot of people off and a lot of people in the psychedelic community that looked at Terrence McKenna as this guru that was guiding them, you know, because he really was like a leader of a movement, you know, and he really, he really did lead people down this path with the hero's dose and all the things that he was telling people to do. And a lot of people did feel like kind of this backstabbing um, effect of, of finding out that he himself stopped taking huge amounts of psychedelics in, in the eighties. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like he didn't just stop taking huge amounts of psychedelics. It sounded like he stopped taking mushrooms in general, even though yeah, I think he mm-hmm. said he, would occasionally do mild doses of LSD. Doesn't seem like he was actually continuing to do DMT or even ayahuasca. And I just have to say for myself, it was very shocking to learn this because it's not just a lie of omission, in my opinion, to not mention this, but the way that he talks about psychedelic drugs in a lot of his lectures, especially his lectures when he's doing Q&A, is if you listen to them, it sounds very, very much like he's talking about present tense or recent experiences. And I do wonder if he was, part of him was intentionally misleading people to believe that. Even though he never overtly said when he would do these things, like, you know, he never would say things like, oh, last week I did, you know, I took this dose of DMT. To me, it does seem a little manipulative learning this in retrospect. And I'm just, it, I'm sitting, it's troubling to sit with. I do think I could completely emphasize with why this caused a controversy within the psychedelic community, even within the world of McKenna followers after this is revealed. And it also brings up some interesting things that we've talked about off air, Abby, about why someone's brother who, you know, was with him writing and collaborating with him for so long would drop a bomb like this so long after McKenna passed away and in a way that 
Dennis McKenna, his brother, had to have known this was going to be extremely controversial, and he had to have known in some ways this would undermine his brother's work. So I, I find that odd in of itself, and I'm thinking what would happen in a, you know, God forbid, a scenario where one of us dies, you know, say like mm-hmm. uh, you die or I die, and then someone asked us about, you know, what, what was Robbie like, for example, if they're asking you, and then you're like, well, you know, actually Robbie – didn't really believe in the anthrax and the 9-11 <laughs> stuff he was talking about. It, it would be sort of like me or you, after one of us has died, saying something that would be like a bomb drop to undermine the legacy of your or my work. Yeah, absolutely. And let me jump in here because it wasn't just that he stopped taking mushrooms. It was that Dennis actually came out and said that he had questioned his own theories, that Terrence actually had a lot of self-doubt about the theories that he was presenting later on in his life. So it wasn't just the bomb dropping of undermining the hero dose that he was recommending to everyone with ayahuasca and mushrooms, but it was also all of his theories, which is like, that is his whole legacy. That's his entire body of work right there. Maybe everything Dennis is saying, let's just assume it's all true. Right. In some ways, it adds more humility to McKenna's legacy. But then when you consider the fact that he didn't talk about things in this, he talked about things in a very polished, rosy, utopian way. And it is a bit confusing why he continued to talk about things in that way if he did feel these things. So on one hand, I'm I'm partly inclined to believe it because I want to think that McKenna was, had that level of like humbleness about his own ideas. Then the other hand, it's like, why did he, continue to preach and postulatize the way he did without very rarely, I would say actually talking about the negative side of psychedelics. Like, I mean, if this was true, he could have done a whole lecture on like everything I've told you is probably wrong. And that should be something you fundamentally on some level, if you've taken psychedelics should understand is that I'm just like a human, you know, who's like trying to interpret these things and everything I've told you could, could be completely off base. I mean, let's. Just, I mean, that would be incredibly humble to say something like that. But I do think it, it's uh, it is a little unsettling to think that that basically the guy who you know became essentially the new Timothy Leary of the next psychedelic era had basically only psychedelics in his past when he had reached this level of like messianic status and didn't wasn't clear about that. I just can't imagine myself doing that if I was encouraging thousands and thousands of people to take powerful psychedelic drugs. Well, especially because the hero's dose is like not a fucking joke. No. Like even the most experienced psychedelic users, I've never taken that because it sounds terrifying. There's this one guy who wrote a very good blog about, you know, eulogizing in all the bad and good of Terrence McKenna. He was a huge fan of him and he talks about this. He talks about how he felt slighted. And that he felt like he was almost manipulated into taking a really, really heavy dose of mushrooms that really fucked him up. And it wasn't fun. And he also doesn't like the fact that he can envision that a lot of other people did the same thing. You know, like taking taking that much mushrooms alone in the dark, there are some creature comforts that maybe you need to take you out of a negative place when you're spiraling out in a trip like this. And so for people to feel like they needed to reach this level to be part of this kind of secret club, you know, I think that's why this guy was, was a little bit upset. Do you know who it was? What, what, who, what, who are you referring to? He, 
T. Ferry on Arrowwood. He has a blog. You actually sent me this. Okay. Um, but in the end, was the it, guy who, didn't he kind of conclude oh, yeah. that he was actually very apologetic of McKenna by the end of yeah, this? Yeah, no, at the, no, I, it was interesting to see his thought process because he starts off talking about how he initially felt very slighted and very offended when he found out about what Dennis presented. And then he goes on to say, look, I mean, Terrence called himself a philosophical entertainer and he, he told people that everything he said should be taken with an industrial sized salt lick um, and that his theories were ever evolving and that in the end he basically considered them to be pieces of cognitive art that were intended to amuse and perhaps to inspire yet more nuanced and complex discussion about these things. He never once said that they were really the truth and he even came out and said that he had absolutely no idea what was going on at all that it's impossible to tell from our default vantage point and that the only thing he's ever really truly believed was that the core of the mystery was stranger than anything than our minds were capable of processing so so it goes off on, on threads like that where it's like yeah if you listen to enough of him obviously you could eventually figure out that he you know yeah again sort of giving himself the eternal an riddler yeah mm-hmm and yeah, and I think something which also, I guess, bothers me about McKenna, if I'm being really honest, is that it's not just that he it was sort of a lie of omission by not admitting that he had, you know, not done heroic doses for a while, then he actually had a really bad experience that turned him off to heroic doses. It's that he falls into the trap that I think a lot of these psychedelic utopianist advocates do, where he acts as if his own very positive experiences on mushrooms and other psychedelics are essentially universal. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that gives people some false expectations or expectations about certain psychedelic experience. So just for example, I mean, the thing that you said earlier about the stoned ape theory that stood out to me the most as being almost funny was this idea that he was thinking that mushrooms created this evolutionary advantage for monkeys because it gave them like stronger erections and made them like more horny and orgiastic. Frankly, that to me just sounds like a very specific experience to a certain type of individual on mushrooms, unique firsthand experience. So I do think that that plagues not just McKenna's views and his writings, but sort of his following too, where there is sort of a utopianist, we only talk about the most positive aspects of these psychedelics and sort of project them as if they're these universal experiences that everyone will experience when they take them. And I think that that sets people up for a false expectation, disappointment. You know, it might even make them think that, that oh, a lot of these things people have said about psychedelics were BS. I'm not going to do them again. There could be some negative outcomes like that based on how he operated. There are, like, conflicting thoughts that I have. It's like... On one hand, maybe he was going to be open about this. Maybe he was just taking a break. Maybe he didn't write them off completely. You know, on one hand, I can see where people are defending him being like, why did he have to disclose this like really personal thing um, when he was still taking these low doses? He didn't write off psychedelics completely. Like, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it is the thing that's disingenuous to me is like, is exactly what you're saying. These are very powerful substances. There is no universal application or or um, experience that everyone has. They can be extremely negative and they can be very nightmarish. And and for someone to not actually embrace the good and the bad, 
I would actually respect him more if he was just very honest and he was like, look, like I myself was basically humbled by like a really powerful trip and I had to take a break. And like, that's okay. That's okay for people to want to do this. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that that didn't give people an in who were following his work. Like they thought that they like, they weren't fucking badass. Well, exactly. Competitive feeling this where it's like you look up, you almost worship and revere these people who are able to not just discuss these amazing psychedelic heroic doses, but like seem to be kind of like people who can handle doing them. And being able to handle doing them and come exactly. back in reality and still function like this, it's very impressive. It does put you in a sort of a higher tier of like, damn, that person is like really special. Like they're unique. They really have like a strong mind or constitution or something. It does seem like it's a way, it's like a bragging rights thing. And it makes you wonder how many of these people who talk about doing heroic doses know that it just sounds like it's a brag without actually doing them. Humans are complex, and these experiences are very complex, right? And it's not this. I just wanted to say that um, in all the time I took psychedelics, I never had a bad trip. I always had a positive trip, and I always was connected with the angelic and the celestial and the ET realms. And what they're talking about is real. You know, you don't just go and take five grams of mushrooms or seven and go hang out and watch TV. Or de- no. 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 It's always good to have a guide, though. Yeah. Uh, this is sacred stuff, and it's about connecting with primi- primordial forces that have been around since before we were a thought in mother's eye. And I just have to say you respect them. And pass the talking stick back to these two. <laughs> Topian thing. And so I, I just feel like being honest about it would have been very refreshing and also potentially very helpful for people. But it also is like very upsetting that Dennis felt like he had to put this out there without insight from Terrence because there was a reason we we will never know what that reason was. Yeah. But there was a reason why Terrence was not honest about this. And even though we may may have disagreements about that, I I don't really feel good about the fact that his brother put that out there. Maybe jealousy had something to do with it to undermine his legacy. We'll never know. And also, we can't a hundred percent trust that his brother is telling the full truth either. Like if we're going at this with the framing of like Terrence lied by omission, he meant he was, um, you know, misleading, and Dennis let this cat out of the bag, that would require us to trust, take at face value that Dennis is definitely telling the truth. We don't know for sure. So uh, I, I'm just, I just want to make sure we say that, because I don't know very much about Dennis McKenna, and I have no reason to believe that he, you know, maybe he was really jealous, maybe he did want to undermine Terrence in a way that people maybe aren't aware of. I have no idea. That's just speculation. So... I guess we'll never know is the problem. And it is unfortunate that it's like after someone dies, you learn information like this because you ultimately will never know what, how they really felt about it. It's coming secondhand. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to add about McKenna, just because this is obviously going to come up when we release this episode, we have to address it. Yeah, there's been this theory floating around on the Internet for last 10 years or so. Put out really by like one guy. I don't even want to give him any publicity here because – 
he's let's just say frankly he's a creep um and i'll just leave it there but this theory it was perpetuated um in a way to make it seem like all the psychedelic figures of the psychedelic 60s and later were all somehow federal government agents now while there is some truth to the idea of the federal government infiltrating and being responsible for some some part in the hippie movement um this particular theory that Terrence McKenna was a some kind of FBI or CIA informant to me just does not hold water. And the only way that I could see this being convincing is if you don't really know very much about Terrence McKenna and you read unfavorably about what he's saying. Because here's one thing Terrence McKenna would talk about all the time. He was paranoid as hell that the FBI was after him. He would hear things about that the FBI was like watching him or was interested in him. Yeah, because one thing we didn't talk about is that he sold like enormous amounts of like hashish illegally. He was like doing like illegal drug trading when he lived in Bombay. Yeah, so that, that's one thing that we didn't talk about. So he was very paranoid about that as well. And it was well known, even though he wrote these books with his brother under a pseudonym initially, he became essentially the Tim Leary of mushrooms. This is also something I think we kind of um, didn't talk about enough earlier is that he initially became famous not over DMT, but over becoming basically like the guru to promote psychedelic mushrooms. Even though he wrote these books with his brother anonymously, I mean, the federal government had to have known who he actually was, and it was well known in the psychedelic community who he was. It wasn't like an extremely mysterious pseudonym. He was already a well-known figure. So it's not like he came out of hiding and was like, hey, I'm the guy who wrote these books. It was sort of like, pseudonym but like barely any sort of cover for who he really was so the fbi was probably very well aware of him federal government was so he would talk on and off throughout his books about how he felt like he had to evade law enforcement he had to stand to the radar he got wind at various times that the fbi was watching him and you know how we already talked about how terrence mckenna narcissistically so i will say believed on some level that he was the emissary for whatever he thought was like the alien force behind these psychedelic drugs, what they were trying to communicate to us. And he saw himself as like the emissary of that. Like he was like the ambassador for the aliens in the mushrooms, essentially. And, you know, it sounds really silly. And he, and, you know, he would talk about it in a silly way too, like he always would. But here's what came out in a, and I don't know the actual interview that this is from. But here's what this allegation comes from, uh, the allegation that he was an FBI informant. I'm going to read the whole thing. In I wonder myself, you mean, am I the alien ambassador, whether I like it or not? Well, often when asked this question, I've said it beats honest work. I mean, my brother is a Ph.D. in three subjects and works in hard science, and yet I don't think it's brought him immense happiness. Not that he's despondent, and certainly when I reached La Correa in 1971, I had a price on my head by the FBI. I was running out of money. I was at the end of my rope. And then they recruited me and said, you know, with a mouth like yours, there's a place for you in our organization. And I've worked in deep background positions about which the less said, the better. And then about 15 years ago, they shifted me into public relations. And I've been there to the present. Now, I can see any conspiracy person reading this quote by itself and thinking that's very suspicious. What does he mean? It's like right there in plain view. He's saying that he worked as a public relations, basically informant for 
See, it sounds like he's talking about the FBI, right? Well, this whole conversation is nested in this silly idea that he was the alien ambassador. Now, you know, when I first looked at this, I was like, that is suspicious. What is he actually saying here? Was he? I mean, is it possible Terrence McKenna is admitting that he used to be an FBI informant? And why would someone in the hippie movement who was like so instrumental admit this in an interview? So that was like the first two thoughts I had. But I mean, honestly, when you read all this in context, it is obvious that he's talking about that the alien mushroom force is the one that recruited him. I, I think the only standout quote from here that is a little bit suspicious is where he says, I've worked in deep background positions about which the less said, the better. Now, that could be just some cryptic. Just making a joke. Yeah, it could be some cryptic, riddle-ish kind of thing. I don't know what he's insinuating there, but I could see someone taking that specific quote out of isolation and saying, well, this one might mean that he's worked and done something for law enforcement before. Maybe. I mean, I have, I'm not saying that's what it means, but like the idea that 15 years ago they shifted me into public relations and I've been there to the present. He's clearly <laughs> not fucking talking about the FBI because at that point, I mean, unless basically you're implying that he'd be, outing himself, snitch-jacking, fed-jacking himself in an interview, and then also, like, joking about it, saying that, like, oh, yeah, they shifted me, like, the FBI shifted me into public relations. I mean, that's not a position that someone would do with an informant. It doesn't make sense. The whole thing does not make sense if that's how you're seeing it. Unless you think he's just joking and making jokes about it the whole time, and he's admitting uh, that he's a fed. The whole thing, I just do not think, stands up on its face. There's other people who've tried to connect McKenna and his legacy to other federal government things over time. Those are, to me, pretty loosey-goosey. So I think there's a lot stronger connections for someone like Leary or other people like Hoffman or Wasson to say, like, maybe they did have connections to the feds than McKenna. I mean, I just don't think this is very strong. So I, I know we waited a long time to even mention this, but I know people were going to probably bug us about this if we didn't talk about it. Well, yeah, I mean, we wait, we waited till the end because we don't believe it. Yeah. And it, it, there really is nothing there. And I think that the context around this that people are pushing the notion that he might be a Fed was because they allege that he got caught smuggling hash or something in Bombay and that that was the context to which he was recruited to be an informant. Cause like the whole thing, I was just like, why, like, what would even be the point? But then I realized that that's what they were propositioning. And that still makes no sense. Cause like you said, I mean, the most obvious takeaway is why would he out himself and why would he then just immediately make a joke about being in the PR uh, wing yeah. of the FBI? So yes, what you cited earlier is not usually quoted in the context of this, which is he begins that quote by saying the alien ambassadorship or whatever. So right there gives it away um, to me at least. Yeah. And what would be the goal, like what would be the federal government's goal in having this guy be like an informant or like even some kind of, I don't know, PR agent to spread disinformation to with, because they want the psychedelic community to believe in the DMT elves and believe in <laughs> the power of heroic doses? Like what would have been the ultimate goal of that? So then Alex Jones could talk about the machine yeah. elves and then – I don't know. Cause it, cause I mean like, yeah, there's problems with what he did. He created like too much of a utopianist worldview on psychedelics. And I think, you know, 
downplayed the dangers of them and omitted things about his own life that would have been useful for people doing them. But I mean, I, I don't see anything, any fruits of his work that seem like something that the federal government would have wanted. I, it just doesn't make sense to me. So the whole, yeah, the, the theory just does not hold water for me. I just want to say a quote from Timothy Leary himself, because Timothy Leary actually was a great admirer of McKenna. He did feel like he was taking over his legacy in a way. And, you know, he said that he was an eloquent and imaginative poet of the psychedelic experience. Um, and that tea fairy guy who wrote that really cool um, Airwood post, Terrence McKenna was was a great artist. This is what this guy is saying to sum him up. He said, Terrence McKenna was a great artist. He played his unique character in the divine play exceedingly well. It takes a lot of guts to keep calling him like you see him when shit gets weird. And Terrence wasn't afraid to be ridiculed for his admittedly ridiculous convictions. He just kept trying to throw language at the damn thing, even when it refused to stick. And he made 10 times as much progress with that method as everyone else put together ever made by trying to talk sense. He also had the rare courage to suggest that the universe might turn out to be more awesome than we dare to dream. Hell, he even seriously seemed to believe that the future was going to turn out to be significantly better than the past. And that's about as crazy as it fucking gets, <laughs> right? On the other hand, maybe that's exactly the kind of crazy that we need. It's a nice thought. I mean, I definitely like agree with mo like a large part of that. I think the only thing in there that I'm like, you know, how much, you know, 10, making 10 times more progress than anyone else and the amount of time he did. I mean, he definitely became the centerpiece and popularized things to a degree that none of these other people even got close to doing. That is true. But whether that's progress or not in terms like how you see progress, I think is up for debate. Because just pop, simply popularizing something and adding a lot of language to describe it, yeah, I mean, I guess I, that is progress in some ways. But in other ways, maybe other kinds of progress would have been useful too. After, like, taking in everything that McKenna was, which is all the good and the bad, including his extreme, you know, I don't know if we actually said this, but he was very, very passionate about the Time Wave Zero thing. Like, that was not a joke um, but at the end of the day, it kind of, he kind of was just like the elves that he describes, which was he riddled his way into theorizing things that you either went on the journey with him or you didn't. And if you were intelligent enough to get the riddle, then maybe he you would go through the portal. Yeah. <laughs> just like he talks about the elves. It's like he, what, he kind of like encompasses like what the depiction of the elves that he describes in a weird way, the ultimate riddler and jokester and trickster and sometimes a liar. And it is kind of interesting that Dennis McKenna now, you know, sort of stepped into more of a, a public role, going to these psychedelic conventions, speaking, being part of the community after McKenna passed. I don't know. Terrence said he has three PhDs. He's almost throwing shade at him in that quote, but partly <laughs> I, so I think that McKenna actually played a very unique role where he was more of like, the psychonaut role compared to all these other people who are botanists, scientists, PhD holders, mm -hmm. academics, even though, yeah, he went to Berkeley, he wasn't an academic. And I think that that separated him. Like you look at the lineups of all these other psychedelic conventions in the nineties and the eighties, they're all people who seem like way more academic or like scientist types. And he's usually the odd man out, but that's the role that he played and he played it extremely well. The, the other figure that I think he sort of stands in contrast to, he never wrote anything as colorful 
and as artistic in terms of like the trip reports. But this other guy, Jonathan Ott, you know, he wasn't a braggart about still taking heroic doses and he still clearly was taking heroic doses. And he had a very unique approach to this where he was extremely like skilled in terms of being a botanist, cataloging different plants, studying them. And he was the first person to write like a breakdown of pharmacologically what's in ayahuasca. So, you know, while McKenna was popularizing DMT, this of this mythical status, Jonathan Ott was actually trying to like almost take an Alexander Shulgin approach to ayahuasca and break it down into its fundamental components. And not just that, but Jonathan Ott is the one, mm-hmm. as you said, coined the term entheogen. He didn't see entheogen as something that was only in plant, like a plant spirit. People, a lot of people maybe misconstrue that term now as being some kind of plant spirit psychedelic drug. He was looking at it as like even a synthetic chemical can provide the inner God experience. And he did not look down on synthetic drugs and separate them from like plant-based psychedelics as being somehow more superior or more fundamentally spiritual. This is also something that separated Ott from this more new age-ish belief in plant spirits from the rest of the psychedelic community. Um, most of the psychedelic community was not interested in, you know, taking synthetic uh, ayahuasca, but Ott, after he had broken down ayahuasca into these components, he actually started self-administering different concoctions of different pure chemicals that he had found in ayahuasca brews to see if it could recreate an actual plant ayahuasca style experience. And he would write about this extensively. And sometimes the combinations and the different things he did would seem kind of dangerous. Like that's what also made him a little different is some of these people were very academic. They would actually talk about, you know, only drugs that there was no chance that they would cause overdoses like DMT, mushrooms, LSD, never cause like a actual drug overdose in anyone's life. Ah, on the other hand, he didn't shy away from experimenting with actual dangerous substances sometimes in his own self-administered experiences. And he would write about them almost in the same way that you would see like scientific journals being written. So imagine like an Irwood trip report type style thing, but written by a guy who has all this botanical and scientific knowledge administering these drugs to himself. Kind of Shulgin-esque in a way, because this is what Shulgin does in his in his own books, which we're going to talk about later. But very unique uh, role in psychedelic culture. McKenna was heavily inspired by Jonathan Ott. And I couldn't find actually any quotes from Jonathan Ott talking about Terrence McKenna, but I was able to find a quote of McKenna talking about Jonathan Ott. And McKenna was very inspired by Ott's book called Ayahuasca Analogs. And this is what McKenna said in a talk. He says, Jonathan Ott wrote a book called Ayahuasca Analogs. And I think this is the way to go. I've seen too much of the ordinary kinds of ecotourism and that sort of thing. And I think that's far better, far better than to bring these shamans here. I mean, this is a meat grinder. It's horrible. You can't expect people to maintain their authenticity and put them up at the Beverly Hills Hotel. So basically he's advocating against the idea of like exporting an ayahuasca shaman and making them like give white people ayahuasca. He's like, yeah, we can just fucking do this with like pure chemicals. And Oh, God, I, you would hate to see where the L.A. culture has gone now. Fuck. Oh, I know. And McKenna actually died 
right before the ayahuasca tourism industry exploded, um, which we're going to talk about later as well. But I mean, Ott um, was a very, very influential figure who never had the same status as McKenna because he was more like doing the hard research, you know, even in going as far as inflicting himself with extremely painful, heroic dose experiences that no one else previous to Ott had even written about because there were crazy things to do. Like, for example, Jonathan Ott got obsessed for a point in his life in writing about or trying to discover the mechanism for shamanic tobacco experiences. Native Americans are most famously known for peyote, but initially, before the Mexicans brought peyote to the Native Americans in North America, the North American continent, they were doing very high-dose tobacco psychedelic experiences, doing things like covering their entire body in wet tobacco leaves and lying down in a... Mm -hmm. Sweat lodges. Yeah. Yeah, like a sweat lodge where the tobacco, the nicotine would go up, get absorbed through the skin and put someone into a delirious hallucinatory state. Jonathan Ott tried recreating some of these things to try to understand how the mechanism worked. And he even described, you know, and then he was pretty old by this time. Like he wasn't like a young spry guy. So in the nineties, I think he was like already in his late forties or maybe fifties by this time. He was like trying to recreate native American tobacco shamanic experiences by soaking cigarettes in like water and making like a drink out of like a dozen (laughs) cigarettes to just see if he can, I mean, just insane stuff that almost sounds like trailer park level, like crazy, like early trip reports. But this, but he was so well respected that people were like, actually, this is really interesting that he's, you know, even though this sounds crazy, no one else is trying to recreate some of these things. So what I appreciate about Odd, I guess that I'm saying overall, is that he wasn't afraid to venture outside the outside the box or think outside the box. He was willing to try and do anything that seemed like a visionary experience that involved plants, even if it included like potentially, you know, risking his own life to do so. I mean, he would even try different like drugs that, for example, couldn't be snorted normally. He had discovered that a lot of those drugs, if you mix it with pure grain alcohol, and snort the grain alcohol mixture, those drugs act, the mechanism worked as a snorting Whoa, method. whoa, 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 What the fuck? Yeah. Snorting pure grain, what kind of drugs were activated by the pure grain alcohol? Well, one, the drug that I remember him talking about the most was he did some really interesting experiments, self-administered with salvia divinorum, which normally could only be smoked or used as a tincture where you have to hold it in your mouth. Uh, you know, like a like an alcohol tincture. He figured out that if you mix salvia with like pure grain alcohol, salvinorin A, the active ingredient, that it actually passed through the mucous membranes and you could snort it. Jesus Christ. And I want to say, and I'm not 100% sure about this, but I do think Ah may have been the first person also to suggest um, enema-based salvia use. Uh, as well, <laughs> which works. It, I, I haven't done it myself, but it works. I read about it. There's actually several trick reports online about doing it. Um, so, you know, while McKenna was kind of misleading people into thinking he was still doing heroic doses, this guy Ott, who would be like alongside McKenna's name on these speaking panels, you know, oftentimes they'd be all together on speaking panels, um, coming from completely two different sort of mindsets 
this guy was actually doing the heroic doses and sometimes doing dangerous doses of things that no one had ever done before, combinations of things, sort of remaining largely underground for it, but still being very well respected among like the hardcore thinkers in the psychedelic community. Jonathan Ott is a really fascinating character because he was doing really incredible, like down in the, in the trenches. Like, you know, he was like risking his life, like mixing some of this shit. I mean, he didn't know ultimately what would happen if he tried to do like, you know, mimic the tobacco ritual from native Americans or whatever. I mean, it's pretty crazy that he was doing all this stuff with little to no accolades from outside maybe a small subsect of the community because, you know, Terrence McKenna was completely mainstream. You look up his name, millions of hits on his lectures because he was spellbinding in his brilliance and articulation. Ott was a genius, but as you mentioned, he was a trained chemist. So when you look through his articles and trip reports and stuff like that, it's a little hard to digest for the layman. So, he was a very underrated guy because it was not easily translatable for people who didn't have that academic experience of chemistry, of understanding these compounds, because really like you can read through some of his articles or interviews and it is a little hard to even translate what he's saying because it's so hyper specific about these chemicals, but it doesn't detract from the incredible contributions to the movement. Yeah. Um, and the fact that he wrote hell of fucking books. I mean, he wrote eight books co-authored five more one of the books is a comprehensive encyclopedia of ethnogenic plants mm -hmm. um, that he described as these psychoactive substances that induce spiritual experiences but he was also very humble and not at all on his high horse about ayahuasca in fact um, i don't know if he actually invented pharmawasca but he certainly advocated for it Many, many times, and I never even heard of the fact that you could take a pharmaceutical version of ayahuasca. Um, did he actually invent that? Yeah, he did. And he, and he was trying to figure out ways to make it essentially completely legal, um, minus the DMT. But, you know, DMT was universally scheduled everywhere worldwide. But his idea was, well, if you get like the, a DMT containing plant in combination with like a series of gel caps or pills that have an MAOI inhibitor in it, um, the other ayahuasca alkaloids, he called them, then in theory you could essentially sell a product or market. And this was not in any way to make money. Like he was not thinking like, oh, I'm going to make a business out of this to make profit. He was just like, what if we could make ayahuasca – what if we could make ayahuasca <laughs> accessible to everybody and not just like a recipe online because that would be one thing, but like – an actual product that you could purchase right. and obtain that would be legal, you know, high potency root bark plant that has high concentration of DMT in it, plus a series of different alkaloids that are technically legal in wherever you live, like whatever area of the world you live in. That was his sort of vision. And I think it's a really interesting vision that frankly, no one's ever executed on since he came up with this idea. So Jonathan Ott, um, he's most known for pharmahuasca or his study of ayahuasca, but he also was working on something called pharma yopo and also pharma shamanic tobacco experiences. He even talks about how he regularly uses nicotine nose spray that like 
shoots like 10 milligrams of nicotine into his nose in like one spray. Um, and like a whole cigarette contains like two milligrams of nicotine, like a commercial cigarette. So he was actually the, Jonathan Ott was one of the first people to describe the first instances of historic, or people like witnessing Yopo use. Like he actually describes how Columbus actually witnessed Native Americans in South America using Yopo. And Yopo is a snuff and a snuff is something you snort up your nose. So he was like hooked on this idea of just like why, you know, we're, we're actually too fixated on ayahuasca. The first accounts of, of DMT use was from Yopo, which is a snuff. So he became really fixated on that. I don't know of anybody who's really pushing this still. And to me, it's, it should be really pushed because why do you have to do something in a ritualistic setting? Or subject yourself to a very intense. Where you have to purge your entire bowels and and stomach yeah. contents. I mean, a lot of yeah, a lot I mean, of people totally. vomit on ayahuasca brews, and a lot of people have attested to the fact that when they take pure chemical psychedelics, like even psilocybin, you take pure psilocybin made in a lab um, or extracted pure from a psilocybin mushroom, a lot of people report that it's a much cleaner feeling experience, no nausea, a lot less physical side effects. So I just think it's odd that the prevailing view still to this day, like 25 years after Ott conceived of this concept of pharmahuasca, is no, the real way to do ayahuasca is to subject yourself to enormous amounts of pain and discomfort. I mean, it just – Well, it's the whole colonize – it's the colonizer mentality of the ayahuasca stuff that we're going to get into in the next episode. It's like like feeling like you need to appropriate that indigenous, like spiritual – vibe and it's like why dude like you don't need to go down to fucking peru and like exploit this like indigenous culture to do like an ayahuasca journey like just get a pill (laughs) you know just man up dude you know terrence is like this viral figure ott is very underrated like he barely has any hits on any of his shit online which is very few things he barely has any videos he barely has any interviews but the ones that he does have are extremely interesting uh, for example, he has a sit-down interview with Albert Hoffman, of course, the guy who initially synthesized LSD that we talked about in the first episode. And, and it's a really captivating exchange between these two guys of a genuine, you know, this chemist who's just completely fascinated with with uh, these type of psychoactive substances and just getting a really raw and filtered, you know, conversation going between him and Hoffman is really well, interesting. Experience one is seeing the world direct. Uh, naked, without concepts, without words. I think I, it is very difficult to ex, to describe, uh, to, to put in words the experience. I think it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should uh, create new language for the mystical experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sometimes describe it as seeing the world as energy as opposed to seeing the world as matter, that it's uh, not a materialistic experience, but it goes in the direction of spirit or energy. No, I, you think of that? Yes, energy almost, uh, for me, as a bit of technical. <laughs> but as William Blake used the term, for Blake, energy was spirit. Okay. Uh, yes, yes. But in our day, energy is mainly a physical mm-hmm. thing. But uh, 
there is, there is a, a vital force in, we can say, an universal consciousness, which you would say um, is something like uh, energy. I don't like it very much, I, um, energy. I would like, uh, would say it is a universal consciousness. And it, I think that consciousness is one of the most, in, most uh, uh, meaningful words. Uh, consciousness is really, we are human beings, we have consciousness. And uh, it means that you have are connected with the spiritual world, and the spiritual world, I would say, is universal consciousness. Uh, also in your book, on the use of LSD as an aid to meditation, um, this is more of the psychedelic therapy, a, a deeper experience with a higher dose, or do you think that would also apply with more repeated lower doses? No, I would meditation? say it is a higher dose. Higher dose. But this must be... Um, uh, very dangerous for the person needs um, a higher dose for send beaming. You need a very small amount rather than need a very high dosage to have the full experience. And uh, you, I think uh, this procedure would be that you give a medium dose first and see how it, the reaction is, and then you can decide. You can give then for after, uh, after preparation and every what you need for a good experience, then you can use the higher dose. And then you make sure that the person is, uh, reacts well to the yeah, compound. Yeah, yeah. What do you consider to be a medium dose and what would be a high dose? I would say a medium dose is uh, 100 gamma. And a higher dose would say uh, 250. And a low dose would be under 100. Yes, yeah, low dose of 50. 50 microns. 50. And um, as I recall, uh, with um, Sando's Deli Seed, there were 25 microgram uh, pills, no? Yeah. And that was, uh, that was designed as a stimulant. The, uh, yes. As an antidepressant type of stimulant? Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. Yes, also. But it was... Uh, a little dose, then you can take three or four pills. Oh, yeah, of course. And adjust it better. Mm -hmm. It's a lower dose. And they were stable, these pills? So oh, yes. I have this interview, and, and it's quite interesting because Larry says in the interview uh, something like, with a properly prepared LSD session, a woman invariably will have hundreds of orgasms <laughs> under the influence of LSD. And then the, the interviewer asked him twice, and he wouldn't answer the question, well, how about men? Can men have, uh, how many orgasms can a man have with LSD? He's questions right in Hamburg. Or was it this interview? Yeah, also in the play where, and he wouldn't answer, he, they asked him twice, and he, he changed the subject. All he said was, well, I've made love every time I've taken LSD. <laughs> There's also another panel that, that Ott is doing where he brings up, basically he was saying, like, if our reality is based on matter, Right. And, and when we take psychedelics, we can see actually energy waves. And that really is what is reflected off the matter. Like we are seeing the energy. The energy is what's showing us what the matter is. So anyway, he just goes off in a really interesting threads that, um, that I found really fascinating. And I was really surprised at how little people had watched his material, I guess.
but whatever is out there that we like to think we're getting a faithful representation of, that is more um, is more clearly um, described as energy than as matter in and of itself. So um, let's go to the first point um, that all we can see is energy. Uh, in point of fact, the the way our sensory system works is uh, the, the the lens in the iris of the uh, in the front of the eye focus the rays of light, and uh, and the image is somehow formed on the retina in the back of the eye. I'm not going to talk about psychophysics. That's beyond this discussion. How that translates into some kind of a moving picture inside my and and that's not only beyond the scope of this discussion. It's beyond our knowledge completely. And so. Um, what is happening is the electromagnetic force uh, or electromagnetic energy is reflecting off of the very external surfaces of objects in the outside world and entering our eye. And that's what we're perceiving. The only way we can perceive it is because energy is entering our eye and exciting cells, photosensitive cells on the back of the retina. If it weren't energy, we wouldn't be able to, to sense it. And so... Um, we cannot see the object itself. We can only see what is reflected off of it. And if there is no electromagnetic energy present, if there's no light, uh, what we call light is it's a small segment of the um, electromagnetic spectrum. But if it, there's none present, we are, as they say in Spanish, invidentes, we're non-seeing. And so if you've ever been in a deep cavern, um, and shut off any sources of uh, artificial light, you will experience this. There is no visual perception whatsoever. And so uh, it is energy that we are seeing, and only energy. And even if we're looking at a, an object, a, a luminous object that is emitting that energy, it's the same situation. We're seeing the energy itself, not the object that's, that's emitting it. And so... Um, this is not uh, a new, a novel concept uh, or something um, extremely uh, original. The, the fact is now we can uh, put it in very precise terms. But in the fourth century before the modern era, in the, the famous uh, book of the Republic by Plato in Athens uh, 2,400 years ago, um, the famous parable of the cave. And without intending to do so, uh, uh, and in a sense talking about something else, um, and this would have been way beyond the state of, of physical science of the day, Plato gave a very uh, adequate um, model or an analogical description of the physical phenomenon of seeing, of perceiving the center. In the parable of the cave, and he it, it says it's as though... We, uh, human beings have always been confined inside a, a cavern and they're chained up and they can't leave it and they can't even turn around and they're, uh, they're facing this wall and there's a source of illumination behind them, either a, a fire or maybe the, the opening of the cave, um, in, uh, in daylight. And so all that they are perceiving are the shadows dancing on the wall in front of them, but they can't see what is ultimately causing those shadows. And so uh, that is a very satisfying description of the way we are perceiving reality. We're seeing specters 
the only wavelengths of light that will reflect off of the object and come into our photosensitive retina, that is what we form the image from. And so Plato had said that the actual object itself, which is beyond our perception, he called ideas or archetypes. And some, let's see, almost 2,200 years later, I don't know the precise date, around 
Paramount for me is controlling the setting. It is best in a comfortable and safe environment. We are not going to be exposed to some unknown contingency or people you don't know and you suddenly have to deal with. It is good at home or a rural place. These substances are not for everybody. Some people are not good candidates for something like LSD or mushrooms or ayahuasca. People that tend to be really nervous, high strung, and very relaxed usually are not good candidates. These substances are not for everybody. They can be wonderful and life-changing for many people, but they can also hurt some people. And then the guy asks him, what about the difference between consuming and the ritual act? He says, a lot of people think they need contact with shamans from the Amazon. I don't think this is a good thing. It is not good for the shamans because in a lot of cases they don't want this contact and you get phony people that become tourist promoters. I try to foster a reason for shamanism to exist in the world today and I don't think tourism gives that. It favors more a Hollywood type of shamanism. A ritual does not have to be something from another culture. What people need to do is to develop rituals that have meaning for them in their own lives. It is just a question of seriousness and respect for the archaic nature and sacred nature. If you have that proper respect and a little bit of knowledge about it, well, that will change your attitudes towards it. And that will breath more of a realistic attitude toward taking it. It is a question of attitude and seriousness. If someone really respects it and takes it seriously, that is a ritual act by itself. And that is more important than drums and feathers and belts. And it is enough (laughs) ritual context. Not that there's anything wrong with taking this things just for fun. There is nothing modern or new about that. Shamans do the same thing and always have. So, I don't know. I think that's a really great and sort of down-to-earth way of sort of bringing this all down. Where it's like, why does ritualism have to be copying an indigenous culture? Ritual should be something that is like fits your actual daily life and the meaning of your life. Like that is what ritual really means. It's brilliant. Yeah, no, it's a perfect it's a perfect way to describe what we're going to get into with the next series about the ayahuasca. Okay. What a journey. And I want to just say that as these energies are coming in higher and higher, you don't need any of this. No, you don't. Uh, Rama, you you kind of chose to play that you. It's valuable to you. Well, I just was, in a sense, part of that whole scene where I met Terrence McKenna and Timothy Leary. I haven't met this man, Mr. Ott, or other folks. You know, Dennis McKenna, I you know, have seen in various videos, I've never met him, what I can say, what they're bringing about, talking about this is that, you know, this is not a casual getting high thing, it is about getting in touch with primordial energy, meeting mother, and you better effing know what you're doing, that's what I gotta say, (laughs) Okay, well, we're done with that now. Let's be better get to take a, gotta take a, a break. Yeah. All right, we will do this and then we'll continue on the other side of the break with music and a look at the stars with our brother Richard and, uh, Kay Pacha and our sister Tanya Gabrielle. So we'll be 
back in a little while, maybe about 10, maybe less minutes. Namaste, everyone. See you in a little while. Pass the talking stick to you, Richard. Hello, hello. Hi, Richard. I was just going to say that K-Pops is 26 minutes and Tanya Gabrielle is 13 minutes for a grand total of 39 minutes. So you got a good chunk of time for yourself. Well, we've got a, we've got a full moon to talk about. Oh, good. Yeah. But, uh, welcome everybody. It's, uh, this report is for July 9th. And looking at the chart here, as I told you all last week briefly, we got Moon and Scorpio today and most of yesterday. And that moon is connected one, two, three, four, five ways, if you don't count the 135-degree angle to Jupiter. It's uh, sextile Pluto and trine the sun and square to Saturn at 25. The moon's at 26. And it's trine Neptune at 26. And it's tr- it's... Trying the sun, it's it was trying yesterday. It, the sun's at eighteen, Cancer. Okay, and the moon is moving. No, oh, probably. Let's see how fast. How fast is the moon moving? He wants to know. Click additional tables. The moon is moving fourteen degrees and twenty-one minutes per. day. Day. All right. So uh, there you go. Now it's opposite Uranus at 19 Taurus, and that was exact yesterday. And that was in, yesterday would have been interesting because it would have been exactly trying the sun and exactly opposite Uranus because the sun and Uranus are 60 degrees apart, you see. All right. So Uranus at 19, sun at 18, that's a sextile. Okay, moon is square Saturn. It's sextile Pluto. Pluto is opposite the sun. Pluto was square to Mars, has been for, mm, Mars is at 4 Taurus, Pluto's at 28, so it's been, Mars square Pluto's been going on all week, and uh, I, I, I'm thinking that uh, a couple of days ago, Moon, Moon, Pluto in Capricorn ruling governments, the fall of the British government a couple of days ago uh, would be uh, an indicator right there. Yes, indeed. Yeah, okay. So... 
Pluto opposite the sun, Pluto square Mars. Then we got the, uh, Neptune, um, Saturn, Saturn square the moon, Saturn trine Venus this week. Um, Saturn's at 25, Venus is at 21, so that's an approaching trine. So that'll give us a little support this first part of this week. And, of course, Saturn square Uranus is, is, is no fun, you know. Saturn's retrograde. Uh, Uranus is not, but Neptune and Pluto are. Next in line is Neptune, okay, Neptune trying the moon and trying the sun, and that makes a grand trine with Pluto making a kite formation with Pluto opposite the sun. Now, Jupiter's in eight Aries, and that's squaring Pluto at 10 Capricorn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. See, when, when Jupiter squares Mercury, it's asking for a rearrangement of thought patterns and perhaps ideas that one holds firm might be challenged. Yep, thinking is challenged all over this chart. Chiron is at 17, and so that makes it exactly square the sun. And then we got Mars at 4 Taurus. All right. And it's not really connected to anything else except that Pluto. All right, moon opposite Uranus, Uranus square Saturn, Uranus trine. Well, that's not really a trine. Just astro.com, they use some wide orbs for some of their line drawing here, but what we can say about that is no big deal. All right, north node is at 21 Taurus. Venus all by itself in Gemini, trine Saturn. That's the good. That's the good aspect of the of the of the day or the weekend here, and that pretty much covers it. Mercury at ten, and it's not doing anything over there except square the Jupiter. That's the only thing going on. All right, I think we we've covered it all. And briefly, for the the new moon, I don't know. Let's listen to Kaipacha, and then I'll talk about the the, the full moon here in in the break. All right. All right. Here we go. with the weekly paleo report this one is for july 6th of 2022 
And right now, the moon is in Libra, opposing Jupiter and squaring the sun, coming into a trine with Pluto. And I have just made it across the Atlantic over here to Spain. And I'm on my way back from the airport. And this is uh, as back to nature as I'm going to be able to get today. But it is very beautiful here. And it's very social. So we may hear some other folks coming around. And this moon is moving from Libra, that social sign of Libra, with Venus over there in Gemini. We've got both the moon and Venus in air signs. Communicating, friends, connecting. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. There's a certain youthful quality to everything. With that Venus moving through Gemini, the Puella Eternus, the eternal youth. Absolutely. We have that Gemini energy with the Sun and Mercury both going through Cancer, meeting up, of course, with Black Moon Lilith. Black Moon Lilith is doing a little dance with that sun, you know, back and forth, and Mercury also coming up here. And uh, as things move on, uh, you know, Moon goes into Scorpio. Intense, a little deepening of energy going on here. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. She moves through Scorpio. You know, after she opposes Chiron, she trines Venus and Saturn, squares Pluto, and by Friday, the sun squares Chiron. So we've had this T-square of moon, square, sun, opposite Chiron. You can see it in that chart at the beginning of the report. The other thing that's happening then is Mercury is in square to Jupiter. So that's going in from, again, Cancer, Cancer, Cancer. Lots of water going on this weekend here. And that square is over to Jupiter up there in Aries. Um, the only, the, I mean, I want to talk about so much today, but, uh, yeah, the sun is, you know, going to be, uh, coming into a sextile with Uranus and Mercury in square to Chiron, Venus trining Saturn by next Tuesday. So the full moon will be in Capricorn. The, the the moon does go into Capricorn on Tuesday. We're going to have that full moon next Wednesday. But um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the bigger picture of things going on and why you may be feeling a little intense feelings these days. <laughs> All right, well, that could be the song for today. You may be right. I may be crazy. Uh, it's, I forget the name of it. It's by Billy Joel. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, this could be a crazy Pele report, but uh, that's okay. That's okay. That's all right to be crazy once in a while. Not everything is linear, logical, rational, explainable, justifiable. Let's look at it. Let's go way, 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 way back. I've been really thinking about these things because we are in a big transition. This is, you know, not only the end of Kali Yuga. Yes, uh, uh, thousands of years age, entering into the Dwapara Yuga. Longer than that, we have been in the patriarchy. 6,500 B.C. 
was the fall of the matriarchy where we lived in harmony and peace with the earth, with our bodies, with Mother Nature. And there's been a lot going on since then, since the patriarchs came in, since the male energy came in, and since our thousands of years of socio-cultural, religious conditioning, societies, religions, teachers, parents, nuclear family from tribes and clans. We've gotten, you know, more and more confined, refined. We've stepped back away from nature. We're now coming into this age of Aquarius emerging out of a 2,000-year age of Pisces, the sign of the victim. And a lot of this is releasing victim consciousness. We are birthing a new age. It takes a lot of time. And not only that, but we have this wellspring of the past, this wellspring of the collective unconscious, of what we have been burying, suppressing, denying, and fearing for generations upon generations upon generations. And let's face it, what we suppress becomes distorted. And we have distorted parents having children, having grandchildren, having great-grandchildren. And the distortions and the suppression continues and goes on down through our DNA, down through the gene stream, down through the hereditary stream. In astrology, that's ruled by Cancer and Capricorn. The Cancer-Capricorn axis has to do with this hereditary stream. And so here we are with the sun Black Moon Lilith rules the shadow. The shadow is the result of what we fear, suppress, deny, and avoid. It turns into shadow and it doesn't disappear. It doesn't go away. It merges with the collective unconscious. Our personal unconscious combines with the collective unconscious. And it turns into a tico which I'm going to get into a little later. But today I just really want to talk about, you know, and particularly with the moon now moving through Scorpio, we see that we are so at at the the convergence, okay? You know, the Kali Yugas, okay? The page, end of patriarchy, the end of the age of Pisces, beginning of Aquarius, the end of a 4,000-year Jupiter-Saturn-Pluto cycle, Okay, just happened in 2020. So we're just, you know, we're, it's one cycle upon cycle upon cycle upon cycle. And what it's doing is it's purging us. It's clearing. It's cleansing. We are being baptized. We are being cleansed. We are, it's time to wash away the shame and the guilt that has been bred into us over these last few thousand years and many generations and many different cultural religions. And so we may be feeling, this is a time when, you know, the feelings come up and this is what the mantra is about today. It's using our feelings as guidance. And just consider 
consider the masculine patriarchal principle as being air and fire in astrology. It's clear, it's objective, it's logical, it's rational. And it's gotten us into what? It's gotten us into science. Science. And I attribute it really to the beginning. The beginnings of it was really around Sir Francis Bacon in the 16th century. Really came in with the scientific method. And this scientific method is a very left brain, ego, materialistic approach towards life, towards power, towards force. It is, and it has to do with replicating and duplicating. It's, it's, it's removing the soul. It's removing the water. It's removing the feminine. It's removing the Gaia. The Kundalini life force is getting squeezed out. It's like, it's like humanity has been like a wet towel getting squeezed out. These past few thousand years, man. I think you know what I'm talking about. It's getting more abstract and less human. And cancer is the sign I think, you know, is the, as the most human. It's the human experience. Cancer has one human experience after another, one emotional experience after another, one feeling after another. And so it's time, you know, because what happens is what we don't process, what we don't acknowledge, what we don't own, what we, what we really don't work on, turns into shadow and gets projected. And then we get to be the victim. Then we get to blame some external force, source, people, council, government, whatever, society, pharmaceutical companies, the drugs, the guns. We can blame, 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 blame. But it is really this time period now. And it will pass it's a question of how much damage is done before it passes. And that depends upon how many people wake up to the process that we're being called to go through right now. And so this week, I really want to talk about particularly Mars, the sword, the masculine quality, has moved into Taurus, this feminine earth sign. And the sun and Mercury and Lilith moving through Cancer. While Venus dances lightly through the Aries sign of Gemini. And allows us to talk about all of this that may otherwise be unspeakable. And let's not forget, of course, Mars is approaching the north node of the moon. It is approaching Uranus. The first week of August we will have a Mars-Uranus-North Node conjunction, okay, in, so, in Taurus. So this week now, the moon is actually coming around to Scorpio. The south node of the moon, in Scorpio, the sign of death, release, letting go of the old, and alchemically transforming, resurrecting into something new. So when we look at this, I'm, I want to I want to read to you a little uh, something from another book I was checking out on the plane uh, last night instead of sleeping. 
Here it is. Iron John by Robert Bly. It's a very powerful book. It does say that it is a book about men, um, but it's it's about life. And it has a lot to say about a lot of different things, right? Got my plane ticket here. It's my bookmarker. <laughs> but here. Shame can come in many from many sources from parents who deliberately shame us in order to make us more controllable, from addicted parents who shame us as a side effect of their own addiction, or from peers who shame us to get rid of some of their shame. Asking a parent for a response and not receiving it is cause enough for shame. We can ingest a shame-bound parent and receive shame by inheritance. Every invasion, whether sexual abuse or physical abuse, produces in five minutes shame that lasts for 30 years. Simply making up a false personality to please our parents can generate shame for a lifetime. The shaming we receive from irritable school teachers, manic Catholic priests, or our own internalized perfectionists increases the store of shame that gets poured into our hollow leg. And each drop of shame increases our commitment to isolation. We attend secret meetings of apology, submission, resentment, and collaboration. You see, we are all born into it from our family conditioning that has come from social conditioning, that has come from religious conditioning, you should be ashamed of yourself. And this shame is a burden that we carry with us, and it weakens us. It weakens our confidence. It weakens our ability to individualize. And Carl Jung talks about this, about becoming distinguished and distinct We are each distinct. This age of Aquarius is all about unity in diversity. Diversity. A diverse group of people that are individualized and distinct, each in their own unique way. We're coming into this. And in order to come into this, in order to stand out, in order to stand up, in order to stand strong, we need to cut with Mars through the emotional cords of childhood. This is the action from moving from the child to the adult, to becoming firm in our truth and in ourself, is to feel these emotions and not, you know, let these, let these feelings teach us. Let us open up to what happened in our past and what we have buried 
what we have just refused to believe, acknowledge, sense, feel, because it hurts. And it makes us feel like a victim. And we could fall into self-pity. And there's all kinds of traps. So this is this time period. The moon is waxing, 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 waxing to full. Right? From the new moon to the full moon. The life force, the juice, the kundalini, the energy is building, building, building. It's coming up. And like a fountain, like a water fountain, like a like a spring exploding in our brains, <laughs> especially with mercury and cancer, you know. Hmm. It's time to think, reflect. What this requires is stillness. Shh. My favorite mantra. Shh. <laughs> Turn off the machines, turn off the lights, turn off the sounds, turn off the music, turn off the screens, turn it all off. We need to sit with ourselves to allow these slow, deep feelings to come up in new consciousness so that we can reflect on them and then whoosh, let them sail, let them go down the canal, down the stream, out to the great mother ocean and let go of being a victim. Let go of feeling sorry for ourselves. Cut these emotional cords and release them and open into the strength into the beauty of the unique individual soul that you are, that each one of us is. And this is a big process. This is going to deconstruct when enough people own their shadow and stop projecting it. The mass formation, this whole mass psychosis is just based in, this is turning ourselves inside out. And when we cleanse ourselves of our shadow, we will not be turning ourselves inside out into a great big mess. Because we will be light beings. And this is a portal time period now from July 4th to the 7th. This is a very powerful time of downloading, of, of, of receiving. So really tap into this. is a, it's such a great time. And, and after the moon moves through Scorpio, goes up into Aquarius. Fire. A higher meaning. A purpose to our existence. A purpose to our life. There is a purpose. There is a meaning to all the madness. <laughs> I mean, and this is just like, this is a huge birth canal that we are, you know, we need to really push our way through. And for that, we need all the confidence that we can muster. And to get all the confidence that we can muster, we've got to let go of all the shame, of all the guilt, of all that we've done. We are human. 
humans make mistakes. Kids grow up. The main purpose of human life is evolution. Evolution is self-knowledge. As long as you are a bit by bit, little by little, day by day, becoming more self-aware, you are fulfilling your purpose. Boom. Done. Check. <laughs> Take it easy. Take a chill pill. You screwed up, you messed up, you made mistakes, you hurt people, you hurt yourself, you the list can go on and on. I've got a long one myself. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about, man. So it is, it is the situation. Compassion is not only the way of the Buddha, but it is the way of the heart. And the way of the heart, the way of the water, the way of cancer, the way of the feminine, is to accept and allow and feel and let go. And a whole new dawn will rise. Ow! <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I'd rather use my feelings to inform and direct my thoughts then use my mind to control and suppress my emotions as I have been taught. <laughs> I think you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. If you went to school... <laughs> You control yourself, young man, young lady. You sit down in that chair until that bell rings and da 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 da, da. I mean, we've had so much. Wow. No wonder they're unschooling the kids these days. <laughs> Let me get it one more time, man. Oh, yeah. I'd rather use my feelings to inform and guide my thoughts. So the feelings come up and oh yeah, it's like yes, I should think about that instead of instead of like oh I've, I've got to think about this and think about this. I don't have time to feel and, and ignore that feeling and ignore that sensation and ignore that you know the, the body and the feeling of, uh, because I'm too busy analyzing, categorizing, and computing. <laughs> no 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 no. Close that off for a little while. Take a break. <laughs> Take a break. Go into stillness and let the feelings emerge. And let the feelings inform the thoughts and guide those thoughts into memories. And let those memories guide you into further feelings and uncover the onion skins, the layers and layers and get down. Get down into the core root of yourself. Evolutionary astrology is based upon that we evolve through our emotions. You can think whatever you want. We have lots of ideals. We have lots of delusions. <laughs> we have lots of fantasies. But if you want to evolve, 
you're going to evolve through your feelings. So we got to feel these feelings. <laughs> One more time, man. <laughs> oh, God. I'd rather use my feelings to inform and guide my thoughts than use my mind to control and suppress my emotions as I have been taught. So this is a week. Mars slowly moving through Taurus, slowing us down. Yeah. Venus thinking in Gemini about the feminine heart energy and the sun cancer Lilith with Mercury there. This is, you know what I'm talking about. And we will be coming up to a very serious, sober full moon in Capricorn. Near Pluto next week. But I'll let you look forward to hearing about that when it comes. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Thank you, sir. Yeah, now about this upcoming full moon, uh, how do I start to talk about this? Well, let's do this way. Okay, the moon will be at 22, Cancer. And the moon, of course, the moon will be at 22 Capricorn. And Pluto is uh, about six degrees ahead of the moon. So after the exact opposition between sun and moon, for the next six days, the sun will continue to be opposite Pluto. So the midpoint between sun and Mercury, Mercury's at 18, okay. So the midpoint between sun and Mercury is 20 degrees Cancer. And the midpoint between moon and Pluto is 25 Capricorn. So the effects of this new moon are going to extend beyond the normal five-day period of, you know, roughly two and a half days before and after. It's going to extend for almost six days after. So this full moon is going to be in effect for nine days from 
from two days before the new moon to six or seven days after the exact full moon. All right. Double opposition, moon-Pluto opposite sun-Mercury. Now, at the same time, good old Neptune over there at 26 Pisces is going to be sextile the moon and Pluto Mm -hmm. and almost trine, you know, Yeah, almost trying the sun, all right? Sun at 22, Neptune at 26. That's in the zone for a trine, all right? So you've got an opposition and a sextile and a trine. That makes a triangle of forces, including five planets or five bodies. At the same time, Uranus at 19 will be sextile at midpoint between Mercury and the Sun and trine the Moon. So you've got another triangle of forces. These are these are powerful forces. These. These two forces. It, it's if you turn it sideways. Oh, and by the way, it, uh, I've got this set up for 3 p.m. on the 13th. Okay, Wednesday the 13th, 3 p.m. is the chart I'm looking at. If you turn it sideways, you've got a you've got a a, a W with the with the two upper points as as the oppos- opposition. All right. So you've got you got two two different totally different triangles of forces. One of them involves Neptune, and the other one involves Uranus. So, and of course, it involves Pluto and the Sun. So you've got Sun, Moon, Pluto, Mercury. These are very personal. Pluto is not so personal, but it kind of is ruling the whole social system on the planet at this time. You know, Pluto, Pluto, and Neptune and Uranus are the are the uh, how, how does Lady Cynthia says uh, Pluto is. Divine love. Neptune is divine wisdom. Mm. Yep. And Uranus is divine will. Mm-hmm. For the planet, for he in whom we live and have our being, Mother Earth. Okay, so divine will set the situation up so that divine wisdom could flow to humanity 
with divine love, you know, it's all about taking care of humanity at this point, right? Yes. Yep, and that's what the that's what the the kingdom of God or the kingdom of souls works on. The kingdom mm. of souls is working with to evolve more rapidly the kingdom of humans. So if you do nothing, you're going to evolve very slowly. And uh, by necessity, Kaipacha has to be talking to average humans. Advanced humans are going to react differently because they're more developed and they do things differently. You know, advanced humans don't run on their emotional nature. They're more focused in their mental nature. So they think about things and they're connecting to pure reason which comes from the heart. Pure reason. Not the feeling nature. Not the emotional nature. That's what did in the Atlanteans. Mm -hmm. The Atlanteans didn't have a very well-developed mental nature. They were all about feelings. Mm. And it got out of control and they had to shut it down. But anyway, uh, what else is going on in this new moon chart here? We got uh, Venus, Venus square Neptune. And Mars will be still be square Pluto. And Uranus will still be square Saturn. And Venus will be square Neptune. So we got uh, one, two, three. We got five. We got five squares. Uh, a, a double double opposition, and we got uh, four trines and four sextiles. So very complicated. But that complication indicates. turning point here in the middle of the year. I think it's, it's going to be a turning point. And we're going to see going to see a lot of changes in the next 6 months. That's my prophecy. Lots and lots of more changes with the government and with the war and with the famine and with the monetary system and with the energy system and you know all that stuff because it's in the news every day. All right, yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm gonna uh, call it quits for now. We'll go listen to Tanya and uh, we'll see how it goes from there. Okay, Richard. I hope this has been helpful. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank you. Yes. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs>
Gabrielle here, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the forecast where we look at an astrology numerology event that is upcoming to help decipher the message so that we are aligned and ready to really be activated and supported as the event unfolds. In this case, July. July's 13 universal month number to be specific. 13 is such a powerful number and we're finally moving into a space in human history where 13 is not seen as a negative or detrimental or something to be feared, but is understood for the magnificence that it is. It is really one of the most powerful numbers we have. And since it's activated in July, it's a wonderful time to get to know this incredible vibration even more deeply. So July is the seventh month of the year and 2022 adds up to six. So if we add all those numbers together, two plus zero plus two plus two plus seven equals 13, which is how we arrive at the 13 universal month for July. And 13 is what I call the number of the divine feminine. 13 governs the moon's cycles. We have 13 lunations in a year and we have 13 weeks in a season. 52 weeks in a year, divide 52 by 4 and you get 13. Mm. So when you see the correlation between the lunar cycles, the seasonal movements, the moon moves around, the earth every 28 to 29 days. This is all about being tuned in to nature, to being open to change. And 13 does represent change, life, death, transformation. And through the release process, we open doors to something that is new and invigorating. And so we purify and then we get excited and passionate in the present moment. And this is really the cycle of the 13, which is why it's so empowering. Because if you didn't let go, imagine if you always carried the same bags on your shoulder and never took anything out and never replenished, you would soon really not be alive. You would shrivel up because there's nothing invigorating and enlivening and sustaining in the process of not changing. So 13 reminds us that change actually is the most empowering thing you can do. So it is connected to cycles, and this is why also because of the lunar cycles, it is connected to the divine feminine and the cycles of the feminine cycles that we go through as women. We're born and we have after puberty begins, our rhythm that unfolds and it is connected to the lunar cycles. So 13 is one of those numbers where once you get to know it and accept the empowerment aspect in your life, you are open to really embrace not just birth, but the, the connection between birth and death. So death, of course, is something to be feared in our culture, in our 
way of seeing things and it, it shouldn't be because it actually is natural. I mean, the four seasons, the plants and the trees, they go through their process, right? The leaves, they, they fall off the trees and they die or the, the plants rejuvenate and the perennials come back and, you know, some die and don't come back, but then their seeds germinate in a new way. So see a seed is a good way of looking at this is when something is comes to the end of its season or which is cyclical or comes to the end of its life, then a seed is planted and that seed has been planted throughout the life of whatever the being is. And after the being departs, that seed germinates because there is always the process of growth in addition to the transformation. So we, we want to accept both. We need to accept both because in order to grow, we need to transform. So one doesn't even come without the other. So we have this embrace of change and that means the embrace of life and death and transformation. So if you only focus on one part of the process of change, meaning the death part, then of course you're going to be afraid because, you know, that's the last thing we want to focus on when we're alive is not being alive. So in July, we are basically being asked to vibrationally align with the fact that life changes every moment. And if we can surrender to that flow, if we can surrender to development of your life, especially the surprising part of the, of your life that develop over time. 13 loves to surprise because in the surprise itself, you must use your intuition. When you are taken off guard by something and it shows up in your life, you really have no choice but to use your intuition because your mind cannot process often when something shows up unexpectedly. And that's why 13 also governs surprising event, unexpected event, because it literally triggers your ability to then, okay, let me tune in. What does my instinct say? Right? You have a gut feeling. And you trust that and you move forward because your mind is not capable of going to where it needs to rationally dissect and analyze and, and, and make decisions based on bullet points that it comes up with. That is often not possible, especially as things move more rapidly, right? Which they are now because we're in the midst of a major transformation on earth to begin with. So embracing this number will set you up to feel a lot more joy and a lot more connection because you're not resisting the shift within you that is propelling the shift that earth is undergoing now, that humanity is undergoing now. So it opens up then a total trust in the universe. You're not second guessing. You're not wondering why asking, you know, why is this happening? Or poor me, or can't it be different? Wishing that things were not the way they were instead of being so present that you can ground yourself, be like be the tree that has the roots and 
any wind that comes, you're able to bend the branches and be able to receive the sun and receive the rain and let it soak in. And really the, the image of the tree is just beautiful here. And that brings me to the root number of 13 because one plus three reduces to four. So the root number, the single digit number that 13 is aligned with is the number four. And if you look at, remember the 13 weeks in a season, we have four seasons. Incredible how the numbers line up here because four is also the four directions. And so four represents a huge part of our human experience and it's aligned with the 13. Four, the meaning of four is security and grounding and integrity and trust and honesty. And so four can also be architecture. It can be your home, your literal physical home. It is the ground. It is the earth. So it is the number that represents Mother Earth with the four seasons and the four directions. And so when the 13 and four are combined, you have both the fluid, transformational, changeable energy aligned with the very secure energy, which brings me back to the tree. So that that visual that you can have in your mind of a tree that is secure due to the deep roots that it has in the ground and, you know, soaking up the rainwater and, you know, being patient. And then the, the leaves on the tree that grow and then fall away, that is the transformational part. That's 13, bending in the wind. So we have it all here in this number. And it is truly just to accept and surrender to the goodness of the universe because the universe provides, God provides, source provides, spirit provides, your soul connection, who you are, that's who you are, is this ability to tune in and be present and grateful at all times, no matter what appears. And when what appears is challenging, because of course, we grow through challenges. It is to be proactive, to move, to not sit there and be frozen in fear, but to literally face the fear head on and move forward into a transformational experience that then changes the energy and allows it to flow again. It's like an eddy where you may be in a canoe and you hit an eddy and you want to get out of it. And so you have to work a little harder because you need to really focus your energy to move out into the flow of the river again. So uh, a really powerful month that we're in. And if you recall from our last Star Codes podcast, the full moon in Capricorn is happening on July 13th. And so it is activating this number in a big, big way. So have a listen or watch that podcast. It truly is something that the universe wants us to align with is this energy of transformation and empowerment through change and openness and also to ground our, our energy in, in peace, in acceptance. So the Capricorn full moon embodies that happening on July 13th in a 13 universal month. And it has another code that's really powerful as well uh, that you will discover in that episode. So yes, go discover your own numbers in your code. 
I have a free masterclass at starcodeclass.com and it's just a great way to see what your numbers mean. For all you know, you have a four or you have a 13 or you have a six for 2022 as a six universal year. You, you want to know what those numbers mean and they show up in your birthday, your birth certificate name and in the degree numbers of your planets and angles in your astrology chart. And everything's explained to you. There's a handout for the free masterclass. So go have a look at that because numbers really are important and we have to always include them when we do our astrology because they work in tandem. And without the knowledge of frequency and numbers, we miss out if we only look at one modality and exclude the other, they're really sister modalities here, the astrology and numerology. So you can learn all about that in that free masterclass in starcodeclass.com. It's instant access. So enjoy that and have a beautiful, beautiful month of July. Lots of love. Are you still there, Richard? Mm. Are you still there, Richard? Yes, I'm still here. Oh, good. I just thought I'd say that you, you might have something to say after we listen to Tanya. Well, I was... Uh I was um, flipping an invisible coin between 22 Cancer and 22 Capricorn and thought we'd read it, read from uh, the uh, astrological mandala. How about them apples? Okay, I'll be quiet. Off you go. Which one? Well, all right, all right. Let's see here, I... I wasn't thinking ahead. I'm being very spontaneous here. All right, let's see here. Let's see here. 22 Capricorn says... Let's see Cancer. A young okay. woman awaiting a sailboat. Mm. The longing for transcendent happiness in the soul opened to great dreams. Here the symbol pictures the imaginative, youthful person who basically cannot be satisfied with his or her ordinary social environment offers. <laughs> you know anybody <laughs> like that? And who instead is longing for the unknown visitation of which he or she has dreamed. From the unconscious beyond, the concretization of a spiritual image 
spiritual because impelled by the wind. All right, the Latin pneuma, which means spirit, is hoped for and expected. The beloved may come, not in a glittering opera house, but in the silence of the inner sea of consciousness. And I would suggest that she's waiting for soul contact. That's that's what's unconscious for most people. Is it not conscious that they even have a soul? They forget. They forget that they would be here if they didn't have a soul that brought them and built this personality device that we're working with. All right, 22 Capricorn. By accepting defeat gracefully, a general reveals nobility of character. In the keynote, the realization that one may grow through defeat as well as, and perhaps more than, through success. Yes. That's how you learn. While the preceding symbol referred to the drive towards success in culturally organized collective endeavors, Mm. this one presents us with the possibility of turning apparent external defeat into an inner spiritual achievement. We have recently seen how totally vanquished nations, in parenthesis, Germany and Japan, have leaped forward and achieved great economic success. Much depends on the quality of the will and the inner integrity of the person. At this second stage, we find what seems to be a paradox. The spiritual life is always paradoxical. The great sinner can become most renowned saint and a medieval pope, a criminal. What matters most is inner strength. That's 22 Capricorn. Mm-hmm. That was good. Mm-hmm. Those are both good. Mm-hmm. They're both good. Let's see. Mercury's at 18 Capricorn right next door. So what's the Mercury influence here? The Union Jack, the Union Jack flag flies from a British warship. Dun, dun, dun. The protection <laughs> afforded to individuals and groups by powerful institutions in in charge of maintaining order. (laughs) Boy, that's that's current events, isn't it? Yeah, good old Boris. Yeah, good old United Nations, good old Putin. Mm. Yeah. So how come the United Nations can't, can't put
put down a tyrant that's gone berserk. Because the United Nations has already gone berserk themselves. Yeah, I know. It, it was a, it was there was a great hope there after World War Two. Anyway, this symbol reflects conditions prevailing in the past when Great Britain's fleet was policing the seas under the international principle of the freedom of the seas. Times have changed, but the concept remains valid. Power is required to maintain social order and relatively peaceful interpersonal as well as international relationships. Alas, this power can easily be misused under the pretext of preserving law and order. In quotes there, you know. Justice and compassion must balance social power and especially the power of privileged groups. <clears throat> Where this symbol appears, the need for protection may be in evidence, or it may be a warning against using power for selfish advantage. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All three of those. All three of those. And just to be complete, Pluto with 28 Capricorn. I know we've. I know we've read this recently, but yeah, let's see here. 28 Capricorn, a large aviary. The enjoyment of spiritual values by the soul, able to familiarize itself with their implications. So, anyway... Oh. That's all for now. I am out of here. Namaste. Thank you, Richard. Aloha. Aloha. Everybody have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week. Yes, we will. We shall. Yeah, okay. Namaste. Over and out. All right, Ram. What's this, mm. these numbers here for our conference call? Uh, 720-716-7372. And the pin code is three five three eight six three pound. Okay, we're gonna go and have a little chat. A little evening time chat, everybody, and we'll be back here at BBS Radio, the best radio there is in the universe, uh at the top of the following hour. Let's let's Come together right now. <laughs> Peace down, everybody. We'll see you on the conference. Namaste. Namaste. Welcome back, Welcome back everybody. <laughs> I just yes, it. let's finish the... Uh, we got a lot more. Well, I mean, we'll do... It's an hour and 42 minutes, I think. Yeah, well, how much is it all together? Um, two hours and 32 minutes. So that's about 45 minutes. Yeah. Okay, let's get on with it, Commander. And 
as you think, uh, consciousness is one of the most in, most uh, uh, meaningful words. Uh, consciousness is really we are human beings, because we have consciousness, and uh, it means that we have are connected with the spiritual world, and the spiritual world, I would say, is universal consciousness. Uh, also in your book, on the use of LSD as an aid to meditation, um, this is more of the psychedelic therapy, a, a deeper experience with a higher dose, or do you think that would also apply with more repeated lower doses? As no, I would it is a higher dose. Higher dose. But this must be... Um, uh, very dangerous for every person needs uh, at a higher dose for some being you need a very small amount rather than need a very high dosage to have the full experience and uh, you, I think uh, this procedure would be that you give a medium dose first and see how its reaction is and then you can decide you can give then for after uh, after preparation and every what you need for a good experience, then you can use the higher dose. And then you make sure that the person is, uh, reacts well to the yeah, compound. Yeah, yes. What do you consider to be a medium dose and what would be a high dose? I would say a medium dose is uh, 100. And a high dose would be uh, 250. And a low dose would be under 100. Yes, yeah, a low dose of 50. 50 microns. 50. And um, as I recall, uh, with um, Sando's Deli Seed, there were 25 microgram uh, pills. Uh, yeah. And that was, uh, that was designed as a stimulant. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so as an antidepressant type of stimulant? Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. Yes, also. But it was... Uh, a little dose, then you can take three or four pills. Oh, yeah, of course. And adjust it better. Mm -hmm. It's a lower dose. And they were stable, these pills? So oh, yes. I have this interview, and, and it's quite interesting because Larry says in the interview uh, something like, with a properly prepared LSD session, a woman invariably will have hundreds of orgasms <laughs> under the influence of LSD. And then the, the interviewer asked him twice, and he wouldn't answer the question, well, how about men? Can men have uh, how many orgasms can a man have with LSD? Exactly this question. Also in the play, and he wouldn't answer, he, they asked him twice, and he, he changed the subject. All he said was, well, I've made love every time I've taken LSD. <laughs> There's also another panel that that Ott is doing where he brings up basically he was saying like if our reality is based on matter right and and when we take psychedelics we can see actually energy waves and that really is what is reflected off the matter like we are seeing the energy the energy is what's showing us what the matter is so anyway he just goes off in a really interesting threads that um that I found really fascinating, and I was really surprised at how little people had watched his material, I guess. But whatever is out there that we like to think we're getting a faithful representation of, that is more, um, is more clearly um, described as energy than as matter in and of itself. So um, let's go to the first point, um, that all we can see is energy. Uh, in 
point of fact, the the way our sensory system works is uh, the, the the lens in the iris of the uh, in the front of the eye focus the rays of light, and uh, and the image is somehow formed on the retina in the back of the eye. I'm not going to talk about psychophysics. That's beyond this discussion. How that translates into some kind of a moving picture inside the mind, and and that's not only beyond the scope of this discussion. It's beyond our knowledge uh, completely. And so, um, what is happening is the electromagnetic force uh, or electromagnetic energy is reflecting off of the very external surfaces of objects in the outside world and entering our eye. And that's what we're perceiving. The only way we can perceive it is because energy is entering our eye and exciting cells, photosensitive cells on the back of the retina. If it weren't energy, we wouldn't be able to to sense it. And so um, we cannot see the object itself. We can only see what is reflected off of it. And if there is no electromagnetic energy present, if there is no light... Uh, what we call light is it's a small segment of the um, electromagnetic spectrum. But if it, there's none present, we are, as they say in Spanish, invidentes, we're non-seeing. And so if you've ever been in a deep cavern um, and shut off any sources of uh, artificial light, you will experience this. There is no visual perception whatsoever. And so uh, it is energy that we are seeing and only energy. And even if we're looking at a, an object, a, a luminous object that is emitting that energy, it's the same situation. We're seeing the energy itself, not the object that's, that's emitting it. And so um, this is not a, a new, a novel concept uh, or something um, extremely uh, original. The, the fact is now we can uh, put it in very precise terms. But in the fourth century before the modern era, in the, the famous uh, book, The Republic by Plato, in Athens, uh, 2,400 years ago, um, the famous parable of the cave. And without intending to do so, uh, uh, and in a sense talking about something else, um, and this would have been way beyond the state of, of physical science of the day, Plato gave a very uh, adequate um, model or an analogical description of the physical phenomenon of seeing, of perceiving the center in the parable of the cave. And he it, it says it's as though we uh, human beings have always been confined inside a, uh, a cavern and they're chained up and they can't leave it and they can't even turn around and they're, uh, they're facing this wall. And there's a source of illumination behind them, either a, a fire or maybe the, the opening of the cave um, in, uh, in daylight. And so all that they are perceiving are the shadows dancing on the wall in front of them, but they can't see what is ultimately causing those shadows. And so that is a very satisfying description of the way we are perceiving reality. We're seeing specters. All, all, the only wavelengths of light that will reflect off of the object and come into our uh, uh, photosensitive retina, that is what we form the image uh, from. And so Plato had said that um, the, the, the actual um, 
object itself, which is beyond our perception, he called ideas or archetypes. Um, and uh, some, uh, uh, let's see, almost 2,200 years later, um, uh, I don't know the precise date, around 1770, uh, Emmanuel Kant uh, published Critique of Practical Reason. And uh, there he conceptualized the same thing, and he said that the 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 essence that we couldn't see uh, was the the thing in itself, ding on zik. We couldn't see that. We were only so it was, we're experiencing specters, some kind of a an image. We like to think that it's a faithful representation, and I'm not going to go into the philosophy of solipsism either whether there really is something out there or not, because all of this just takes place inside, and the reality and the picture of it is inside. The seeing happens in here, not out there. And, uh, of course, you know, if you, you, it doesn't pay to think that wall's not there and run into it. Um, I mean, we have a lot of reasons to believe that this outside reality is there and that uh, we get a faithful representation of it. But the fact of the matter is we aren't seeing it itself. We're... We have to have electromagnetic energy present. It has to be a sufficiently intensive, and it has to uh, reflect off of it and uh, impact these cells in our in our retina. Yeah, so Jonathan Ott hasn't really been heard from in recent years. Um, he actually had a pretty serious personal tragedy happen to him. He was living in Mexico and had a really cool farm and research lab, and sadly, someone burned it down. Oh. Uh, an arsonist burned down his whole house, he lost pretty much everything, including all the original books Hoffman gave him. And apparently, according to some sources online, they used those books to, like, spark the fire. And so he moved to Colombia. Um, I'm not sure if he's soliciting donations still. This was about 10 years ago, so I'm mm-hmm. I'm not sure where he is now. But it was just kind of a sad note. Um, and I haven't really seen much of his stuff since. So. Well, what's weird about that is some, there were some people who had some conspiracies about what happened here because I guess a couple of years before this, like a big portion of Terrence McKenna's library burnt down, the McKenna Legacy Library somewhere. And it was like a fire that was started in a Quiznos next door. I remember seeing like around the time these, these like both of these fires happened, there were some people, you know, just thinking, well, is the government trying to shut down you know, psychedelic research. I mean, I did see those conspiracy theories floated around the time just because really of how close together those fires happened. Wow. So Jonathan Ott, I think, gives a really sobering and pretty realistic viewpoint of psychedelics. He wasn't an advocate, like a universalist, utopianist advocate of psychedelics. Um, in an interview, he was asked, what are your preferred strategies of risk management when using Ethnogens and how is it possible to differ between them, just consuming and something like a ritual act? He says, well, basically, you, what you are taking is the first thing. And second, you have to control the situation where you are taking it. I'm not a real friend of taking visionary drugs in the city or going to a disco or a rock concert, unless it's a very low dose of something you already know and know how to dose. Paramount for me is controlling the setting. It is best in a comfortable and safe environment. We are not going to be exposed to some unknown contingency or people you don't know and you suddenly have to deal with. It is good at home or a rural place. These substances are not for everybody. Some people are not good candidates for something like LSD or mushrooms or ayahuasca. 
People that tend to be really nervous, high strung, and very relaxed usually are not good candidates. These substances are not for everybody. They can be wonderful and life-changing for many people, but they can also hurt some people. And then the guy asks him, what about the difference between consuming and the ritual act? He says, a lot of people think they need contact with shamans from the Amazon. I don't think this is a good thing. It is not good for the shamans because in a lot of cases they don't want this contact and you get phony people that become tourist promoters. I try to foster a reason for shamanism to exist in the world today and I don't think tourism gives that. It favors more a Hollywood type of shamanism. A ritual does not have to be something from another culture. What people need to do is to develop rituals that have meaning for them in their own lives. It is just a question of seriousness and respect for the archaic nature and sacred nature. If you have that proper respect and a little bit of knowledge about it, well, that will change your attitudes towards it, and that will breath more of a realistic attitude toward taking it. It is a question of attitude and seriousness. If someone really respects it and takes it seriously, that is a ritual act by itself, and that is more important than drums and feathers and belts, and it is enough <laughs> ritual context. Not that there's anything wrong with taking this things just for fun. There is nothing modern or new about that. Shamans do the same thing and always have. So, I don't know, I think that's a really great and sort of down-to-earth way of sort of bringing this all down, where it's like, why does ritualism have to be copying an indigenous culture? Ritual should be something that is like fits your actual daily life and the meaning of your life. Like, that is what ritual really means. That's brilliant. Yeah, no, it's a perfect it's a perfect way to describe what we're going to get into with the next series about the ayahuasca. Yeah, I mean, he's, stuff. you know, he was just, he was talking about this in like the mid-90s before that industry exploded. Um, and by the time mm -hmm. it did, you basically just have his worst fears materializing. And that is what it became. So one really interesting thing about how I think Jonathan Ott opened the door for like less scientific, less academic-minded people to be let into this world of thinkers. When I say let into this world of thinkers, I mean people who were merely psychonauts. Sometime in the mid-1990s, these worlds sort of collided where a fairly serious journal called the Ethnogen Review that was published in the 90s, this little um, zine was also publishing writings of Jonathan Ott, other like scientific-minded people in the movement, botanists. The Ethnogen Review sometime in the mid-90s actually started publishing trip reports and writings of a guy under the pen name D.M. Turner. Now, D.M. Turner is actually a man named Joe Vivian. And he has his own section on Irwid. He was actually one of the first people that I know of to write a book on Salvia Divinorum. That was how I first heard of him, was from his Salvia book. But his more famous book, and this is a book that's free online, you can find a PDF of it, you can find the whole thing on Irwood. It's called The Essential Psychedelic Guide. A book that I don't, you know, it seems really obvious maybe that other people had written books like this at the time, but they really hadn't. And basically what the book did was it combined together like everything from McKenna, from Jonathan Ott, from even John Lilly, from all different psychedelic writers, authors, and thinkers into this context of being an end user, psychedelic user, taking heroic doses. 
So Dion Turner essentially made a name for himself as being a writer who would only write about his breakthrough psychedelic experiences to the point where, you know, he would write extensively about different heroic doses he would take with LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, DMT. Uh, DM Turner, you know, wrote about doing extremely crazy heroic doses of all different types of psychedelic drugs. And his essential psychedelic guide was basically like a, a kind of a concise manual um, for people, you know, like a, a shorthand manual as a guide for people who are deciding to do heroic dosing and what options they had, just what happens on different dosages. And in a weird way, Abby, I feel like Irwin.org itself actually kind of was really inspired by his original book, too. Like, I didn't realize the timing that his book actually came out right before Irwin existed. I thought it was the other way around. I thought he was inspired, really inspired by Irwin. But in fact, actually, he sort of inspired Irwin. Some of his original trip reports in this book read like some of the crazier trip reports you would read about on Irwin. Like, for example, he was the first person I read that actually did LSD and ketamine together. He was the first person I read that did things like salvia and DMT together. And I'll just read you a trip report of him taking LSD and ketamine. And this is 350 micrograms of LSD plus like a full 100 milligram dose of ketamine. Like what? Like explain what's like an average dose of LSD. Well, let's say an average dose back originally when LSD used to be very plentiful back in like the 60s, one hit or like one blotter or one sugar cube or whatever like one hit would be carried on was usually no more than 100 micrograms. In the stronger cases, it could be like 150. Um, so basically what he's describing is taking like three hits like acid or more. I mean, with, with an insane amount of ketamine, with an insane amount of ketamine, just imagine any of those in and of themselves is very intense, but he's doing it in combination with each other. This would be a completely insane thing to do for anybody. I mean, even if you are an experienced psychedelic user. So DM Turner in his book, the essential psychedelic guide and the psychedelic essence of salvia divinorum he actually did many experiments with combining DMT and salvia together. Uh, 650 micrograms of salvinorin A with 30 milligrams of DMT. And this is what he says in his trip report. Both the salvia and DMT entities seem to have been taken entirely off guard and had not been expecting these confrontations. These entities seemingly paid no attention to me as their attention was entirely fixed on each other. It soon became apparent that the two were going to do battle vying to determine who would have control of my consciousness. Soon <laughs> soon the salvia entity was running circles around me and had interpenetrated the DMT. It was not a pretty scene to watch, but salvia took the upper hand. Wow. The visions I was seeing while watching this battle were severely distorted, smooshed, reversed, and turned sideways. All the favorite creatures of DMT Elfland were put together with the wrong body parts or body parts in the wrong places. <laughs> Their normally gaudy outfits had been turned into white and brown plaid shins, and they were wearing brown leather shoes and carrying brown briefcases. Millions of these miserable little creatures were frantically running around as door-to-door -door salesmen. They were moving perpendicular to everything else 
on the surface of their planet as though they were obeying a gravitational force that was at a 90-degree angle from everything in their surroundings. Dude, that's the best trip report I've ever heard. That's wild stuff. And it really kind of goes back to, like, it doesn't tell you anything that your brain doesn't already know. And it's like, if the elves were of some sort of, like, alien consciousness or, like, higher being... Like that, what would explain this? Like the fact that the Salvia elves like ran them out and like made them born. It's amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. But I guess what's really special to me about DM Turner is he brought all this very down to earth and made it seem like why not do crazy psychedelic drug combinations? Um, you know, why shouldn't this be part of the the journey to reach these higher spiritual states through psychedelics? And in a way, I think he was really right in this. It's not that he was sort of taking a cue from Ott. He was also taking a cue from old school spiritualists in the United States, like the original New Age movement, if you want to call it. In the late 1800s in the U.S., um, you read about people experimenting with with trying to achieve psychedelic states on drugs, even though mushrooms and LSD weren't around yet back in the 1800s. Drugs like hashish, belladonna, opium, laudanum, those are all around. And people are actually using those in combination and it was actually normal for spiritualists to like – even some of them had recipes. Take this much hash with this much laudanum with this many like detura seeds together and then stand in front of like a black mirror with a candle next to you in a darkened room. That would have been really fucking like psychedelic. I think – and this is something that hippies and even the later like 90s, the McKenna psychedelic people, they shied away from the idea of combining these drugs together. And I think they made them more about the individual drugs. Like these are almost like individual plant spirits to be revered rather than, I guess what I'm trying to say is there was this box that people put themselves in where DM Turner was sort of removing that box. Also breaking down that barrier between like academic stuffy, even the way Ott would write about stuff and like the normal end user psychonaut. They both had articles running in the Ethnogen Review, which was a pretty, you know, a magazine that was taken pretty seriously. So I think this really, brought it down to a certain level where this really opened the door for Irwood. And sadly, DM Turner um, was one of the first casualties of, uh, I guess you could call it a ketamine overdose. Um, DM Turner lived by himself, apparently because his body was discovered, which is pretty gruesome to think about. It's horrifying. His gravestone lists the day his body was discovered rather than the Ugh. actual date of his death. Um, so sad. And... Here's what's disturbing. He was discovered on the 24th of January, and he actually technically died on the 1st of January. Oh, um, in the bathtub too. So I don't want to. Oh, make, I don't want to bring anybody downer, but I mean, so sad. But it's so sad that no one else thought to check on him. Well, I know that. I mean, it just shows to show that some of these people were just kind of loners, and yeah, they made a whole name for themselves, and they led almost like a double life on the internet and through right. their pseudonym writings and. His death caused a lot of people in the psychedelic community to think ketamine was bad, was a bad psychedelic. And I think, again, this sort of pushed further this wedge between the natural and synthetic drugs. Like synthetic drugs were more bad, you know, and then these um, natural psychedelics were more good. And ketamine kind of kept getting pushed more and more to that side of being like a dark synthetic drug that people could die from. And I don't know exactly what happened to him, but from what I have heard, he did an injected ketamine experience in the bathtub, which a lot of people 
I guess, would do at this time still because... That sounds so scary. Well, when you're by yourself and you don't have anybody to check on you, it is pretty irresponsible. I mean, John Lilly did ketamine in an isolation tank, you know, and I think a lot of these people yeah. were maybe trying to recreate some variation of that. But what, what basically what happened is people say that he stood up to try to get out of the tub and fainted. Um, so it was actually like hit the blood rushing to his head too fast that caused him to faint in the tub. So he drowned um, on January 1st, 1987. And, of course, you know, the fact that he was writing about doing these crazy psychedelic drug combinations already made him, as according to Irwin, both lionized and criticized within the underground psychedelic community. For me, that was more like lionization. It's like this guy is doing crazier shit than anybody else. Like this is amazing. But, of course, him dying probably just sort of – it just made those people who were criticizing him feel, you know, like, yeah, this is what happens. Like, he was irresponsible. Like, But, yeah, he was also one of the first people to write a book about Salvia, and he wrote it in 1996. Sad sad story, but, you know, you, know, you are self-administering drugs, and you are taking heroic doses in combination with other drugs, and you're doing it by yourself. So I think one takeaway from here is if you're doing these kind of things – don't do them by yourself or at least have somebody to come and check on you. That's something I think we should all <laughs> take heed from that when you do heroic doses, even though oftentimes the experience, it's important for you to be by yourself to have that full immersion for, during the peak experience. You are, you know, drugs like ketamine do can, can cause physical side effects and you know, you do need to make sure that you're physically okay. It, it, it's like you wouldn't, get really, really blackout drunk by yourself. You know, even that sounds dangerous. You know what I mean? Well, if even like, yeah, like when Dolores O'Reilly and like drank too much and then just passed out in the tub and died. It's like, exactly. it's just, it's just crazy. It's like crazy that anything can do that to you, let alone something as powerful as ketamine and doing that shit while you're laying in a body of water without anyone knowing, I think it's highly irresponsible. And I mean, I, I hate to say that, but it is, it's just really sad you know, like McKenna, he also didn't talk about the negatives of psychedelics, really. This is the negative of psychedelics, the yeah. way that he died. Mm -hmm. Impossible to separate that from his work. I mean, maybe I'll just, I, I can just briefly describe, um, you know, ketamine experiences that I've had because for people who don't know what it's like, it is a disassociative anesthetic that is given still in surgery and in veterinary. Like it's, it's mostly giving out in veterinary offices, um, it doesn't depress the respiratory system like other anesthetics do. So it's considered safer for children, considered safer for smaller animals. Yeah, the ketamine experience is very different from other psychedelic drugs in the sense it doesn't give most people open-eye hallucinations. It's not the type of drug where you go out in, in nature and stare at the sunset to get like hallucinations or visuals. When you hear people describing ketamine hallucinations, they're likely talking about internal closed eye visuals. Two whole different styles of hallucinations that different kind of psychedelic drugs enhance. But for me personally, ketamine is a very internal closed eye hallucinatory drug where it doesn't just give you like dreamlike imagery. People describe nodding off on different opioids where you sort of have these little glimpses of dreams as you're going in and out this is different where it's more like almost like a internal world that you sort of get sucked into that feels like you're sort of on the cusp of some kind of dream space 
that is not colorful, but is also very, very immersive. It's, it's very hard to describe, but one way I would describe it for people is imagine like a 3D game engine, like a 3D video game where the light is very, very low. Like imagine if like the lighting engine is turned off, but you can somehow still see all of the 3D detail of everything. And that's my, been my personal unique experience on ketamine when I've had very strong hallucinatory experiences as I've actually had what I guess would be described as almost like dreamlike imagery where I'm floating through a scene, an environment that is very, very detailed, but also like very dark, almost like a feeling of flying through actual, like a dark outer space where you're looking at like dark matter structures of like high exquisite detail, like gigantic spaceships that are like 40 miles long there that look like insane cityscapes, you know, like shit like that as I've seen on ketamine that I have not experienced on other psychedelics at all, where you can just sort of sit there and look and pour over the detail, almost like an amazement. Like how is my brain making this? Um, Mm -hmm. I've, I've had a lot of that kind of experience on ketamine where it feels almost like impossible that my brain is able to generate. You sort of maintain a level of, Almost like your conscious brain, like a like a mini lucid dreaming kind of a effect. I don't know if you what your experiences have been like, Abby, but that's probably like you know some of my coolest experiences have been like that. Well, I remember when I first did it, um, you told me to do it in the dark, and you told me to just do it laying down in the dark. And I did have a very similar experience, except way like less intense and way less detailed. So yeah, I mean, it, it. I just remember it being really cool, feeling like you're flying through kind of a similar universe, but it definitely wasn't highly detail oriented like that. It was just more kind of psychedelic feeling. But um, that was the one and only time that I had done like a dose like that. And did it? And you've also done DXM before, right? Like, did that compare to how did it compare for you? Well, I did DXM when I was just like a dumbass in high school, and I just like went out. Like to like a Denny's. Oh my god. My friends. Yeah, and I was just, I just remember everything was delayed 10 seconds. Like I remember dropping a giant glass of like Coke, and then like 20 seconds later, I was like, it like all happened in like an extreme delay. (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah, I mean, it was just that kind of, it was just really, really weird. So I can't even compare the two experiences because it was just so different. I mean, I would have loved to try it when it was actually intended for, like in the dark, you know. Mm like really fully get the visuals but yeah i mean one of the most intense experiences i've ever had was taking and mom's not gonna like hearing this but taking ketamine in combination with lsd like i didn't do as nearly as high of a dose as what dm turner did but i did a high enough dose where i fully like ripped myself inside out psychologically total disintegration i thought i became like there was even a crazy part of it where my roommate joey had his pug staying with us for like a week and I could hear his little gruntings throughout the house all the time <laughs> and while I was tripping I must have been hearing them you know just like in the, like a, a, the corner of my ear my entire trip became defined by <laughs> I all of a sudden became him I turned into him lying down on my bed by myself and I felt his like the pain of his respiratory system, like whatever makes him snort. Like I became that animal. I could feel the physicality of like struggling to breathe and like walk with these little stubby legs. It was extremely fucking intense. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. 
and I do think you you have to be really careful uh, with psychedelics, especially if you're not in a great place in your life. If you're already having a lot of other, you know, depression, different feelings like that, it's probably not the best time to do psychedelics. So that's why I'm nervous or worried when I see a lot of this increasing trend in the more, you know, the modern world of psychedelic utopianism and mainstream education of like saying that psychedelics cure depression. I don't personally think that that's a wise message to, in terms of to creating progress with the psychedelic movement. I think that it's misleading and I think that it's potentially harmful, but I think there's a lot more people recently who have experiences with psychedelics who maybe even used to be more utopianist who are coming out of the woodwork now saying like, no, actually look like this, you know, we've got to talk about some of the bad sides of all this stuff. And some of like the problematic figures and, and trends in the movement. I mean, not all this stuff is great, you know? Well, that's the problem is because of the stigmatization and yeah. the demonization and the criminalization, there is a tendency to be this reflexive, positive enforcement. Everything that's good about it, why we should decriminalize it, why we should legalize these things. And you, you kind of do want to paper over the negative things that could reinforce all the, the bad dogma and the mythology surrounding these psychedelics because you do want to encourage people to try them. You know, I think that the problem is that because it's such a relatively unknown thing and because of the criminalization of it, we don't understand that or a lot of people don't take away from it that like a lot of this is in moderation is like the clause that should always be put, uh, you know, at the end of when you're, when you're suggesting that people should use these things or talking about the potential benefits of them, it always is in moderation or specified to a particular individual's case. So it's not even that you are trigger or have family history of psychosis or whatever. It could be completely random. And that's where it gets into the realm of kind of treacherous terrain. Applying the model of we need to swing the pendulum in the other direction and be just hyper positive about these drugs because of the way they've been stigmatized is part of the rationale for why McKenna probably operated someone in the way that he did. I can understand it. But again, we saw that model being used with marijuana, like legalization advocates, hyper positive, you know, trying to swing the pendulum so strong in the other direction. The, the thing about marijuana is that it isn't dangerous really in any way. Maybe there's some people who can get triggered to, into psychosis from it. We don't really know what the linkage is between marijuana and mental illness, if any. It seems relatively benign. I mean, most it's pretty benign drug. You can't take that same model and just apply it to psychedelics because psychedelics are not benign. They're very, very powerful. And some of them can also be dangerous and cause people to do reckless things and not think. And you need people around you. There's a lot of precautions you need to take with psychedelics. And that is something that is not emphasized enough now. And I think that we're starting to enter a new era where we're just starting to see more and more of that glossing over and more people just trying to take that hyper-positive approach. Well, especially because they're so different from each other, too. It's like a lot of these people are talking about, you know, when we're talking about MAPS research, which we'll talk about in the next episode, a lot of it's focused on MDMA, completely different drug than DMT, completely different drug than ketamine, you know, and completely different drug than acid and psilocybin. It's like you cannot lump psychedelics together 
and generalize them or anything. I mean, they're, it, it's, it's a very complicated topic that deserves a lot of nuance and explanation and sifting through all of these things. And hopefully as these compounds are decriminalized and accepted more and more in the mainstream, this conversation will open up with the good and the bad about them. Yeah. And I also think that there's, People need to go into this with their expectations, I think, different than how they typically do. Because I remember feeling almost like I was inferior, not just because I couldn't do heroic doses as smoothly as I thought. Imagine McKenna doing them, but because I actually remember tripping much harder than some of my friends who would take like the same dosages of psychedelics and feeling like maybe I just can't handle my shit or, you know, being made to feel like, because like certain very intense experiences I had with like ego loss that were so intense and so difficult that that was just because like I wasn't mentally strong enough or something. And even just things like getting nausea, mm-hmm. you'll find out that some of these maybe more utopian psychedelic people in the movement, I've talked to them firsthand and they'll be like, oh yeah, I never get nausea. I've never had like any nausea from any psychedelic experience. And it's like, well, fucking good for you, dude. Like, yeah, right. Let's just say I'm envious of that. And it also kind of explains your utopianist worldview. You're basing it off of your own firsthand experience and not listening maybe to other people who are like, yeah, like I get nausea from this and it's not. Oh, and then even some of those people will get a little arrogant about it. They'll be like, well, you know, nausea is caused by like a psychological thing when you're on psychedelics so you get nauseous. And I'm like, "Mm, I feel like that's kind of you throwing shade a little bit and acting like, again, that you're just stronger minded. And that people who get nauseous on psychedelics are somehow more fragile or something. There is sort of a, a little bit of like a, a pissing contest nature to it rather than something that feels more vulnerable and like accepting of all types of people's experiences. And that's, you know, and again, that's like a thread, thread that bothers me as we t- continue to talk about this. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. That concludes episode three of our series on psychedelics. If you'd like to continue listening to this series and check out part four, become a subscriber to Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. On episode four, we go into the internet era of psychedelic drugs. We discuss the origins of Arrowhead and the obscure figure who is behind funding most of the early and influential psychedelic institutions like MAPS, DanceSafe, and the Hefner Institute, Microsoft employee number nine. This figure arguably kick-started a new psychedelic revolution and helped level the playing field of psychedelic drug knowledge. The new availability of legal psychedelic drugs and even over-the-counter psychedelic drugs that could be purchased at drug stores in the U.S. And just as a side note, if you haven't heard me going to my own DMT experience before. You can hear that in the Freemasonic history of the United States, part six, at the very end of that episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Geometric compressionism or morphogenetic compressionism or psychedelic compressionism, depending on which one of us is talking, sure you can figure out who is who. But the idea is drawing together that a new phenomenon has been discovered in the universe, which is 
It's drawing togetherness. It's tendency toward cohesion. It's tendency to move toward greater and greater states of wholeness and not incrementally, but in sudden, highly punctuated stages that allow phenomena like history or the 20th century uh, to come into being. These are uh, great leaps forward toward this cohesion that nature pushes toward. And as I said, I don't think that it's uh, millions of years in the future. I think this millions of years in the future stuff was a very brief phase in scientific discourse. And that as organisms, what we need to come to terms with is the, the chaos, the turbulence, the turmoil, the ephemerality, and the, the high-stakes nature of the game. You know, even if no asteroid strikes the Earth, each one of us in this room will die. And so life is guaranteed to be interesting, uh, even if you don't live in one of these epochs when there is uh, asteroidal impact or geomagnetic reversal. Nevertheless, uh, the ultimate challenge is built into the biological script. We, we each have our own apocalypse, and so we should live life in anticipation. Okay. Mm. Wow, that was a long one. It was. Okay, we're going to do something a little different. Our brother Carlton discovered this and shared it with us. So it's called, What Color Is Your Soul? A chat with Denise Dryden about souls, colors. Julia Balaz and Denise Dryden have a fabulous exploration of the ways to use galactic astrology to identify our galactic lineage and support our unique frequencies we hold as seated humans. As you are wanting to know more about indigo, crystal, rainbow, or diamond frequencies, and where our mas- where our masteries originate. This breakthrough. Wait, wait. I'm trying to get it ready. Yeah. Okay. We'll turn the sound on me. <laughs> um, this is a very informative video. Learn more about Denise's deep explorations, uh, and then they have places that you can go do that. So this is. Um, uh, 49 minutes. Okay. So let's just jump right back in there. Hello, Julia. I am so excited that you're here today and that we were able to, to book a time to, to talk and explore with each other because we've never met. And all we wanted to do was put the two faces together, two energies together, and see what might happen. Hi, Denise. Yes, feels so natural to be talking to you. It just feels like we must have met before. <laughs> we must know each other from from prior. It's just I feel such beautiful resonance with your uh, vibe, with your teachings, with everything you represent. So I feel extra joyful today 
for this wonderful opportunity. Thank you so much for reaching out. And I'm super excited now to introduce you to my audience and everyone who will be guided to our video conversation uh, because from what I've learned about you is it took time to research your website, your YouTube channel, your work. You are a passionate um, teacher, historian, and it seems that the highest excitement has led you to explore in depth indigo frequency and frequencies of souls that I identify as master soul. So indigo, blue ray, violet ray, and now also crystal souls, rainbow souls. Did I miss any? Diamond souls. There's the big one we're going to, which is the diamond frequency yes. that we now have on our planet that has changed everything, right? <laughs> oh, I'm so, so happy that to meet someone who is dedicating their all time to researching this and teaching, sharing what you're coming up with. And of course, then also attracting all these wonderful high frequency souls where you can then collaborate and uh, expand this in, on a quantum level, right? There this big leaps once a group collective comes in, it, it uh, starts growing so beautifully. So yeah. So the name of your website is Denise Dryden. Is that how you pronounce your surname? Denise, Denise Dryden. Dryden. And so is your YouTube channel. And I would really like to invite all the viewers to go and see the YouTube channel because you have invaluable content and just mind-blowing conversations with your wonderful friend, Lisa Gunshaw, talking about what it means to be an indigo soul or any others that I've mentioned, this high frequency. I'll just call them master souls and um, or activators or, you know, change bringers, the evolutionaries, guides, teachers, there are such a huge amount of these. And I know personally from my work over the last seven years, my strong attraction point is these, you know, aspiring leaders, teachers who go through quite challenging childhood, teenage years, early adult years, so many, so many challenges, really heavy duty stuff. But then a point comes when they shift from victimhood, confusion to self-empowerment, understanding, and then deep desire to lead others out of darkness into light, into joy, into abundance, and all that. So you have a wealth of information available for that particular level of consciousness. So go check it out, everybody. Thank you. And I would like to return the favor. This is the Mutual Admiration Society here, right? You know. So this is Julia Balaz. And did I say that correctly? Perfect. Yes. Thank you. And I met, I, I came across you through an interview with Elena Danon, and you run, you have a website that's Quantum Healing Journey, and it's in Ireland, so it's an IE at the end, right? So I'm at .com in the U.S. And you do galactic astrology. You can pinpoint um, through the zodiac chart and the the trines and the um, the connections where our planetary access influx um, influences from, which has been something that I ha- it's been a blind spot for for the work. Which is I know I can recognize these children or teens, you know, when they get to be about 13, 15, 16, you know, the, the family lineage clashes hit. And I came into it through therapeutic programs where kids were shipped off to wilderness programs and therapeutic boarding schools because the family system couldn't work with them or the parents. And 
knowing that there's a galactic reason for that, that there's lineage work, that we are doing deep DNA uh, mining and uncovering means that this work that that I do and you do, you know, provides validation. So what I noticed in how you read and in the different sites, because I, I think I watched just about everything on your website, <laughs> is that you can you can you can you can watch the rece- receiver go like, oh, it's so true, and their eyes water up, and they're like, that's me. I know this has always been me, but I didn't know. And so what I've noticed is that these galactic masters who have volunteered from all over every galaxy we can find to come in and do this earthwork have this veil of forgetfulness. So there's suffering and there's trauma and there's hurt feelings and there's victim energy that if we can move them out or help them sort of dust it off and put it way behind them, then they become that, that leader, that master that our world needs. So our work is just woven together beautifully from completely different angles. I love it. I love that. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And um, I have to say, you can approach this certainly from the intuitive, tuning into soul records, just feeling the frequency and letting your heart guide you and inform you that, yes, you are this high frequency and you came here for a higher divine purpose. Or you can take this from the left brain, analytical, logical, the scientific researcher, uh, wired person, where you can look at astrology and look at the natal chart, and it's all there, too, as a validation. So for many people, seeing something like that, black and white, is crucial, because unless they see it, there's always this element of doubt in them that is not allowing them to fully let go of those old uh, victimhood and confusion and not good enough uh, identity. So it's wonderful that we can now, you know, bring together a huge amount of data and start validating some of this information from a galactic perspective. And it's really all there. So I love that you, you have to use logic and science to support and to build this um, uh, knowledge and information. Uh, when I first came across this, I was in admissions watching this very specific kid come in over and over and over again, which I got kind of used to. And you kind of used to that oppositional defiant rebel indigo, right? You know, they, they're just not going to take much and they're truth seekers. And then, then I noticed in about 2005, the profile changed and it started to go to a very quiet, introverted, vibrational, kid and I'm like whoa, whoa whoa wait a minute what just happened and that's when I started going to my channel and asking very specific questions where I could access the masters who were and then documenting it right you know and I, 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 I transcribed everything and going yes that's the energy frequency that's this then I knew how to approach it but I didn't have that scientific base so for me what I struggled with was how do I provide some sort of a reference point for questioning parents, especially because in the private therapeutic industry, these are the big heavy hitters of the world. They're the researchers, the Harvard Yale graduates, the politicians, the entertainers, the Fortune 100s. And so I came across Elaine Aaron's work on the highly sensitive, and that was the clinical piece that I could at least 
uses a touchstone. And so I've been looking for other touchstones um, since then to be able to direct um, someone with a very logical need for facts um, structure to have something to hold on to because you and I, we know what intuitive information feels like and we've trained ourselves over the years to work with that. Yes. However, if someone who hasn't trained that needs something to hold on to. Absolutely. I've seen um, it over. Yes. yes. So we have created a website that is freely accessible to everyone and there is no need for login or it doesn't store even your data or anything. You can just enter your birth details and get a free report showing you what most common, 54 most common big stars uh, alignments are present in your natal chart. Because what we believe based on years of uh, this work is that when a soul is indeed coming from different star system, coming here as a galactic master soul, during their time of birth, because our universe is arranged mathematically, geometrically in a very specific way, this quantum entanglement uh, that occurring needs to be supported by very precise geometrical alignments of planets, stars, all the celestial bodies. So we found that soul coming, for example, from Pleiades at that time of birth will have Pleiadian connections in their chart, either to sun, moon, or any of the planets in their astrology. And likewise with any other, you know, Arcturian, Spirians, so on. So, but with regards to these higher frequency master souls, I found that they are multi-galactics. It's not just one. We cannot pinpoint just one and this is indigo and all the others aren't. They are multi-galactics. And equally with zodiac signs, we cannot say that, you know, Aries, uh, you know, Aries, strong Aries will be the indigo and the others will be different frequency or Scorpio or any. They are in their zodiac charts. What I'm seeing with these master souls that they have a very busy, very complex, uh, just traditional astrology chart alignments to the point where you can see how they are meant to integrate all 12 signs, archetypes of consciousness and become a whole being raising into that 13 sign of master that sees everything from higher perspective. So we cannot really just say one or the other. Mm-hmm. And, and what I noticed is that when with the Zodiac, yes, taking on each of the 12 signs makes sense. And then making sure, and, and, and I sort of moved over towards the elements, which is there four elements that are represented. So then how do you work with the pains or the challenges or the gifts that come with water, you know, um, with betrayal? And so I, you know, was able to, to identify a core wound with each of the um, the elements and then say, how do you bring all four elements so that you can hold those at all times within your system? Because I'm, I come in it from a tarot reading, right? When you talk, I know those four elements really well. So it, it's, it's beautiful to take it to, to four elements, 12 zodiac signs into this 13th level of complete galactic or intergalactic or multi-galactic mastery. Yes, absolutely. And I have to say for anyone who isn't a left brain logical researcher type and really just um, intuitive, you don't need to dig deep into all these. This really is just, you know, different people need different permission slips to evolve further beyond the point they're at. So, all this is just a stage and eventually once you get to understand how you think and you know this 
kind of divine orchestration behind everything that ever happened to you. Once you release all the false identities and limitations, then you will drop even this labeling, uh, you know, of blue master souls and all that. Even that will no longer matter. And you will just be an embodiment of compassionate wisdom, encouraging others to become sovereign beings. So I want to always highlight this, that it, we are not clinging to these labels. We are just always moving on uh, and helping those that are needing it right now. Would you agree? I, I have had my my butt handed to me so many times by the masters when I'm like, okay, can we can we work with Asperger's or can we work with Indigo? Or we, and they're like, we're going to hold this label for you right now because that's how you gather. <laughs> like put it all in the file and then just drop it and open it up and allow yeah. it to be. And when you were talking about having all of this um, linear analytical information around you, I was imagining what it's like when, um, if it's scattered all around you, like everywhere you turn, there's a zodiac sign that's talking to you, uh, 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 an aspect, uh, an element, an image is not different than when you go for a walk out in nature and when you really calm down and listen, the flowers are showing you something, the, the trees are showing you something, the rocks where they're placed, the way that you're moving through it, the, the level of relaxed consciousness is wisdom embodiment, right? Oh, so beautifully highlighted. Yes, definitely. And then, of course, it's also in relationships and everything, not just nature. When you mentioned the, the elements, what I'm seeing is that if someone has over um, developed element or too much of certain element in their being, they will always attract someone who have the polar opposite of that. And there are always partners that are opposing each other or true children. And we are so supported towards our path of completion and wholeness. There are always, you know, missing pieces of a puzzle. They are presented to us. We just need to pay attention and then just be in awe and gratitude for the magical game that we are in. Yeah. In these last two to three years, our my favorite statement has been, and then that happened. And that's <laughs> all that I can do is just go, okay, so that just that just crossed my path and it and there's no reaction. There's yes. no anger, there's no fear, there's just like one well, that just happened and, and then this one and this one and I wonder what they mean. And so become whether we train through through each of these vehicles or any other vehicle that we haven't, you know, brought in at this point, whether it's astrology, history, reading, you know, galactics, um, it all is just information that either validates and allows us to start stepping into ourselves, and that's my whole point in identifying these four energy systems. And their and their intentional seeding, and that's what I wanted to to sort of talk to you about um, with this. With this, is 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 it possible to have an intentional frequency seeding that arrived at a certain time, and then and then watching what happens with it, and then to be able to validate at all times, it was hard. You had no memory. You had to go inside and say, "I have the skills somewhere in me to handle this," and not very many of us as humans have that kind of maturity or wisdom at birth. It's something that we take 20, 30, 40, 60 years to figure out, right? Yes. That, oh, that's what I'm here to do, which is to stop being hurt and reacting to everything around me and to start guiding and modeling as a master. That's what mm. I'm here to do. 
Yeah, the clarity that just came through is I think that intentional, intentional seeding is actually coming from the resonance of the earth herself and our sun and the entire solar system. The solar system must be going through this evolutionary frequency where it became an attraction point for certain frequencies coming here really in millions. Right. That's why we are all here at this time. So... I like the idea that that Gaia is actually uh, Gaia Terra, you know, um, Earth. That 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 the the call comes from there because one yes. of one of the things, and you watch you've watched some of the work I've done with Lisa is understanding what does a frequency really do, and how does it partner with Earth and the grids, and what happens when there are nefarious controlling um, races or or um, uh, what do we want to say? Um, species that mm-hmm. suppress and control and 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 enslave, and then what happens to our grid work system when we do that? And what hap- what what Gaia can do? And it's like let's just bust this open, and and that's where the indigo, the indigo is sort of like the one that came after in my in my thinking because I was trying to figure out this crystalline kit or this crystalline vibration it's almost um whale like it's vibrational and they hold and they have they have strategies for how they hold and then they needed protectors and then i went back and created the information that or created a profile of the information about the indigo which is the warrior protector sort of truth seeker who's the dismantler Yes, and I have to say many times, many times in solar element sessions, whenever there were two indigo parents, their child was reading as crystal yep. child. So it absolutely must make sense. It, it, make, it makes sense why that is required. And then the rainbows are also coming uh, with these. What I've noticed with rainbow I had, I've never, I haven't met a pure rainbow soul frequency yet, but I've met many who are indigo who have rainbow layer around them. And that path was to attract rainbow children who are yet to be activated. So I've met several of these and I'm going to actually release one soul reading session with one person like that and what her mission is. It's so amazing. So there is definitely a divine orchestration and everything has to be a frequency match and a precursor for the next higher level and higher level. So what I love on your website is that you have a coaching for parents who are raising this super high octave consciousness of children that are just completely different to what we ever had on earth before. Do you want to comment on that maybe a little? Yeah. Um, What I noticed is that I started coaching parents in 1995 uh, you know like hey how can I help give you a different perspective of this unique creative being that you have as a child and some parents were highly resistant to it and others you know trained uh, adapted new perspectives very well and 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 what I noticed is that it doesn't help to come in directly on the parent first with the child, it helps to go to the parent and go like, what do you know about yourself first? Who are you? Where, what, what do you, what do you know about your own, um, wounds, your own reactivity, where it influences you? And then, then I think you'll notice that the second kind of offering is 
how do you create stability and adaptability right now when things are changing? So if, if the world goes like this, you don't go into your old patterns. You go, okay, and you write yourself because those two um, precursors or, or, or fundamental skills are super important when we then start to go, so I have a diamond baby. I have a rainbow team right now. I have a um, uh, a crystalline child, and we aren't connecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we start with ourselves because it, everything begins and ends with ourselves first. So I, I and I dropped doing dual parent coaching um, about three years ago because unless both of them were super aware of who they were and how they played off of each other, it was just like watching a ping pong game um, all day long. So I went to one parent. And, and enhance that and then would work with a second parent if they wanted to or both simultaneously but on separate schedules and then kept presenting this vibration or this frequency of the child because each frequency is completely different. And, and what I noticed is that let's, let's, if we, if we're dealing with the concept of family, familial systems and frequencies, it's not any different than a fish tank that's in perfect homeostasis and balance and everything's moving along and then you drop a fish in there that is not from that area or a territorial or a turtle or something. And every, the whole tank is like, what is that? And it just sort of shakes around and sometimes it gets dirty and, and it doesn't work. Sometimes other fish die, you know, until it comes back. To homeostasis. So now you have both frequencies learning homeostasis. So it's possible for an indigo parent to have a crystalline child and start to attract more crystalline vibrational because they've now learned that. Mm-hmm. Then you drop a rainbow in there and it frenzies all over again. So we, as we progress through these frequency upgrades that are placed, you know, strategically to, to, to move us forward, our bodies now reflect indigo, crystal, rainbow, and diamond. So the indigo warrior, the truth in the truth seeker, the vibrational co-creator from Venus, right? You know, the love, everything is cause and effect. And they're the holders. And then you have the rainbows, which are the blenders. They're the ones who, who really go across all of those lines of polarity and say both, mm. not one or the other, both. You know, I can, I can, I can be in a boy body and like girl things. I have, I can be a young kid and have my best friend who's an 80 year old down the street. There's no, no, an inclusion. Mm-hmm. It's an inclusion blending. And I like to think of them like the bees who go from flower to flower and integrate everything, right? And then all going towards the diamond, which is the purest frequency of what I think is our future, our Aquarian age. And these are the early groundbreaking diamonds who they couldn't even hold on this planet until maybe uh, 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. 2010. They'd come and go like, can we do it? Can we do it? No, nope, not yet. And then they would leave through, you know, um, miscarriages, through stillbirths, mm-hmm. through um, sudden infant death syndrome. It, they would hold as long as they could until they realized that frequency is just too hard. Can't breathe here. And now we, as a human race and as a planet have created a safe place for them to now come and they're coming in mass. I love this conversation so much and it brings a really important point for all the indigos out there, all the master souls out there that for a little while, maybe all of us guilty of 
this self-importance and I'm here on this mission and it's so important, but actually it's all about the future generations and we just need to cop on and uh, go into that um, humble experience of the importance of holding space and clearing clearing any illusions, limitations, ego traps and all that. And we, we just need to create that safe space because what these children will bring through, we cannot even comprehend or imagine the quantum leaps that are yet to come. I mean, we can look at how far we've come. And when, when we look at the indigo as being the dismantler or the destroyer, um, Lisa and I talked about this last night. Our job is done. We have literally destroyed every structure and institution that existed on the planet before the 1950s. Mm. Or, or after the, you know, before and, and, and from the 1950s to, well, when they came in mass in the late 70s forward, everything's fallen apart. Everything. And no, we didn't do anything outside of just have jobs, raise families, do our own work. And, and it's an invisible, powerful frequency that changes everything that it comes in contact with. And there's enough of us on this planet that everything that couldn't hold just collapsed. Yes. <laughs> powerful and um, angry, you know, sort of um, frustrated group of of a population mm. that just needs to be recognized and said thank you for the tremendous pains that you went through in order to destroy this these old structures and institutions. You are a master. I thank you for that. You know that's what that's what our job is is to is to make that um, help that soul. Yeah, the acknowledgement and validation is transformational, really. I, I've seen it so many times. If, if just one person can see you for the courage that you came here with and appreciate you for the sacrifices, it can release such a huge amount of uh, grief and pain. And suddenly there, oh, finally, someone see me, sees me and I can now just move on. So, yeah, so important. So I would like to just bring attention back to that calculator uh, for yeah. to help people. If I might have around to go to starseedsastrology.com, put in your birth details, and if you will see a lot of different fixed stars alignments like uh, Pleiades, Arcturus, um, Aldebaran, Hades, Procyon, all these you will most likely see a really busy chart because we have a huge amount of these uh, multigalactic souls here. Perhaps you can start recognizing that yes, indeed, you are one of them, these paradigm shifters, and uh, perhaps you can start accepting the value of you being here and allowing universe and this earth bless you with all the wonderful things that are yet to come to your life. It's all about accepting that you are worthy of these blessings, allowing it, and then just watch the magic happen, synchronicity and guidance, and just follow your excitement, your passion. And uh, certainly I encourage everyone to also look at their children's charts, if you have children or nephews, nieces, and, you know, co-workers. (laughs) You can definitely go down the rabbit hole, and it, it usually takes people on a journey for several weeks, even months, but it's just a stage. Once you really... Uh, your consciousness starts expanding so rapidly and it will really help you see from a much higher perspective than you ever were allowed to uh, see it. It's very 
uh, healing, transformational, expansive, empowering. And then once you're done with that, at some point you'll be like, nah, I'm okay now. And you will just drop into the here and now and live your life in a much higher frequency. So any a little taller and having more yeah. awareness of the attributes that you brought with you from other parts of mm-hmm. our universe. I love that you offer this free that people can go and do this. And then when they want more information, they can schedule um, a very specific, I think it's a three or four hour reading with you, right? Where you. Yeah, not with me. I don't, I don't do these anymore. It's physically impossible <laughs> to do that. Now I hold space for students of my courses. So I created courses where people can go very deep uh, or just basic just for themselves or be, have this as a career. There's a huge demand for galactic astrology, soul readings, just the waiting lists are. So long for all the certified practitioners and many are in the course now that are yet to be certified. So I, it's a, an amazing journey and super wonderful community of this kind of frequency, soul consciousness. So everyone is welcome. I love it. Thank you. I think that this is a, a beautiful gift that you've given the world. Oh. Thank you, Denise. How is your book? Uh, oh. You recently launched a beautiful looking book and I see. First book I've ever written. I've probably had it inside me for, oh, about two or three decades. Um, I love it. It was, I found out that I love to write. I absolutely love to write and I found my voice. It, 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 It is me saying, hey, have you thought about this? And what if, and here's something to ponder. And let's look at some old traditional ways of looking at history and say, well, what if it's different? And and so it's available on Amazon. And what I noticed is that um, I'm a, a newbie at this. Um, I need to be able to make that accessible to the UK and to Europe, uh, unless unless there's any restrictions in going through the um, Amazon.com US system. But it's on um, Kindle and in paperback. Um, Wonderful. Yes. Congratulations. I'm so proud. And it's just one of many hope. Well, it's one of four. So the idea was to, in, 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 when I moved to this place last week, what I, what I was guided to do was to take, you know, leave everything in boxes and only put up behind me anything that would hold for the crystal assignment because that's the next project. So what I've been asking for is, is parents of crystals, indigo parents of crystals or crystal clients who are like, hey, can we start playing with what this whale um, sonar vibrational, you know, deep resonant emotional work um, can be like. And so that I like this, I had probably 350 psychoeducational testings on just what the indigo kid looked like before I even started to write it. So I'm, so now I have this sort of about the same amount for the crystal. And so it's like, let's start writing on that. So it's sort of a call to the book and a call to clients who want to um, explore that because it, we learn together, right? And whatever you bring into the call, I, I learn um, how to talk and, and phrase it or bring it out. And I learned more than the client does most of the time. Yes. Do you know what? I'm going to share a gift with you all, with all the viewers. Um, so in my course, the Quantum Soul Guidance course, we have a whole module on working with pendulum or muscle testing and uh, tapping into soul records. And uh, there's one pendulum chart that I would love to share now with the audience. It's on uh, checking in on soul color frequency. 
and it includes diamond and rainbow and crystal oh, and all that. Fabulous. This is such a nice surprise. <laughs> <clears throat> so that's uh-huh. what the chart looks like. I'm going to um, add it to my website as a link, so it'll be then linked under YouTube video, and you're welcome then to upload it to your page if you want to. So here, you know, whenever anyone works with the pendulum, any hanging object, you always you can you should only do it when you are centered at peace frequency of love just everything is fine never do that work when you're triggered when something is off you need to ground yourself first connect with your highest self and then ask that divine intelligence inside you can you please show me the most dominant frequency in my soul and perhaps, you know, as you know, we are multidimensional, so there are many layers to you. And perhaps on a human level, you are right now accessing light blue. And then on a higher level, you are accessing indigo. And on a divine level, you know, when you go different numbers of uh, densities and dimensions, there could be golden. I don't know. It's so unique for everyone. There's usually multicolors, but just what is the most dominant frequency of my being? Even you can ask, you know, experiment with different ways of asking and then you have these different colors that I have seen over and over with many different people. So, yeah. And then you can ask about your children, always with permission. Do I have a right, do I have permission to know about the most dominant color of the higher self of my child? Yes, no. Uh, so there's lots of free information online on how to work with the pendulum, but um, I just find this chart really helpful because we added crystal and diamond and rainbow and all that. I so. love it. It is, it is, it is such a gift to, to have this tool where now we can, we can, um, use our own inner guidance and then take with it what comes up. And, and sometimes it changes. Sometimes it moves around and to, and to learn what does that mean? Now, as far as resources for, let's say that I do learn that I have some, some purple um, colors in me or some white. Where, where do you go to find out what the frequency of those colors are? Um, what resources have worked for you? And so I have a whole lesson that I put together based on years of reading people's uh, soul colors and what that means, what it, how it shows up. It's a very long lesson. I, I'll be happy to actually make a free preview of that lesson, let's say for a month, <laughs> maybe even longer. I have so many free previews there. Um, I'll think about if I close it at some point, but let's say for a month now, I'll leave it open so people can go in and have a look what every color means in our everyday life because it's really there. Uh, I have a client uh, or a friend actually now who is a who is a magenta. His most dominant is magenta, and when he was dowsing on his parents, magenta uh, shows up at the end and at the beginning of the rainbow. So his parents, his mother was reading as red. And his dad was reading as purple or the other way around. So it was like a combination of the two then that allowed him to uh, merge the two colors. I thought that was fascinating. It's always amazing how we have to prepare the stage for the next generation. So, yeah, have fun with this, guys. I, thank you. That's, that is so generous. And, and by all means, underneath in the description, there will be the links to how to find your website, how to find my website, how to um, order the book, how to get to the color chart and the, um, the color definitions. I think that 
you know, the idea is to become resourceful because um, once we learn something, what I like is every time that I learn something new about either my galactic heritage or my skill sets or my frequency, there's a part of me that just sort of bursts open and, and my field becomes much more open for more. It's kind of like, well, that was cool. I want more. And so, you know, there are those who, of us who are continually learning. And I was watch, I was reading a little bit about the Orion um, starseed and realizing that, you know, it is this, um, anyone who comes through the Orion system through at some point picks up this passion for um, lifelong learning and knowledge and, and resourcefulness. Yeah. yeah. And entrepreneurial, which I just thought was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to know, in, in, in your website, your, your videos, your, um, YouTube channel is so informative. Uh, so we want to make sure that that connection is there. Do we have time for one more quick question? Yes. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, I've, I've encountered this several times with, um, either adoptions where they don't know their time of, of birth. Mm-hmm. And what I, I was able to do with the last couple of clients, and it was just watching them expand, was having them use either pendulum or muscle testing and working on, they might have known the date, but they didn't know the time, or they might have known the month, but they didn't know the date. So what do you do? Do you have them do their own self-discovery, or do you do that for them? Or how, what do you work with someone when they don't know their exact birth date or time? Such a wonderful question, and I'm sure it would have come up. So I'm so glad you asked it and wasted. So I have free preview lesson for that particular thing. <laughs> there are five different ways because it just keeps coming up, and I'm pretty sure now I know that I will leave the soul colors lesson open forever because it just helps. So uh, yes, you can absolutely tune in, and the higher self knows there is a record of that exact information so you do it through pendulum so in that free preview lesson which will link in the video description you can follow five different ways you can do it first that way with pendulum or you can then once you have approximate information you can double check it by playing with the actual astrological chart description and you can move it by minute or seconds or half an hour, hours, and you will see what changes. I pointed out in that lesson what you need to look out for, and then you will just know that, yeah, this is exactly who I am, and you'll just know for sure that, yes, that's my time. Okay. And it works. I've had people doing this, going through the process, and then some of them were able to retrieve their birth cert uh, with the time of birth, and it was accurate. So our soul knows. It does. And, and I had uh, one particular client that when she found the, the the time she just she just sat there and tears just rolled down her eyes and she goes I know who I am now oh, it was so, so powerful so powerful okay so one piece that piggybacks on that is have you ever come across walk-ins where you have somebody who and, and to me walk-in can be one of two probably many more mm-hmm. options but I'm gonna just sure focus on two right now that that one that one soul is holding the body and another one comes in and this one says you got it tag <laughs> like a relay team or um the the two of them come in and they integrate and they become um versions of upgrades or souls what's your experience with working with astrology when that may be um uh, prevalent within that 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 
that, that, um, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I am well aware of the topic and personally, I have not attracted a walk-in soul to my um, work apart from a colleague of mine in QHHT session with an exchange sessions together. And I know she is a walk-in channel period of transition where she literally was going through process of dying of her physical body um, and in complete seclusion and she felt the, the transition happening. She's a powerful, beautiful um, shaman teacher. So we just know that I was walking and at that time I, you know, I didn't have, um, I, I never actually looked at her astrology. I might. Um, so I have not attracted that kind of person. So I didn't study their astrological charts and data, but from what I know about the topic from just uh, connecting to others, then if, if it's true that a new soul walked in, then when you look at that time and date and that uh, astrological chart, it will have different fixed stars alignment and you will feel a frequency of different, uh, even galactic soul. But there is always resonance also with the original uh, yeah. soul and original chart. There, there will have to be quite a strong compatibility in terms of alignments and aspects for the new soul to be in somewhat in, in resonance with the body. Uh, constellations so that and I had actually I do recall now I had one uh, solar alignment session when there was a when there was a shared body by two souls Mm -hmm. and um, that was quite confusing for the person and their relatives as well that's always very challenging and it's very hard to read for someone like that because you have two different souls and sometimes can be labeled as mental illness and schizophrenia and paranoia and I don't know what and actually if someone would read for that person that might see that there are actually multiple souls sharing the body for whatever reasons so it's a big topic Mm. it's a huge topic and 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 I would imagine that because we work on a contractual basis which is like you know hey we're going to do this that the two can be melded even into the astrological chart and you can pick up on that's odd because when I read about her, she's here, but I also pick up on this, which means, and and so it's another way to, to pursue some curiosity and, and go inward into your own research and your own journey, which is what if, and the reason I ask that is that, um, within certain, um, frequencies, Sometimes it was easier to bring a frequency in into like, uh, for example, in within the book, we talk about the Indigo Scout, which is a person who came in uh, anywhere between two to 20 years ahead of this in mass in 1977, which mm-hmm. meant that they put themselves in positions of um, teaching teachers, coaches, um, religious you know, guidance counselor, counselors at camp, you know, places where they were that, that wise one who kind of said, Oh, let me help you out right now. Or let me just show you what life could be like that. It's, it's a very separate position than the parent, which is to provide some sort of guidance. And a lot of those earlier ones came into existing bodies because the, the plan was initiated after there was, I don't know how to explain it. It was just sort makes of- so much sense. I hear you. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I have to say, for something like that to occur, what's coming through now is that there would have to be, most likely there would have to be a pattern of kind of fragmented consciousness in the family through abuse and confusion. So that the child would be raised in a very confusing environment and unpredictable 
because then the body also needs to have that level of fragmentation to also occur. So, and therefore, if, if there is a practitioner that kind of is attracting this type of uh, frequency of walk-ins, I would ask the practitioner to reflect on their own childhood. Was there a fragmentation within the family lineage and uh, confusion? And it's important to clear that and work on that. Or if it becomes your mission, then of course it's perfect. And you, you work with that if you know how to, how to handle it in a grounded way. You align and you attract what you need to. That makes the most amount of sense to me, Julia, is that, you know, I, I look at, at how uh, we all gravitate towards a period of time when we were, when we needed someone the most, we end up becoming that, whether it's, Hey, I need someone to really show me what to do with my money, or I really needed someone to, um, to hold my hand through middle school and high school because it was terrible, or I needed someone besides my parents to be able to talk to, you know, then we end up focusing on that age group. You know, some, some, some of us like working with early um, five, six, seven-year-olds. I personally give me an 18 to 21-year-old and and they're sort of done with high school, but they don't know what to do and they're trying to individuate. I'm like, hi, <laughs> let's talk. <laughs> and it's time when you needed most support. Yes, yeah. yeah. And the time that I, I understand what it looks like and feels like. There's, mm-hmm. There is an, an, a frequency in me that can spot it, feel it, and and I am a coffee shop aficionado. Like I do my, read my cards. I do my work. I hang out at coffee shops and I love these little baristas and they'll kind of come up and go, hi, what you doing right now? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> and they just twinkle. And I'm like, let's just look at you, little rainbow, just shining. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And that brings me to an important topic in our astrology uh, point of Chiron. I believe you, you mentioned that and that's how you were introduced to it. This is what we are just talking about there right now. You know, when you, when your wounds become your, your path of a healer and helping others with the same wounds, this is, this will be revealed to you in your astrology. If you want to look at it in your Chiron, it's spelled C-H-I-R-O-N. If you get your free astrology chart, most of them will show you your Chiron's zodiac sign and the house which is in, and then you need to look at the meaning of it. There's plenty of free resources on that, including books on just Chiron. It's your wounded healer. What was your biggest wound and what are you guided to uh, do with that to help others? And what gifts were you trained to do as a result of having this wound, which was, we're going to train you, we're going to train you, we're going to train you. And And then the house shows me shows in or shows us the element which is like oh it's always going to come in and fire for you <laughs> or it's going to come in in emotions or it's going to come in mental with with the stories telling that you do so look how look at how beautiful that element in that sign is for for you for your training so it's 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 chiron i love chiron it has ended up being the um you know uh, how do how, how do i say this i don't directly hear anything or have a direct um, knowing. What I do, it's almost like my guides and my higher self love to do, love to give me Tetris problems. They throw five or six things out there, and I'm like, and then when it goes, I'm like, oh, that's really good, and and they chuckle like, you know, hey, you told us to make it fun and entertaining and, and a lot of work, and I'm like, I bet. <laughs> And so this Chiron is just sort of like a big puzzle 
And, and, and it's easy to go to the wound. We can all go to the wound, but transitioning that into our mastery and our strengths, it's almost like, ah, shucks, no, that's not really me. And it's like, yes, stand up tall. Let that be who you are and what you were trained to be. So much oh guidance there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It works really well with indigos, by the way. Chiron and, in, Chiron and indigos. Perfect combination. Mm. Very good. This oh, is wonderful. Is there anything else that you, that, that comes up that we may, I think we could talk for three hours. <laughs> and I would love to do this again in future. Um, will be interesting to see the feedback from, from our audience and, you know, whatever questions may arise, we can, we'll definitely be happy to do this again. Um, no, I think we, this was a really, really awesome first call. Thank you so much, Denise. Such a joy. You have a lovely rest of your evening because you're in Ireland. And I'm starting my day here in Montana, so we will enjoy. Beautiful. Take care. Much love. After saving with customized car insurance from Liberty Mutual, I... (laughs) So pick one, Rama. Just pick one. Oh my, that was good. From Ireland. Or should I read this first? That one? Okay. Alright, Rambo would like to do this one. This is our sister, Regina Meredith, and its title is Spirit Marriage. Can humans have interdimensional spiritual relationships? Transpersonal psychologist Megan Rose, Ph.D., author of the book Spirit Marriage, describes her journey into a sacred union with a spirit being. From interpreting paranormal encounters to understanding more about the unseen world, Rose shares traditions, history, and her own experiences from her connections to the otherworldly spirit realm. By opening ourselves to spirit encounters, Rose affirms it is possible to find help and support in our human lives. Okay, this is 44 minutes. Oh. Hello. 44? Mm-hmm. Rama will find it. <laughs> yeah, we're getting yeah. There's also a story here that um, a Dalai Lama's cat story. Back to that one. Mm-hmm. What's your mental amulet, dear reader? That sounds interesting. Take a little 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 tiny little beginning of a look here there's a cat with the bluest eyes on the inside page I'm happy to be sharing a new Dalai Lama's cat story on mental treasures if you'd prefer to listen to me tell the story rather than read it Please click the link below. Oh, 
there's a link where somebody can play it, Rama. Mm-hmm. Oh. Do you want to do this one instead? Um, I would have, I have to go set that. Oh, okay, thing. okay, then you yeah. can do it while this one's playing. You got it? You got the one we've got right oh, now? Oh, spirit marriage. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, we'll listen to this and then Rama can research this one. Yeah. Yeah, you can uh, find the songs, too. Mm -hmm. The energy has definitely shifted, everyone. Okay, we're going to play this now, right? Yes. Okay. Here we go. relationship between a human and an otherworldly being. This extraordinary being kept showing up in my dreams. They started asking me to marry them. Now, was this disconcerting at first? It was more like perplexing. Like, uh-huh. what? Did you end up in a spirit marriage with this being? Yes. The spirit marriages, they happen because that there's some sort of co-creative project mm-hmm. that only you and your spirit beloved can do. We all have the capacity for this type of union, for this type of deep bonded relationship with spirit. Many years ago, I interviewed Barbara Lamb and the topic of our conversation was her spirit marriage to a reptilian who was of a more noble type. Today's guest, Dr. Megan Rose, learned through her studies that spirit marriage was actually a thing, historically and around the world. Today, she's going to tell us about this phenomenon in which a human being is married with a spirit being. Welcome. This is a really juicy topic. I think people find this very, I found it intriguing when I interviewed Barbara Lamb. That was maybe 15 years ago, and I haven't talked to anybody about that since then. So welcome, Megan. Thank you so much. I'm just thrilled to be here today. May I read something that I found on your site? Mm-hmm. In your video about spirit marriage, you read a little bit of uh, Thomas Moore's book, Care of the Soul, and this was the quote from it. It's in the nature of things to be drawn to the very experiences that will spoil our innocence, transform our lives, and give us necessary experience and depth. Mm-hmm. I love that. I wrote it down at the time. as paused your video. I, said, I have to bring that up because mm-hmm. clearly you brought it up toward the beginning of your talk, so it was important to you. Mm-hmm. So tell us why that is important, and then weave that into how you began in this field. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Well, um, the idea that it's sort of spoiling our innocence and, and opening us up, transforming us, is what really I find so juicy about that quote. And um, in my own life, I was, you know, I'd done a master's in seminary and religious studies and um, was kind of what I considered to be pagan light. But I had had a very strong um, upbringing where in my Pentecostal upbringing where 
channeling the Holy Spirit was just sort of par for the course. It's opening to entities, opening to energy, and letting it flow through you. Mm-hmm. So that's part of your being, your that's, makeup. Yeah, you had a lot of experience in experiencing external energies. Yeah. yeah, and you know, my childhood was the Holy Spirit primarily. Mm-hmm. Although when I was an infant. Um, uh, less than a year old, I had a birth defect in my in my kidneys, and mm. the minister, my mom, my aunts, my grandmother, all anointed me with oil and prayed the Holy Spirit fire into my body. So this is like before I can talk, before mm-hmm. I even know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so I really trace my opening back to that moment because that's when sort of the veils between the world before I even knew that there should be a veil between the world, were, were thinned for me. Mm-hmm. And I was raised with just this tremendous amount of what I now understand is shakti, right? This, mm-hmm. this potency. But um, as, a, as a child, it was just me channeling the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. Did you see beings? So did you see the Holy Spirit? Were, these, were there any visual perceptions or it was mostly a feeling moving through you? It's the felt sense. I'm mostly somatic yeah. in my um, extrasensory. Mm-hmm. capabilities and so it was this feeling like you know your tail's on fire and it's shooting out the top of your head mm-hmm. and everything around you is vibrating at you know brighter and brighter speeds so growing up like that you know I really only found two places that I could really like feel grounded and safe in that and one was in nature yeah. Um, I had a, a tree companion, an oak tree, a live oak, huge 200-year-old. Mm. used to climb up into it and, like, rest my spine mm. against I relate the trunk to that, yes. And sing to it mm-hmm. and just sing and talk to it. And so that was one of the safe places where that amount of energy and that extrasensory or otherworldly perception was really supported. You know, and I spoke to the nature spirits. I spoke to the tree. And then also in the Pentecostal services of my childhood mm-hmm. where – you know, I was the kid with her little arms raised in the front row, you know, writing <laughs> spirit. Um, and, and I mean, the, the interesting thing is that it felt a lot like just this powerful erotic energy flowing through me. It felt wonderful, mm-hmm. you know, and I think the, the adults in the church would sort of <laughs> getting out of control yeah. a bit here. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's an interesting corollary phenomena between yeah. what the Pentecostals are working with and what the shamanistic and the spiritualist mm-hmm. type communities are doing. Um, it's kind of same, same. It's just that it's got this very regimented, highly structured mm-hmm. um, way in which it's allowed to be done in the Pentecostal church. Right. right. It was all about the Holy Spirit. Right. Which later I understood was just, Wisdom Sophia, the goddess, the divine right. feminine, right? That was moving through me. So you go ahead and you're a very curious person. You love education. So you completed your master's. Like you say, you were pagan light at this point in religion. Mm-hmm. And then this something happened and you learned about this other mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and dive into it. First of all, give us a definition of what spirit marriage is and then we'll kind of back into the story. So spirit marriage is the bonded and often intimate relationship between a human and an otherworldly being um, or an extraordinary being is what I kind of prefer to call them because sometimes they are of this world. And it shows up transculturally. When I first encountered this phenomenon, um, which was um, in my early 30s, I had gone through a Kundalini awakening experience and then I, w- I like to say I was sort of like lit up 
on the spirit realms. And I had to go through the whole process of learning how to like really safely and sanely navigate that. But this extraordinary being kept showing up in my dreams. And I knew it was the same being because my body responded Mm -hmm. the same way every time they would appear. And over a course of a few years, they started asking me to marry them. And was this disconcerting at first? Well, it wasn't disconcerting. It was more like perplexing. Like, uh-huh. what? What? Like, what do you mean marry you? Right, right. But, but I had, in seminary, um, we had studied the book of Enoch, right? Mm-hmm. The early account yeah. of the angels mm-hmm. marrying the human mm-hmm. women, right? Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the giving birth to the Nephilim. And so that, like, appeared in my mind, or I, I you know, I had this reference. That, yeah. And I was like, well, this must, maybe this is a thing. Like, I think this might be a thing. Because from my religious studies, I remembered, I started remembering little pieces, like in the Vodou tradition. And and so I was like, hmm. So this was, you know, early 2000s. So I, I think I like Netscape 2000. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to try and figure out, like, and I think I just typed in spirit marriage. Yeah. You know, I didn't know if that was the term, but that's what I typed in because the spirit wanted to marry me. Okay. And um, Idocratic came up, and there was a website that had been put up dedicated to this woman who was a, a early 20th century spiritualist and who was married to an angel. And she wrote this beautiful treatise called Heavenly Bridegrooms, and it really outlined, she kind of gave me. Like, what was her name again? Idocratic. Okay. And she kind of gave me, like she's been one of my patron spirits, um, because she kind of gave me the primer or the basis of where to start looking mm-hmm. and so I found um because she in her in that book Heavenly Bridegroom she talks about the tradition of spirit marriage mm-hmm. and she's done a pretty good job of tracing it although she wasn't an academic herself mm-hmm. um, but she is somebody that like the ceremonial magicians have sainted mm-hmm. because she was a sexologist she advocated for the radical idea that women should enjoy sex yeah right and um and also women's sort of embodied spirituality. She was a forerunner of that and this thing called spirit marriage. And so I was like, okay, so I'm not off my rocker. There's something here and I just need to like dig into it more. And that the more I dug into it, the more I became fascinated and, um, and also it was enhancing my own contact. Let's talk about your own contact for a little bit. Okay. Um, with this being, so this being had been appearing and they asked you to marry them. What was the nature of the being and what was the nature? What did your relationship develop into? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the nature of the being was twofold. So he showed up and it was mostly presenting as a, as a male sort of energy. It showed up um, as the either an, an angelic type being mm-hmm. um, like brilliant light or this really phonic underworld um, erotic energy and that was sort of the this this um dark darker energy and not dark as an evil but dark as in like you know the loamy rich under mm-hmm. earth where all the really great soil is like that kind of um horned god kind of energy mm-hmm. and um and sometimes th- they showed up together as twins mm-hmm. one light and one dark and sometimes they would show up either one or the other and so that confused me because I was like, is this two beings? Is this one being? And I decided to write the dissertation to do the dissertation kind of because that I was trying to figure this out myself. 
Mm-hmm. And being an academic, I thought if I put my scholar hat on mm-hmm. and I look at this from all across the globe, maybe it'll help me figure out how to figure out my own contact. Did you end up in a spirit marriage with this being? Yes, yes. So it took me about 10 years um, to really work through my own preconceptions of what I had about the underworld, right? right. About these deep, powerful, potent beings. Mm-hmm. And... um and so I had to go through some um, really decolonization of my own thinking, as well as really understanding the role. Because you have preconceptions sure. about what dark and loamy yeah. and, and erotic meant. Yeah, being raised Pentecostal, those were right. no-nos. So those are no-nos, <laughs> yeah. So did you ultimately come to understand that it was... It was the full depth of one being. Mm-hmm. It was both sides, both that were being brought to the table. Yeah, so here's the interesting thing. One of my teachers, Craig Chalquist, writes about our own personal myth. And one of the things that came forward was that I was in an experience or in a relationship with these two beings that are really one being, mm-hmm. but kind of like the triple goddess where she is her, but she has a few different faces. Mm-hmm. This being also had two different faces, almost like a Janice character, but more uh, this light and this kind of dark aspect. Were you afraid of the darker aspect? There were parts of me that were. Like mm-hmm. intellectually, I got to the point where I understood what the role was, but mm-hmm. um, somatically, because of all that really fundamentalist upbringing, mm-hmm. I had to really do some work around my, uh, and you know, the, that dark, that underworld, it's all of our ancestors. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it was about doing um, and getting right with my ancestors and doing ancestral offerings and, and working to disentangle ancestral karma, things like that. And this is where, you know, I should say that I began a seven year initiation as a, a fairy seership pract- practitioner. Um, and that really helped me because the fairy world is all about. Yeah, let's explain that a little bit too. Yeah. Finish what you're saying and then explain that to us a bit. Yeah, so I began my work as a fairy seership practitioner, um, apprenticing to Orion Foxwood, and it's a seven-year-plus apprenticeship where that's what we do is we go into the realms of the ancestors and we go into the realms of the fairy beings, which are um, unlike what often is thought of as, you know, like Tinkerbell, Sprite, that sort of Disney mm-hmm. on a version of a, of a, um, of a fairy being. The fairy is, we sort of orient around them with fairy seership is more of the ancient primordial beings mm-hmm. that came to this planet, helped form and shape this planet, and then at some point sort of receded. So it's not unlike, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien's story of what happens with the elves. Mm-hmm. Um, he in fact, um, based his elf characters on what we, what I refer to as fairy, but they're very similar, mm-hmm. um, in energy and in folkloric accounts. And so this apprenticeship really helped me ground, disentangle and get really good and root, nice and rooted. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Carl Jung says a tree can only grow as high as the roots go deep. Yeah. So I had to grow my roots down really, really deep to like manage all of this shakti, all this Mm -hmm. potency. So now you're looking into and interfacing with the elemental kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. And now how did that help you specifically on your journey in your dream time? Mm -hmm. It was primarily in dreams, but then Mm -hmm. as I studied um, and apprenticed, I developed other skills 
that I um, could journey with and and go into um, journey and, and visual um, states that helped me connect. And and also there's there's tools and techniques that that we learned as very serious practitioners. So is this an on for you personally an ongoing relationship then? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so like I said, it took me about 10 years mm-hmm. to get to the point where I really had a strong cosmological location. Mm-hmm. And that was the point where my contact to Gwen, who is the Celtic or the, the Welsh lord of the fairy people, mm-hmm. revealed himself to me, like his his name. Mm-hmm. And this isn't uncommon in these types of relationships where we often go through a time of testing or a time of um, really learning the somatic nuances and the the flavor of our context, and sometimes the name will come right away, but often with the the fairy people, it comes quite a bit later once you've demonstrated a certain amount of of trust mm-hmm. and um, reliability. So the interesting thing about Gwen is that I I didn't know this before I um, received the name and and the contact was that he actually has a dark and a light face. Oh, interesting. So a lot of yeah. the folkloric accounts uh, uh-huh. that I found later on verified the experiential accounts I was having until then. Now, we're going to, in a little while, we're going to talk about what humans gain from this. Mm-hmm. And But let's talk about from the other side, from Gwen's side, what are they gaining from this experience with yeah. the human realm? Yeah, well, they do things that we can't, right? But we do lots of things that they can't like have a wonderful embodied experience, right? Um, have an experience of art and music and literature. Creativity. And creativity, exactly. And we have wonderful things we can taste and smell and touch and experience. And so, um, in fact, one of the women that I cite in my book is married to a plant spirit, um, ajo sacha, which I believe is wild garlic. And she did a diet, a dieta with this plant, and he married her. And she said, why would you want to marry me? And he said, because the human body is such a wonderful thing to experience. Mm -hmm. So here we have a a being that has never been human, right, that is just this plant spirit teacher that then wants to merge with to have that experience, that five sense that you're more beyond mm-hmm. sense experience. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you can just maintain a body that is that is friendly to me, right, meaning not too much um, toxins in her system, mm-hmm. then I can co-experience. And then, you know, what she benefited from was the wisdom that this plant spirit teacher was mm-hmm. was willing and able to impart to her. Mm-hmm. Okay, before we go into more of that, because I also want to find out things, you know, Really practical things like, does this happen with people who are already married to human people? Does this happen mostly to single people? And in your experience, as you've encountered many through your research of how this actually works, because I'm sure our audience will be curious. But first of all, let's go into the history of spirit marriage and what you dug up when you were working on your thesis. Yeah. And from around, the, just kind of hopscotch around the planet. Sure, bit, how sure. it's shown up. Yeah. Well, the earliest recorded account that we have is... um in ancient Mesopotamia, so the um, Sumerian sacred marriage. And in this, the priest or the priestess would marry the goddess Inanna, and they would then serve as her betrothed, and there would be certain rites that they performed. And a lot of the conversation around the um, sacred marriage rituals, for academics, it's more, you know, was this just a visualized thing, or was there two human proxies? 
And I would like to offer that it actually was a, a royal sexual ritual where the priest or the priestess um, had an, a deep bonded, intimate relationship with the deity. And we see evidence of this. So if you move into the Indic traditions of North India and Nepal, you see that um, spirit marriage happens between a deity or a, sometimes an Ishta Devi or Deva, which is the, the chosen deity or kind of like the patron saint of the practitioner. But then sometimes you may have your chosen deity and then you may also have a deity that you marry. Um, and that is that example I like to think of is kind of like seasoning you. Like if you're working with your divine self or your um, your patron deity, that's like your flavor already, and you're just bringing more of that flavor through. Mm-hmm. But when you marry a deity that is maybe outside of your regular ray or your your energy, um, you're seasoning, mm-hmm. right? You're you're bringing in something that some skill, some tool that that you didn't necessarily have before. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, so the Indian tradition, um, it shows up in China as the ghost marriage or the Yingshu. In fact, there was a fun Netflix series, um, that was out called The Ghost Bride. I wrote that down. All about that. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. I, I didn't know anything it about that. It was set in Singapore. Singapore. But, I'll have to check that out. That sounds good. Yeah, there's actually a whole fun. bunch of academic um, research about this Singapore bri- uh, ghost bride marriages. And mm-hmm. some of the other Greece. This also, yeah, oh, well, Greece. Yes. Like, you know, we, I mean, we hear more about the Greeks sort of philandering with humans. Mm-hmm. We don't hear as much about the actual like, bonded they didn't marriage. They commitment. They didn't, but I like, you know, I've re-looked at the myth of uh, Cupid and Psyche, mm-hmm. and I think it actually is a really shining example of a spirit marriage, because here we have Psyche, who's a human woman, and we have this sort of, uh, to her at least, this, this unknown being, this spirit, this deity that's coming to her and she can't look at him, right? She can't see his face, and that's really um, often what people go through, and the beginning, um, unless they have a very clearly defined deity that appears to them and asks for marriage. Sometimes there's a period of trying to figure out who you're talking to, which is why discernment and discernment tools are so key. Yeah, we're going to get into that. Um, but but in the case of, of Cupid, it took her a while, and she had to go through all these trials, and then she eventually marries him, sees his radiance, and is herself transformed mm-hmm. by that by that marriage, right? She She's given immortality. Mm-hmm. And so also, so we have Africa, China, so Great Britain, uh, people who marry fairy beings and yes. such. So the history of this it really is global. It's global. I yeah. mean, it's there anthropologically. It's there historically. It's there there in spades in um, folklore. Mm-hmm. And then also in, in religion, the idea of virgin birth, mm-hmm. right, which I know you've talked with Marguerite, Marguerite Rubilio. So Marguerite is actually um, really instrumental in my early research. She was on my committee at one point. And um, this idea that Yeshua, that Jesus, right, was the offspring of a human deity union. Yes. And that that was a kind of spirit marriage or at least a kind of spirit. I think we talked about in our last interview. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the nature of the Marys. Mm -hmm. So we see this. We see Mm -hmm. this even in our Western traditions. Mm -hmm. We just um, haven't really, nobody's really brought all the threads together. That's what I hope this research does, right? Is it brings these threads together and gets people from disparate communities and disparate experiences talking Mm -hmm. so that folks know that it's not you know, it's not just that. They're not the only one. So let's talk about the discernment part. 
because I'm sure some of our audience will be saying, well, how do you know it's not just a rich imagination or a hallucination or an entity and an, and, uh, an issue of a possession, for example? Mm-hmm. So tell us about the discretion part of it. Yeah, so discernment really begins with um, knowing thyself, right? And really understanding what are my hot button issues, right? Like we talked about in like my hot button issue around the underworld. And so there is a, an, a certain amount of like lifting one does psychologically to really get right with the spirits mm-hmm. and to really understand like that we bring things to the relationship like we do with any human relationship. Right. I think what's most important about understanding spirit marriage is it's just like it's a relationship, just like any relationship whether it's a human or an otherworldly being. Except who leaves the toilet through that. <laughs> right. Like, different you might issues. not have to, different issues, yeah. but you still go through the getting to know you face, right? So there's, it's like you would date a human. I mean, I would hope that most people wouldn't, you know, meet somebody and, and get married the next day, right? There's a getting to know you phase, and that's part of cultivating the discernment. And, you know, I think one of the things that's most useful is having folks that you can turn to, spiritual advisors or people within your community that understand the nature of this, right, and then um, can really help guide you. And sometimes you don't even necessarily um, need uh, an entire spirit marriage community around you if you just have a really good you know, spiritual advisor or somebody that can help guide you through. That's one of the things that kind of came out of most of these traditions is very few people go it alone because um, in some cases, in some traditions, the deity marriage is only entered into if the deity is uh, or the, the spirit has appeared to someone other than you. Okay, so I want to marry them. So there's some validation that it's not your imagination. Mm -hmm. And that would make sense. Mm -hmm. Right. And Orion Fox, who is my fairy seership mentor in his case, his mentor, Dolores Ashcroft Nowishki, was in meditation and his soon-to-be spirit wife appeared to her and said, I want him to marry me. And, you know, Orion's a gay man and he's like, why does this fairy woman want to marry me? But there was a whole tradition, the fairy seership um, tradition that was born out of that union. And so she appeared to Dolores and Dolores went to Orion and was like, you need to marry her. And he was like, oh my goodness, this is like a shotgun wedding. (laughs) But then he spent time, he had known the spirit. He had been working with the spirit for a number of years, but he just Mm -hmm. thought she was this powerful, you know, primordial being. He didn't think he was going to have to get in that deep and make a commitment. But then, you know, a lot of his books and teachings and practices have flown out of their, their relationships. So, um, I think that discernment is learning our inner, you know, um, hot button issues and um, as well as having validation from uh, a trusted advisor or support person. Yeah, I would think one of the things coming up is right now the energies are uh, very challenging for a lot of people mm-hmm. and a lot of people are struggling with human relationships. Mm-hmm. And might there be a temptation to uh, not only want a spiritual union, mm-hmm. but even conjure a spiritual mm-hmm. union through imagination and desire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely possible to do, right? We mm-hmm. read that in ceremonial magic traditions, mm-hmm. um, the conjuring of a familiar spirit. And 
I think that the question that I would ask is, what is your outcome? What is your purpose for that? You know, mm-hmm. is it for healing and for, um, you know, a salve while you're, while you're lonely or right. lost or frightened or whatever? Um, what I try to encourage my students to do is if they're not sure, right? If they're sort of longing for something, this is where a devotional piece really comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, is to find a deity, find a, a divine loving presence that you feel safe and held and, um, and loved by that you can then develop your relationship with that being. Might, so might this be, say, beings that you've read about in various traditions or, mm-hmm. or? What kind of being? Any any type of being that you resonate with strongly and feel safe with? I think that for someone who is looking to, as you were saying, sort of conjure or manifest right. this kind of relationship, that starting with a being that is sort of known by a name and a cosmological location that has maybe some... Um, characteristics built up around them already formulated around that entity is probably going to be a little bit safer than just being in sort of an open. And I'm saying, cause I went into open, I kind of did it the hard way, right? I said it took me so long mm-hmm. <laughs> to constellate and, and around who my contacts were um, or are. And that's p- uh, partly because the Gwyneth Neath is this really ancient deity that is not widely acknowledged. So it wasn't something I could have had an immediate identification with. Although I knew he was really connected to like the, the, the animals and to the nature and also to, um, the horned, like the horned beings, mm-hmm. like a Karnunos or a Harn the hunter kind of energy. Um, but it took me a while to get the name. So right. for folks that are wanting to just jump in and begin a practice of conjuring or creating. Yeah, start manifesting something. Find a deity that really turns you on. Find a deity that you really have that sense of longing towards. Right. Because our sacred longing is like the key to this practice. And and doesn't that exist in most human beings? We just don't know how to engage with one another on that level. Yeah. Because of so many filters, so many programs, so much trauma to the human species. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, to your question about folks that are in relationship or not in relationship, um, I see it across the board. Um, people who are single and called into these people who are in existing relationships and are called into a spirit marriage. It helps if your partner is, um, either in the tradition that you're working in or understands somewhat of what's going on because it ends up being a negotiation, like, you know, kind of like a polyamorous relationship where you're having to negotiate anywhere from, you know, one night a month to three nights a week, depending on the tradition. It's happening during dream time. Well, a lot of the time, a lot of the time it can, but that's not the only way that people experience this. Some Mm -hmm. people have, um, I've just always had very, very strong dreams mm-hmm. um, and like precognitive kinds of prophetic dreams. Mm-hmm. So that's been mostly one of my main areas. Plus, it's where I can turn my academic brain gets turned off mm-hmm. so that I have to just go with whatever shows up. Right. Analyze it to that. Right, right, right. So 
it's a negotiation, like, as you say, even if it was another human being. And I would imagine that there are people that become very threatened by it if the quality of that relationship is really drawing their partner in. So these are, these are just some of the practical issues. Uh, What about the notion that what we're being drawn into might also be an aspect of ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's what's wonderful about um, the constellation or the fractal, right, that is the human consciousness, that's the human psyche. Because, you know, we have our sort of localized human psyche that Mm -hmm. is you know, our mundane self, and then we have kind of our higher self. And then in ceremonial traditions, they talk about the holy guardian angel that sits sort of above even our higher self Mm -hmm. or our wise self, and that kind of like a patron deity or patron saint. And the way I think of it is, you know, we're the fingertip on uh, that is touching into the physical, right? That that is expressing the body of the deity, mm-hmm. um, and that is our incarnated. You know, we can like push matter around right. like they can't, and so we're all nested back here. But another fingertip might be another person, and another. Mm-hmm. And so, in the idea of spirit marriage, um, we can both marry our divine self. And that could be our spirit spouse. Well, it's kind of what I'm wondering. It gets to the subject of a twin souls, for example, where perhaps you, I mean, in different traditions, you start as one, mm-hmm. you split apart into mm-hmm. male, female rays. Mm-hmm. You have your experience throughout incarnation. Sometimes you connect mm-hmm. in the physical world, mm-hmm. uh, on, in some kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And, but for many of these times, you don't, you, lifetimes you're not connected with that being, mm-hmm. that other part of yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so is it possible that some of these spirit unions are you and say your twin self, your twin flame? Yeah, that's, I think that that is one of the ways that these show up. So I think that sometimes we incarnate with a twin soul or a soulmate mm-hmm. at the same time. And then I think sometimes they're in the spiritual and we're in the right. physical. That's what and I'm then sometimes to. we're both in the yeah. spiritual together. Yeah. And so we might be part of the monad, right, of a particular ray of creation or a deity or an archetype, right? And then that that splits and splits and splits and splits, and we have soul families, and then we may have another split where we're the twin soul. And that we oftentimes, and this has shown up in many of my co-researchers, so we haven't Mm -hmm. talked as much about the folks that I talked to Mm -hmm. when I wrote my book, Mm -hmm. but I interviewed um, nine different practitioners from seven different traditions, Mm -hmm. um, widely disparate traditions everywhere from African traditional religion to um, fairy seership to um, witchcraft. And they all, these were like very high level, um, ministers, spiritual people in their tradition that had spirit marriages. But one of the, um, one of the, the threads in that is that they felt like that they had been married to this spirit being lifetime after lifetime. Right, right. That's why I'm wondering about, that's why I asked that question. Huh? And we are multidimensional. Exactly. So we have to remember, yeah, it's natural for us to be able to reach into other dimensions. Yeah. Um, and to connect with other beings, including ourselves. Yeah. So let's, okay, let's get practical now. And uh, if you want, you can give an example of a, like, when is it appropriate and under what conditions and what kind of person, um, is really most successful in this endeavor? Yeah. So I think that the, the kind of person is, you know, 
anyone, mm-hmm. right? We all have a divine self that we can fall in love with. We all have a divine self that we can aspire to bring more of that energy into who and what we, you know, do in the world. So you can marry your divine self. You can also just sort of embody your divine self. It's a fine line, but I've interviewed a Shakta Tantric who is both married to the goddess Kali and Kali is also her Ishta Devi. So um, in some traditions, they kind of don't um, do that, but it, it, there is precedent for mm-hmm. it. So we all have a divine self we can reach to. And then also, um, if the spirit has been asking you to marry them, mm-hmm. it's a good idea to follow that thread. It's a good idea to follow through with that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that you have to marry them, um, but you want to get to know them. You know, you want to understand why and what would be the purpose. Because one of the things that I think is really powerful about spirit marriages is they versus just sort of and being in a contracted channeling agreement right mm-hmm. um or a kind of possessory where it comes in mm-hmm. and, and then it goes out or comes forward and then proceeds back is that the spirit marriages by and large from my research um they happen because that there's some sort of co-creative project mm-hmm. that only you and your spirit beloved can do and the intimacy of that, the union, the what's called the indwelling or the merging of those two beings creates a third being or a love child, right? In my case, it's this research, it's this book mm-hmm. that was the the love child of my union with Gwen. Mm-hmm. And that um, is because of the time is right. You know, this research needs to get out as we're moving towards, uh, you know, hopefully evolving our consciousness as a species, right? These this is one of the ways that that this can happen. These these mm-hmm. um, co-creative projects with our spirit. And one of the things you say is that this can really help us advance ourselves by having this kind of commitment with someone in another dimension, another being, um, non-earth being. In what ways? Uh, you just talked about your book, but maybe uh, an anecdote or two of some other people you know of and the ways it's enhanced their earth experience, their lives, their understanding. Yeah. One of my uh, co-researchers, um, Caroline Kenner, um, is uh, both a witchcraft practitioner and she works in a few different traditions um, and was trained to do shamanistic type work. And um, her spirit Beloveds. She actually is an interesting example because she's married to a few different. So she has a sort of, by the nature of her many spirit marriages, is in this sort of interesting polyamorous um, relationship with the spirits. And they really enhance her gifts and her ability to do um, extraction work for folks, to journey for people, to do, to help with healing. And that's a pretty typical um, gift that mm-hmm. that comes uh, the, from the gifts of the spirit is the ability to bless, the ability to heal, mm-hmm. the precognizance, to be able to see things that you know to remove interfering energies, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. cleansing work, disentangling work. Mm-hmm. All of that really comes, and it it it's such a psycho emotional, like a subtle body mm-hmm. shift that happens. But it also is known to give the gift of prophecy of eloquence and uh, and these particularly are associated with some of the fairy traditions mm-hmm. but you know you hear about um like thomas the rhymer um wed the fairy queen 
and was given this gift of prophecy and also um, beautiful poetics. And, and he's an actual historical figure, uh, Thomas of Ursuldoon, who was a Scottish laird that married this fairy woman and was a man of really well-renowned and um, standing that we still have writings from to this day. So, so that kind of inspiration coming in through mm-hmm. the other side. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the practical notion of protocols or precautions cautionary tale well i mean the cautionary tales i think happen when they're rushed when the relationships are rushed and you really don't have the support around you to discern what can happen i mean well i mean we're moving a little bit more into just spirit communication here because once you've gotten to the marriage um you've said yes the in many traditions, they say they can't be undone. However, I will tell you that I do know of an instance of someone who got into a marriage, didn't like how things were going and divorced them. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people that hold these say that they're entwined for the rest of your life. But I think that that has to do more with the cosmology mm-hmm. of the spirit that you're with. So like with fairy beings, because it's such a long labored process to um, merge and mingle with them in that way to end well. I think that it is kind of like you just get grafted together, mm-hmm. but in other traditions you can divorce. So divorce isn't out of the, you know, it's not off the table, but you want to really be able to have a community around you mm-hmm. um, that can uphold and support you. And it's sort of your check and balance, right? Mm-hmm. Like any spiritual community, healthy spiritual community. Right. <laughs> now, can you, can you, we just have a few minutes left. Okay. Can you imagine living your life without your spiritual marriage partner? Given that I, the more I feel into that relationship, the more I think he's been with me my whole life. And, and maybe other lifetimes. Yeah. I yeah. can't, I can't imagine. I think that it would be like loss of a limb, right? Mm-hmm. Like only part of me is here. And I, and I think that we all have the capacity for this type of, of union, for this type of deep bonded relationship with the spirit. Even if you, you know, start with, uh, your divine self, mm-hmm. right? That rarefied aspect of you, um, that often will bring in other seasoning. Right. Well, is it sometimes not maybe an issue of coming into a collaboration or ultimately a marriage with a spirit guide, for mm-hmm. example? Mm-hmm. That's absolutely possible. Yeah. Because, um, one of the things that I think my research uncovered that's really exciting is that people are, um, particularly here in the United States, people enter into spirit marriages with beloved dead and, and sort of elevated, mm-hmm. elevated beloved mm-hmm. dead. Um, not, you know, Aunt Matilda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But, um, it is, uh, I don't know, want to say it's a uniquely American phenomenon, although I have heard about this marriage with beloved dead, uh, or elevated beloved dead, mostly from American practitioners. And I think that's kind of indicative of how we have such a pastiche of different cultures and different traditions right. here, that there isn't just one, one pantheon that, or one group that folks are working with. In summary, it seems like what this also does is it brings a re-enchantment to life mm-hmm. and and a world that feels as though it's become too mechanical, mm-hmm. um, too doctrinaire, dogmatic, mm-hmm. and people are feeling a loss of energy mm-hmm. and too many control systems. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like this is a way to be able to move beyond that into that 
enchanted aspect of self again. Absolutely, yeah. I think that the re-enchantment of the world is our, that and our own conscious evolution mm-hmm. as a species are the two things that will save us. Mm-hmm. I believe That's so too. Any final thoughts before we sign off? I would just say that by and large, the spirits that are out there that want to work with humans love us mm-hmm. and want to uphold us and support us and that there is support and there's guidance out there for folks that are um, trying to navigate this type of intimate relationship. And um, I hope that, you know, our offering here today gives people a little more insight and grounding. Oh, I think it has. There's so much uh, fuel for thought there. Yeah. And not only that, it, we have to realize we don't necessarily, if we're not inclined to say, I want to go all the way into this thing and make a commitment, we have to... It, it just opens up to the notion that we're surrounded by so many entities, so much love, so much support. We can enter into a BFF relationship Absolutely, with someone. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a marriage. Just, just like, you know, <laughs> there's lots of different ways in which relationships exactly. are constellated. So it doesn't have to, to just be just know that this world is here around us and whispering and speaking yeah. to us all the time. Yeah. And be discerning. Be yeah. aware. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I know you've given lots of our viewers some food for thought here. Um, and I think this is a, an intriguing idea to bring back the notion of our connection with not only our higher selves, our ancestors, and beings from beyond. And they can look or show up as anything, really, mm-hmm. but to re-engage with the unseen world in a more profound way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. You can pick up a copy of Spirit Marriage through major booksellers. Meanwhile, to connect with Megan or join in her workshops, you can go to DrMeganRose.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Okay, Mal. Rama found our Dalai Lama. In 32 minutes. Okay. Mm. That sounds like a keeper. Um, okay. Yes. You want to hear that now? Yes. Now would be good, Rama. Okay. Okay. Mm. Dalai Lama's cap. And Other Intrigues by David Meachie is a reader-supported publication. Hmm. There it is. Here we go. What's your mental amulet, dear reader? A Dalai Lama's Cat Story, written and narrated by David Meachie. Do you carry an amulet, dear reader? A lucky charm offering you protection no matter where you go or who you may encounter. I'm not talking about a St. Christopher medallion, a Hamza pendant, or other little icon attached, perhaps, to a glittering chain about your neck. Not a physical object. No, the talisman I'm referring to is of the more powerful mental variety, a personal treasure you take with you everywhere, a jewel that, whenever recollected, is a source of true joy. For my own part, I never thought much about amulets of the mind. It took me until I was quite a senior cat to discover their very existence. But they offer a unique form of protection, one that cannot be bought and is therefore priceless in the truest sense of the word. 
one that can't be given by someone else to us, however kindly their intentions. We must each choose our own personal talisman, because only we know what will work. Once chosen, in time we may come to regard it as our most treasured possession. Like many great discoveries, mental amulets were something I encountered quite by chance. I had got into the habit of visiting the Sukhavati Spa in the afternoons, midway between lunch at the Himalaya Book Café, where I was served whatever tangy treat was on offer by Kusali, and returning home. Simple curiosity had led me there to begin with. The grand old building sits home before he married Serena, had been converted into a spa, offering aromatherapy, gong baths, yoga classes, and all manner of other esoteric delights. Sid and Serena's friend, Benita, managed the place with the cool assurance you may expect of someone who had once run a large family estate. Heidi, the svelte young German yoga teacher, organized group activities. From before dawn until well after sunset, the place was vibrant with activity. Students and customers coming and going, sprawled out on the lawns or in one of the many reception areas, therapists working from their rooms upstairs and down, and uniformed staff bustling with trays of freshly crushed juices and delicious cuisine. The perfect spot, in other words, for a cat to be entertained by humans. There was just one catch. Although the road from the Himalaya Book Cafe to the Sukhavati Spa was short, if somewhat uphill, a new family had moved into one of the houses, bringing with them a pair of snarling Rottweilers who would launch themselves from the shadows, baying ferociously at the top of their lungs, frightening the life out of me. The first time it happened, I scampered away as fast as my wobbly hind legs would allow. I was terrified that the beast would somehow break free. The second time, I was right outside the gates of the house before I remembered what had happened last time, and the same thing happened again. Only this time, I was somewhat less spooked. The dogs were secure behind the fence. They posed no threat. What I felt was not so much fear as rage. How dare the slavering fiends treat me like this? I meant no harm. Unlike them, I was minding my own business. After I hurried past, they launched into another barking frenzy. This time their focus was an elderly gent, walking his equally elderly dachshund on the other side of the road. Taken unawares, the two of them, like me, quickly picked up their pace, hurrying away from the infernal din. As a creature of habit, long acquainted with this well-worn route, there was a third time that I unthinkingly headed up the road towards the spa. This time I remembered just before reaching the house. Once again, the two barbarous hellhounds broke loose, and there was nothing I could do except hurry past, my ears pressed firmly back in indignation, fuming at the commotion. Since then, I had avoided the street. Outrageous and unpleasant emotion, not so? In an instant, whatever good feeling we may have had is gone. All inner peace evaporates. Worse still, as I'd heard over many years of teachings from the lamas, anger is also very dangerous. A moment's anger, karmically speaking, is all it takes to obliterate countless virtues. So great is the power of the unchecked mind, it can undo all the good we may have created 
over a very long time. Why undergo the extreme unpleasantness of the two dogs and court karmic disaster when it could be avoided, albeit by taking a much lengthier route to the Sukhavati Spa? Which is just what I did the next time I visited, taking a lengthy detour via back alley behind the Himalaya Book Cafe and up a ragged road which ran parallel to the one where the dogs lived. It was a more tiring journey, and by the time I reached the lush oasis of the spa, I needed a rest. The gardens and reception rooms, however, were full of people. Unwilling to be the centre of attention, the curse, alas, of stardom in McLeod Gange, I edged around the perimeter of the house to get away from the hubbub. It just so happened that one of the ground floor windows of the private bedroom wing was open. Burglar bars offered protection from intruders, but were wide enough to allow the passage of a furry body. Within moments, I had hopped onto the sill, through the window and down into the room, behind the curtains which were fully drawn. Emerging from behind them, it took me a few moments to adjust to the semi-darkness, but I instantly recognised the scent. Benita, I was evidently in her room, and she was lying on the bed, oblivious to my arrival. I knew this not from sight, the top of the mattress being too high above me, but from the barely audible sound of her breath, just as I knew from the special perception that we cats have that she wasn't asleep, just resting. I hopped onto the bed, landing with somewhat less finesse than I would have preferred, given the condition of my unsteady hind legs. Startled, Benita flinched, but only for a moment. Quickly recognising me, she reached out to pat the duvet next to her. My little friend, she whispered. Making my way over, I touched her nose with mine, whiskers tracing her cheeks, before turning to settle where she had indicated. Soon, I was sitting, paws tucked under me, staring into her eyes. Benita was a woman of regal elegance. In her younger days, according to Sid, as one of the most beautiful women in India, she had been swept off her feet by a self-made man of great charisma and wealth. Only, the wealth turned out to be more apparent than real. And when Ahan died of a heart attack in his early forties, he had left his family millions of rupees in debt. Within weeks, Benita and her three girls had been living in poverty in New Delhi. It was only her friendship with Sid, going all the way back to her teenage years, that saved her. On hearing what had happened to his friend, Sid had gone to the rescue. Sukhavati Spa had been his creation. His former home turned into a business that Benita could run. She had trained as a beautician, and her daughters had followed in her footsteps. Furthermore, she had that indefinable bearing of someone of class and savoir-faire, a person who, quite effortlessly, commanded respect. Managing a large property with many staff came easily to her. I had heard about all the ups and downs of Benita's drama before she and her girls had arrived in McLeod Gange. Just as I'd witnessed the remodeling of Sid's creaking old house into a welcoming mountain sanctuary, and from the moment we had met, there'd been a special connection between Benita and me. A feeling almost 
as if we knew each other from an earlier time. I heard her once tell Serena that her sister, Yazini, who lived in New Delhi, shared her life with Maya, a Himalayan cat strikingly similar to me, which perhaps explained the otherwise unaccountable feeling I had when I was with her that ours was a family connection. And why, as well, even though I had never visited her in her room before, it felt perfectly natural to be sharing this siesta. Although there was something unsettling at this moment. After reaching out to caress my face, Benita let her hand fall beside me and closed her eyes. For a few moments. Rolling on her back for the longest time, she stared at the ceiling. Then she was over on her side again, eyes clouded and expression drawn. She seemed to have come to her bed, not to doze or sleep, but to withdraw. But why? What for? These were things I didn't at first fathom. There were subsequent afternoon visits. On these occasions, I headed away from the spa, directly to the bedroom wing and through Benita's open window. Like most felines, I am nothing if not a creature of habit. And just like that first visit, it was to find the lady of the house lying on her bed and far from restful. I am embarrassed to admit that it wasn't until my third visit that I came to recognize emotions that were later to seem so obvious. I was entirely used to the Benita I observed outside, the elevating presence whose mere appearance brought out the best in those around her, the one who calmly managed an ongoing whirlwind of activity while warmly welcoming guests, dispatching constant orders all the while preparing for what was to come. That Benita, who was so assured, so capable, turned out to be only one dimension of the person I believed I knew a part which I had mistaken for the whole. Because this other Benita, lying on her bed in a darkened room, was broken and despairing. The difference was so stark it took me a while to believe my own senses. How could a person be one way outside a particular room and yet so very different inside? It was troubling to discover her helplessness, to feel unhappiness seep almost palpably from her troubled form as we lay on her bed together. One particular day, she had been sitting at a desk in one of the reception rooms of the spa, tapping on her laptop. For a few moments, she looked away from the screen into the distance, and I saw a return of that heartbreaking anguish illuminated by the blue light of the screen. In a moment, I walked to her, rubbing her ankles with my body. HHC, As she leaned to stroke me with her right hand, she brushed a tear from her eye with her left. My little angel, come to watch over me. Flattering though that idea may have been, it wasn't true. As you know better than anyone, dear reader, I am neither angelic nor do I possess any protective powers. But it was troubling to see Benita this way. So I was relieved when I visited one afternoon about a week later to find her having a heart-to-heart with Serena in the garden. The flower beds of Sukhavati Spa had been laid out in a flowing, natural fashion, creating trellis nooks and bowered grottoes, some furnished with tables and chairs, 
and others set with just a wooden bench or a water feature gurgling among sandstone blocks. It was in the latter place that I saw the two of them, distant from the house, just the spot for a private conversation. In her emerald sari and hair tucked into an elegantly braided bun, Benita looked every inch of her a spa director. But as I approached, from her unguarded demeanour, along with the intense expression in Serena's eyes, I suspected they weren't talking shop. It's not something you should be beating yourself up about, Serena was saying. I thought I'd put it all behind me, Benita shook her head, left in Delhi where it belongs. I wanted to start a new chapter here, a clean slate. Of course, Serena glanced down. The two of them were sitting on either side of a football-sized globe of stone from which water emerged at the top, glistening smoothly around its sides into a square stone trough beneath. The perfect place, as it happened, for a cat to quench her thirst on a hot day. Serena was staring, unseeing at the water before she said, You know, you're probably going through a grieving process, which is completely natural. I don't mean grieving for Ahan, necessarily. I know you have very mixed feelings about him. But your whole way of life, everything that was normal for you and the girls. You know, the seven stages of grieving? I've heard of them. Denial's the first one. Disbelief. That's followed by pain. Anger. There was plenty of anger in Delhi, Benita was nodding, especially when we were reduced to squalor. My fury about all Ahan's lying and cheating. It was like an energy that kept me going. I was determined he wasn't going to destroy us. Hema, she named her eldest daughter, now 25, is still furious with him. Serena looked pensive as she nodded. What comes after anger? Serena met her eyes. Depression. Benita rolled hers. So, I'm a textbook case. Her expression was wry. After a pause, she said, Before we came here, life was a daily battle for survival. There was no time to think. Then Sid and you came to the rescue and brought us to this wonderful place. As she glanced around, she caught sight of me and put her hand down to coax me towards her. I approached her, head-butting her leg before sliding my body across her ankles and heading towards Serena to greet her too. You can't blame yourself for his deceit. You were a victim of it. I do blame myself, Benita was firm, for all the times I suspected that things weren't right, but I chose to do nothing about it. There were little clues, even not-so-little ones, right from the start. Instead of calling him out, I looked away. Like all his investors and creditors, I wanted to believe his lies, even as he was telling them. As young girls, counted Serena, especially in India, it is ingrained into us, this idea of loyalty to our husbands. Loyalty, agreed Benita, but not foolishness. I do blame myself for what I allowed to happen to the girls. I didn't only let myself down, I let them down too. There was a long pause, during which Heidi's voice carried across the lawn from where she was holding an outdoor yoga class, guiding her students through flowing vinyasas. 
Then Serena said, Well, perhaps you did make mistakes. She held Benita's gaze. Perhaps you were wrong to trust him. Not to call him out. But we're all human. We all have our frailties and failings. All we can do is learn our lesson and move on. Focusing only on the negative, what's to be gained? Benita adjusted her sari. I expect you're right, she said. Besides, most of the time I keep myself far too busy for introspection. I'm sure. I don't know if that's just avoidance. Serena flashed a droll smile. A psychologist friend of mine often says that we don't think it's foolish for a deer to run away from a tiger. Sometimes avoidance is the right thing to do. Until the tiger outruns the deer. Yes, she nodded. It may not be a permanent cure. Even if we outrun one situation, if we don't fix the underlying problem, it may only be a matter of time before the same thing or something else like it resurfaces. I hopped up on the stone next to Serena. Her talk of running and avoidance had me instantly recalling the Rottweilers, the fury they provoked in me when hurling themselves at the fence in a frenzy of barking, the long detours I'd been taking to keep clear of them. Yes, I was bypassing them and the anger they triggered. If avoiding the cause of anger wasn't the best thing to do, what was? What would be a Buddhist treatment for my depression? Benita asked now. Serena met her gaze thoughtfully. There are so many techniques, she said. Different strokes for different folks. And I'm no expert at matching what's suitable for whom. She glanced away for a long while before saying, The overall approach is often called opponent practices. Benita tilted her head. The idea being that our minds in their natural state are completely clear. Whatever we put in front of them, they reflect. Allowing them to reflect only what appears to us in the outside world is a sure cause of unhappiness, because the nature of reality, of samsara, is a variety of different kinds of dissatisfaction. According to the Abhidharma Kosha, this world is infected. Even when there are some really good things in our lives, there will always be causes of dissatisfaction, even profound pain. She shrugged her shoulders. So the way to deal with it is to take your mind elsewhere. Take this mind of clear knowing, which reflects whatever it has shown, and show it something uplifting. Mind training? Confirmed Benita. Exactly. In Tibetan, they have this word, ga, which means happiness, from contentment all the way up to pure bliss or joy. And mi means not. So miga is non-happiness. Ga and miga are like oil and water. They never mix. They don't coexist. You can't be joyful and angry in the same moment. Benita was following her closely, as was I. Depression is a form of hatred. Instead of hating others for causing us pain, we hate ourselves. And the biggest danger of any negative thinking is the way it can easily become habitual. We get so used to thinking negatively that it starts to be our norm 
our whole view of reality becomes colored by it. Even if we're in a nice place, physically speaking, we're still angry or depressed. I knew this to be true. On my journey here today, walking along a lush green verge, I had been seething about the dogs that had forced me to make my detour, and I knew from my previous visits to Benita that the bed on which she was resting, in her room, the wing, this house, would be seen by many as the most extraordinary palace in which to live. Yet, she had been deeply troubled. The way to counter our anger or depression, to stop it becoming habitual, is with an opponent practice. We find a mental antidote, something that really does give us joy, that genuinely lifts our heart and mind, and choose to focus on that. Our mental antidote, confirmed Benita. That's right. Like what, for example? Something we know to be true that makes us feel happy. Like, I am always free to choose how I think. Or, the best is yet to come. Benita looked surprised. Those don't sound at all especially Buddhist thoughts, she said. They don't have to be. Opponent practice can be used by anyone. The main thing is to choose a personal antidote, a mental talisman, if you like, that we personally find meaningful and uplifting, and then recollect it throughout the day, especially when we're about to get into a situation where we may be challenged. We are deliberately putting a positive idea in front of our clear, knowing mind instead of a negative one. Benita was holding her gaze, nodding slowly. The more we do this, and the more acquainted with the positive thought, the more likely it is that the thought will arise spontaneously in the future, because one mind moment leads to another. More and more, the positive idea begins to colour our experience of reality. We see the world through the lens of our attitudes, like wearing sunglasses. We are deliberately choosing a positive perspective, instead of the opposite, which is getting sucked into a spiral of negative thinking where one unhappy sequence sparks off another one and before we know it, everything becomes a source of pain. While Serena had been speaking, a curious faraway look passed across Benita's face and a gleam came into her eyes. I like the idea of a personal talisman, she said eventually, and while listening to you, it was the strangest thing I was reminded of a sadhu who used to visit us when I was growing up. I haven't thought about him for years. She was shaking her head. But I did just then. I don't know if he ever gave me the same advice, but I had this feeling and intuition, almost as if he was tugging my arm right now and saying, Yes, listen to her. This is what to do. As she glanced down, Benita's eyes filled with tears. Serena reached over to squeeze her hand. After a while, Benita asked, Do you have a personal talisman? She nodded. Tibetan Buddhists are lucky. We have so many to choose from. We call them objects of virtue. A virtue being something that brings you happiness. Our main one is bodhicitta. For the sake of all living beings, I attain enlightenment. Or we might have, how lucky am I to enjoy this life of leisure and fortune? As I think, so I become. Or, my guru is kinder to me than all the Buddhas. 
Benita raised her eyebrows. Combined with meditations on these subjects, the more we invoke them, the more they shift our thinking. Once again, as Serena was speaking, she seemed to evoke a parallel wisdom for Benita. There was an idea like this the sadhu taught. She began smiling. I can't remember exactly. It was such a long time ago. Something about, in this city of Brahman, there is a lotus shrine, meaning that, in my body, she raised her fingertips to her heart. There is a place I can go to find peace. For the longest time, she held Serena's gaze before bringing her hands together. Thank you, Serena, for your wisdom. Oh, not my wisdom. Serena quickly corrected her. But I'm very happy to be passing it on. And thank you, HHC, for your visits. You know, she glanced from me to Serena. This little one has come to me several times when I've been feeling down. She senses something I feel. Serena reached out to stroke me. I'm sure you're right, she said. She is the most perceptive little creature. That afternoon, I took the direct route home past the dogs. As usual, they were tormenting every passerby. Their special ferocity reserved for anyone on a bicycle or walking a dog. I knew that these violent displays were nothing but warm-up performances for when I walked by, but I was determined to do so without getting angry. I had my own shiny new personal talisman, after all, an amulet I hadn't had to search for since it had arisen in my mind the moment that Serena had started giving examples to Benita. How fortunate I am to be the Dalai Lama's cat! I knew it to be true. It was a thought that always gave me joy, and not just in a cerebral sense. I felt it with every sinew of my somewhat portly. Wonky and aging form. Choosing to focus determinedly on this uplifting notion as I continued past Hell's gates wasn't something that would otherwise have occurred to me, but I did so now. The Rottweilers came out baying frenziedly, but there were no ears pressed back from me on this occasion. I didn't scamper, nor did I even quicken my pace. If anything, I dropped back to the pace of a leisurely stroll. While contemplating my immense good fortune, glancing in, I noticed that the two beasts were straining on their leashes. It seemed that they were tethered to ropes that didn't quite allow them as far as the fence or gates. In reality, no one was at risk of being attacked. It was all bark and no bite. By the time I'd made my way past the property and the barking began to recede, even in that brief interlude. My view of the beasts had shifted. They were rabid and ferocious, to be sure, but there was something pitiable about them. And on future encounters, eager to try out the power of my anger-subduing amulet once again, as I walked past the gates, because I was less susceptible to their frenzy, I noticed more about them: the dull coats, the lean frames. In truth, the two of them were desperate creatures. The next time I visited Benita in her room, she wasn't lying in the darkness, but sitting on her bed reading a volume with an elaborately designed cover, the Upanishads. Along with her perfume, 
I was instantly aware of a scent of sandalwood. I soon detected its source. On her dressing table, in front of a vivid image of the elephant god Ganesh, was a stick of incense with a glowing tip. I found it, HHC. She patted the bed next to her, and I hopped up. That verse the sadhu used to repeat. Putting the book down, she closed her eyes. Evidently, she was learning to memorize it. There is this city of Brahman, and in it there is a small shrine in the form of a lotus, and within can be found a small space, she quoted. This little space within the heart is as great as this vast universe. The heavens and earth are there, and the sun and the moon and the stars. Fire and lightning and wind are there, and all that now is and is not yet. All that is contained within it. Finishing, she turned to me, eyes gleaming. It's beautiful, is it not? I stepped over, nuzzling her hand with my face. She soon began stroking me. The sun and the moon and the stars, all that now is and is not yet. This is who we are, not so? Who we really are. Not just a person sitting on a bed. This is my talisman. I began purring. I think it always was. Somehow, I lost it. Then Serena brought it back to me. How lucky are we, HHC? What Serena had told us was true. Our minds are like glass and will reflect whatever we place before them. Focus on darkness and discord and what can possibly arise other than misery. Broaden one's perspective to what is uplifting and wholesome. And the result is equally predictable. How fortunate I am to be the Dalai Lama's cat. It was also true that the more you deliberately recollect a thought, the more likely it is also to pop up in your mind for no reason at all at different times of the day. Sprawled out on the top shelf of the magazine rack at the Himalaya Book Cafe, I might be gently dozing off the effects of that day's plat du jour when I recollect my mental amulet and feel an abiding glow of warmth inside. Serena had said that a talisman, combined with meditation on a subject, gave it special power. With a belly full of food in a cosy environment, it was easy to reflect on my good fortune. But when it came to my own mental treasure, its power was derived from much more than the great variety of treats and indulgences bestowed on me because I was His Holiness's cat. More, even, than the visiting celebrities and spiritual teachers to our home who were a source of ongoing intrigue. No, the most important reason I felt so fortunate to be the Dalai Lama's cat was because of what I experienced through him. The knowledge that reality is, more than anything, mind's creation. It was a truth made tangible in his most fleeting encounters. One clearly apparent to individuals even when among an audience of many thousands of people. And when it was just him and me, meditating each morning together, how extraordinary. To spend hours in the presence of one whose panoramic mind abides effortlessly in a state of infinite altruism, what other possibility can there be than to experience limitless bliss? How fortunate I am to be the Dalai Lama's cat. That's my mental amulet, dear reader.
What's yours? It's coming, everybody. Thank you, Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama's cat. (laughs) Thank you, Rama. Okay. Here's our sister, Caroline. What? Yeah, yeah, everything's... All right, this is July 8th. Uh, it's, uh, it's July 8th. Is it July 8th? Oh, it's, July. it's Sunday the 10th. <laughs> anyway, Caroline has a message for us here. Uh, along with the collective, the Ascended Masters of Galactics, the Earth Elements, the Fairy Elders, the Angelic Legions, the Archangels, and other divine beings known as the collective. (sighs) Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have the moment to speak with you today. Again, this week our writer speaks again with Lady Master Portia, goddess of divine justice and opportunity, master of the golden ray, which represents the seventh ray of light, which holds the energy of St. Germain's transmuting violet flame, her her twin flames, transmuting flame. Okay. Um... How may I assist, dear one? Lady Master Portia speaks. Caroline, Lady Master, I received two questions from readers this week. One is asking, the 3D matrix has gone after children. Jabs have been offered to four-year-olds. How can that be sanctioned by the galactic powers? The 3D matrix has reached Sesame Street, telling children to get vaxxed, Mm. to protect their parents, families, and friends. More than anything, an attack on the innocent is repulsive to me. How can this be allowed to continue? Unless the divine helpers can tell me that every child who has been jabbed as a result of their parents' fear is being kept from harm, I remain skeptical of their helping helping presence. I try to remain in my heart, but this situation knocks me out every time I see or hear about another child being used by the 3D matrix and their unaware parents. Many are wondering when divine justice will finally have its say and when the scales will finally tip in favor in favor of justice. The second question sent in is related to this. 
Will we get to see or hear anything about the trials of the dark, dark ones? I have never particularly cared one way or the other as long as they're gone. But after being slammed with 50% and 60% increases in three already two big monthly bills just in the last two days, I am really hoping we get to see some consequences. People are understandably upset about the economic situations we are facing now in many countries around the world. And our loss of personal freedoms. Oh, you can get those set up, right? Yeah, one is a minute. Okay, well, I'm working here. Mm. What's the other one? The music. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, People are understandably upset. Four minutes. Okay. Those aware of the toxicity of the jab are upset about their experimental use being extended to children. Could you comment on these issues? And then help us see, help us see what is happening here. I feel the first situation was created to stop or at least contain our ascension path, while the second situation was created to rob and discourage the masses as much as possible, as the old power structure makes a last desperate grab to stay in control. Along the way, they foment separation and an us-and-them mentality as much as possible, with separate actions enraged at one another, separate factions enraged at one another, It gets hard to see a way out of this unless something big like Nassara happens. Suddenly, Lady Master Portia, let us first address the question of whether humanity will will be given a front row seat to viewing the criminals who have ruled our world for millennia being escorted off planet to Dracos where they will face a solar tribunal. You have heard the white knights of the Ashtar Command speak of this, and it is so that billions on earth, all who wish to, will witness this occurring. Much of those tribunals will be made public. Remember, Caroline said a while back that they will intervene on this story about Jeff. Let's continue. You will not only be aware of the apprehension of and charges against those guilty of international crimes against humanity, intentional, excuse me, intentional crimes against humanity and Lady Gaia and other locales, other locations on the galaxy, in the galaxy. You will also view the decisions made in the tribunals and learn much of divine justice and galactic legal and judicial processes in those days. You have seen, many of you, the House Select Committee hearings occurring lately in Washington, D.C., which is one of the places where I and other Ascended Masters and White Knights 
have been working for many years. These hearings are designed not only to draw out the truth about insurrectionist activities. They are also being held to prepare Earth's population for the slight of those guilty of crimes against Earth and humanity, being questioned and put in a position where, as they do not tell the truth when given the chance, more will be stacked against them as decisions regarding them are handed down. These committee hearings are the beginnings of the process which you now await. Understand that as you watch these hearings, you are not mere spectators. All of you on earth witnessing these hearings are yourselves active witnesses to each statement and and a vowel being made. And so, you are all already directly involved in the beginnings of the process to bring to divine justice those who have apparently long escaped it, escaped it. Their behavior was allowed to an extent in the name of Earth's and humanity's dedication to free will existence and the duality experiment. This has gone on for thousands of years. All of us, have witnessed the destructive nature of this experiment of good versus evil, as it is called. We have seen how the very fiber of billions of human souls have suffered fracturing and other damages as a result of the trauma heaped upon human lives and consciousness over millennia, including the cyclic nature of reincarnation. Many reading this will be familiar with the assertion made by those of us within the collective that humanity willingly took on duality as a way to have the experience and experience of creation and their own souls from the perspective of dealing with dark environments rather than mainly light-filled ones. This highly dangerous venture put many at risk, and as you yourselves have witnessed many billions have suffered badly as a result. The experiment exceeded its own boundaries as galactic interferences and actors of the dark realms violated universal law and interference permitted for a time due to Earth's and humanity's permitting of density into your Earth-based experiences. Here I got kind of okay. Yet now another predetermination now comes forth, and we assist in the unfolding of that. It is that impetus and series of events, both astrological and earth-based, that are needed in order to bring your planet back into the light. And it is a spectacular moment, to say the least. And there is a profound picture here. Maybe you can get that up on the Internet, Rama. It's a humongous starship over a neighborhood. Oh, my goodness. It's over an unknown location in the Czech Republic, says here. That moment in your history comprises that which is required to release humanity and earth 
from the density of duality, including the closing of its portals to the lower realms, which higher dimensional portals open in multitudinous locations. This development opens the way to an increased allowing of assistance from the higher realms as this universe now enters the Sat Yuga, an extensive universal era of peace and abundance. As a result, the light being consciously sent to earth now by your son Saul has ushered in a whole different set of frequencies and laid a whole new pathway for earth's beings. Evolvement. These new, far higher vibrations no longer permit dense behavior on the part of individuals, groups, or power structures to run amok as they once did on your planet for thousands of years. Keep in mind that until Earth and humanity cross the line into acceptance of the Sat Yuga, and until the soul of Gaia herself called out for assistance, lest she be lost entirely, there couldn't there could be no interference that would readjust the, the trajectory of the planet and her people's chosen paths. You are a free will planet. And so, your decision is respected. Um, oh, I, there's something with the bottom sentence there, Rama. Um, I'm not going to be able to read all of this tonight because of the time. Yeah. Let me just jump here. You cannot keep your increasing evolvement, reclaim your sovereignty, evolve your light bodies, prepare for Nasara in ways that your human systems can endure, yet expect all to be solved for you by another, and more quickly than most could safely integrate. This must be your decision, earth beings, and increasingly it is so. Okay, just let's up a little more. Hmm. Okay, we are actively intervening in this and many other situations. We are on the ground in increasing numbers now, beside you and working amongst you, in your halls of government, in your militaries, your schools, your universities, your spiritual centers, your fields, your crops. We have for centuries intervened to ensure that your air, water, and soil are healed from the many contaminants that would have otherwise rendered them completely toxic and deadly. All damage done by agendas to dehumanize and imprison humanity is being healed. And in, and the installed internal control systems deactivated as you awaken. As the majority of humanity choose this as their path, and we see every indication that you are moving in that direction. Again, you do not see the huge shifts you are crying out for because you speak as one who sees the end result and is impatient with the process. You are on an accelerated path. And so what is desperately slow to you is very fast indeed to millions of others. Whatever may occur now, 
know that Earth's sovereignty and liberation are certain and already unfolding. Look for the signs of these, and even more, more will appear, dear ones. What you give your attention to and hold expectation of, this the universe honors and replies to what to replies to with saying, as do all of us. Namaste, dear ones. In this and all things, we remind you, you are never alone. Carolina Oceana Ryan. And Car- Caroline Rainbird. Uh, these are sisters, interesting enough, and um, uh, Excalibur and uh, um, Emerald Serpent Feathered One are with us along with all of the little people and all of that which is called beauty inside and out. So I pass this talking stick with every good thing upon it to you, Sister Rainbird. Here it comes. Oh, beautiful. It has every good thing on it. Beautiful. So thank you, thank you, thank you. It was so, so delightful to hear from the Dalai Lama's cat tonight. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) That was wonderful. Yes, yes, yes. It was. And it reminded me of old times. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I want Rama to get one of those books, that latest book, so I can read Mm. excerpts. Yeah, it'd be fun. That'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. So, well, thank you, thank you for today and 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 for everybody, all the ways you show up. And <laughs> thank you all too. And I pass this talking stick to you. Here it comes. It's beautiful. Okay. Okay. Um, this I'm is going to be eight minutes. So, fasten your seatbelts. We're going to kind of go past time a little bit. I'm just going to play this one song. Oh, you're just going to play a song? Yeah. All right, that's good. I'm sure you picked one that was a worthy song. Mm. We all know what time it is, everyone. It's time for Nasara. Mm. And uh, as Caroline was saying, um, we have what it takes to get to the through through the finish line. So let's keep our hearts in a good space and uh, pray peace. Pray peace. Namaste, Rama. Saknam Ji. Ahomitakuyasan. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil, and live long and prosper. And pray peace. (laughs) Namaste, everyone. See you in your dreams. So much love. Namaste. Namaste.